time right now on the David Allen Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel, who will be joining us a litter, a litter, a litter later on. Welcome to the <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel. We're going to do this today, I promise you. Welcome to the mop up for February 14th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 21 degrees and sunny. Today is Valentine's Day. Thou art my love, and I am thine. Off with your pants, let's see your vagine. I got you a ring, some flowers, champagne. Perhaps it's the day I won't hear you complain. Your ruby lips are sweeter than acid. You gripe all day, then wonder why I'm flaccid. So I send you my love on this Valentine's Day, but I've got a secret to tell you, honey. Um, couldn't figure out what <laughs> what rhymes with. Thank you for the coffee, Leslie. Uh, I would have preferred a uh, coffee enema, but this will make do. Happy Valentine's Day. How come we don't have one day of the year to tell someone you hate them? <laughs> Probably because we need more than just one day for that. Each year, we would need an entire year to tell someone you hated them. We have Valentine's Day. There's also Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and of course, your birthday. All those days that have been set aside to tell someone you love them. But no holiday set aside to tell that special someone in your life, I hope a piece of masonry falls on your skull. I would call it Shut the F Up Day. It's a special day of the year when you tell that very special someone to shut the F up. Diamonds are forever like your stories about your boss. Shut the F up and I'll buy you a diamond. You already have something that's forever. Your complaints about me. Stop complaining and I'll give you something that will last forever, a diamond. Because right now, all that seems to be lasting forever is how I remind you of your mother. Not even your father. I remind you of your mother. That's a day I would uh, look, <laughs> look forward to. Did you get my card? Because I meant it. Shut the F up. Wouldn't that be nice? A, a shut the F up section over at the uh, Hallmark stand. Shut the F up day. I'm not interested in your keto diet. Happy shut the F up day. Here's a ball gag. Stuff that in your mouth instead of the low carb A1 beef bowl you think all of us want to hear about. Shut the F up day. Has a nice ring to it. You have a secret despiser. Remember secret admirers? Well, now you have a secret despiser. Can you can you guess who hates you? I mean, besides everyone? I am that special secret despiser. I have hated you 
ever since you moved in two floors below me. And I can't tell if you're having sex or someone keeps stubbing your toe with a jackhammer. I hope it's your toe. I hope you're in pain instead of in love. I hope that noise you make at three in the morning is pain and not sex. Signed, your secret despiser, happy shut the F up day. But all we're left with is Valentine's Day, which is named, by the way, I found this out. It, Valentine's Day is named after a Catholic priest. And who better to put us in the mood for romance than a Catholic priest? St. Valentine, the patron saint of gas stations that sell chocolate and flowers. That's who St. Valentine was, the patron saint of all the gas stations in America that sell overpriced, unedible chocolate and wilting red roses. I don't have the figures on this, but I'm 99% certain that 99% of all chocolate and roses sold on Valentine's Day are sold at Shell stations on the way home from work. Or maybe 99% of the time, that's where I bought them, at the Shell station while filling up on my way home. Oh, right, it's Valentine's Day. I should probably get some melted chocolate uh, because I have, you know, it, I got a lot on my mind. Like most people, I've got a lot on my mind and roses and chocolate are not it. I need gas on the way home from work. And then if, you know, you're in luck, if I remember that it's Valentine's Day and I grab some of those overpriced roses and chocolates. It's uh, pretty stupid to give women in my life chocolate on Valentine's Day because maybe I'm getting a little too personal here, but on Valentine's Day, I want to get laid. And I know women crave chocolate. So if you give them something they crave, then how do you get them to settle on you? They already have what they want, chocolate. They don't need you. That's why uh, in my prime, I always said on Valentine's Day, the chocolate is for after. You have to earn your chocolate, which might explain why I've spent the past 10 Valentine's Days completely alone. Anyway, I hope you're celebrating Valentine's Day with someone you love. Ah. Uh. That's some good coffee. Larry David is now doing commercials for cryptocurrencies. Did you see that uh, Sun Sunday Super Bowl? The commercials, Larry David, creator of Seinfeld, creator of Curb Your Enthusiasm, doing commercials now for cryptocurrencies. That's how tight the economy is now, Larry David. Even Larry David is struggling for cash and he has to do commercials for cryptocurrencies, which is kind of disappointing. I guess nobody wanted to hire him to endorse online betting. That's sad when Larry David can't get an online betting commercial. J.B. Smoove, he got one. I saw him. Patton Oswald is endorsing online betting. Ben Affleck, Jamie Foxx. I trust all of them. So online betting must be perfectly safe. Otherwise, 
J.B. Smoove, Patton Oswalt, Ben Affleck, Jamie Foxx, they wouldn't be telling us that online betting might be dangerous. They wouldn't be telling us to, to engage in online betting if it were dangerous. I trust them. I saw Ben Affleck testify before Congress about the Congo. He, he, I trust him and certainly Patton Oswalt. He's the voice of a generation. If Patton and Ben are endorsing online betting, hey, that's where I should be betting online. Uh, I don't know why Larry David couldn't get a commercial for, for online betting. That really bothers me that he got stuck doing commercials for cryptocurrencies, endorsing cryptocurrencies. But Larry David, I trust Larry. He's a comedy genius and he's a Democrat, very vocal Democrat. So cryptocurrencies must be a safe bet. If Larry David, of all people, is putting his reputation on the line, he's a curmudgeon. He's very judgmental of people. So he wouldn't be endorsing cryptocurrencies if he didn't think it was a safe place to put your money. And he has a lot of money to put. So, you know, why would he endorse cryptocurrencies if he didn't believe in cryptocurrencies? He's a good man, Larry David. I turn to him for my moral guidance because he hates Trump. He's a very vocal, hates Trump and, uh, you know, he yelled at Alan Dershowitz on Martha's Vineyard last summer. He ran into Alan Dershowitz on Martha's Vineyard and created a scene. He screamed at Alan Dershowitz for defending Trump in the impeachment because Larry David is a man of principle. We know that. So cryptocurrencies must be a good investment. I'm going to go invest in cryptocurrencies as soon as I have an extra dollar because Larry David is endorsing them. And you know that Larry David, who, who golfs with Barack Obama, Larry David would not be endorsing cryptocurrencies if they were just as safe as Treasury bonds. He's in Obama's inner circle. We can trust Larry David. Well, the Super Bowl was Sunday. The Rams beat the Bengals 23 to 20. I had the Eagles. I know, it was a stupid bet taking the Eagles. I wagered 50 that Don Henley and Joe Walsh would reunite for an ExxonMobil commercial. That would have been funny, right? Don Henley and, and Joe Walsh making up with ExxonMobil and kind of selling the fracking rights to Walden Pond. Wouldn't that have been a funny commercial? Don Henley making peace with ExxonMobil and letting them frack Walden Pond. Yeah, that, I guess Don Henley can't be bought. Like Bruce Springsteen, who did that Jeep commercial last year, and then we found out he's a drunk driver and Jeep spent all that money for naught. That was, that was sad because I was going to buy a Jeep. I just needed to see two more commercials of Bruce Springsteen telling me that we need to find the middle, the common ground. That's how he was selling the Jeep, that we need to meet in the middle. Remember that commercial? We need to meet the Republicans smack dab in the middle. Right, Bruce? Even though the Republicans have turned into a fascist enterprise, they have made the middle 
right-wing lunacy. If you want to meet in the middle of America, when you look at Trump and you look at uh, Louis Gohmert and, and, uh, and uh, what's his name, McConnell, these right-wing fascists, to meet them in the middle would be to be a right-wing lunatic. That's where the middle is. The middle is right-wing lunacy. But let's find common ground. I have an idea, Bruce Springsteen. How about we don't meet in the middle? How about we say there is good and there is evil? How about we say climate change is evil and endorsing Jeeps instead of solar power isn't meeting in the middle. It's telling people to calm down. And now is not the time to calm down. Uh, now is not the time to meet people in the middle. Now is not the time to meet the auto manufacturers in the middle. Uh, we don't need people wringing their hands and calling for, you know, civility. We have too much civility. And I, and I saw it this past week with the Joe, the Joe Rogan thing. Uh, anybody who has a lot of money uh, is going immediately to the default position. Uh, don't cancel Joe Rogan. This is what the right wing and the neoliberals who kind of agree with Joe Rogan, that's their default position. You criticize Joe Rogan for saying the N word 50 times, for comparing uh, Harlem to the planet of the apes, for spreading disinformation that gets people killed about ivermectin and uh, vaccines. The default position for anybody with a lot to lose is we must not cancel Joe Rogan. Nobody's talking about canceling Joe Rogan. If you're in a position of power where you have a platform, when you're asked about Joe Rogan, the first thing you need to say is spreading misinformation about COVID and the vaccine is dangerous. Joe Rogan shouldn't be doing that. By the end of the year, one million Americans will have died from COVID. You need to get vaccinated. That is all I have to say about Joe Rogan. Not immediately go to, he shouldn't be canceled. It's the First Amendment. Uh, the first thing out of your mouth should be, Joe Rogan is wrong. When you're asked about Dave Chappelle, the first thing out of your mouth is, gender is not fact. He is wrong for saying that. But the people uh, who kind of agree with Joe Rogan and kind of agree with Dave Chappelle or, or are afraid of Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan immediately jump to do not cancel them. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about whether or not gender is fact. Anyway, yesterday was the Super Bowl. The honorary coin toss was performed, unfortunately, by tennis great Billie Jean King. I say unfortunately because I had Steffi Graf. The coin toss was heads, not just any heads, heads suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, ECT, brain damage. But, uh, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about that when we're watching the Super Bowl. All the, uh, all the current and former football players who are getting arrested, committing violent acts from uh, 
brain trauma. We don't talk about that when we watch the game. Anyway, the color of the Gatorade dumped on the winning coach this year was blue. I unfortunately bet on hot magenta. Halftime show was amazing. Eminem took a knee to protest the police, or maybe because he's too old for this shit and was simply exhausted. Either way, uh, I agreed with him. Now, as you know, things are heating up this week in Ukraine. We don't know if Biden will be committing troops. He claims he won't. But, uh, well, if he says he's not going to do something, he's a man of his word, right? If he says he's not going to commit troops, why would he lie to us? He's never lied to us before, like about raising the minimum wage or offering a public option or, uh, yeah. Uh, Well, I know most of Americans aren't paying attention to to Ukraine. Uh, Most Americans don't care because we have no skin in the game when it comes to Ukraine. I've always said people would know who the current president of Ukraine is if we had a draft. In the past, I have said, bring back the draft. But after watching yesterday's Super Bowl, I say, bring back the draft kings. Forget the draft. We need to be able to bet on war. Bring back the draft kings. Because right now we're not paying attention. You know, we only seem to remember our troops during the Super Bowl. Someone sings the national anthem. Yesterday's came in at a minute 50. I had it coming in over two minutes. Uh, I thought Mickey Guyton was going to pull an Alicia Keys. No biggie. Anyway, I lost 50 bucks. But uh, we sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl and they cut to the troops in the middle of the national anthem somewhere overseas. And the rest of America goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We have we're at war someplace. I forgot. And then we forget. One trillion a year on defense. And the only time we remember that we're at war is during the Super Bowl. Now, they say we have a lot of money riding on our military, one trillion dollars each year on our military. That's a lot of money. But do we really have a lot of money riding on the military? What's the upside to all this spending for you, for me? Suppose you and I had some of our own money riding on our military. Suppose we could log on to DraftKings and make a bet, say, make a bet that the next hotspot will be Taiwan. I'd wager 70 bucks. We're going into Taiwan. Maybe the sharp money is reversing the line towards South Korea. So I'll cover the spread by putting a little scratch on Syria. See, we should be allowed to bet on our military. Betting Placing bets, and this is why I think Patton Oswald and, and uh, Ben Affleck are endorsing online betting. Betting makes us feel alive. You know, we've been de-industrializing this country since 1975. All the good jobs have gone overseas, along with our dignity. Uh, where does all that pent-up energy go? We don't have jobs the way we used to, where we could work an honest day. We need to pump the adrenaline and feel we're smart and alive. And that's where online betting 
comes in. I think online betting is the best thing to happen to this country since the deindustrialization de of our country. Betting, sports betting, that's a job. That is a job. You are your own boss. And it's not luck. I mean, I, I see the commercials. It's how smart you are. You need to take into account weather conditions. You have to do your own scouting reports. You got to study. Betting is a great way to be your own boss. It's entrepreneurial. In the true definition, you're risking your own money. What is more American than betting? You're risking your own money. You're a capitalist. We should be encouraging more Americans to bet. And we should be allowed, most importantly, to bet on our military. That's the ultimate action. Right now, Russian troops are mounting on the Ukrainian border. We are on the brink of war with Putin. And, and yesterday's Super Bowl, we acted like football was the only thing going on in the world. And football was the only thing going on in the world because we had billions and billions of dollars riding on it. What is more important than what our money is riding on? Now, imagine if you and I could place bets on the situation in Ukraine. American kids could spot Crimea on a map blindfolded if they were allowed to get some action on it. Nobody follows the situation in Palestine because there's no action. You tell the American people they could put some money on the dog, the underdog, that's the dog, that would be the Palestinians, they're the, the dog in that game, then suddenly everyone is going to know the difference between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. We just need, allow, need to allow the Americans to get some action. Imagine if you could log on to DraftKings and wage a futures bet on the number of Israeli settlers on the West Bank one week from now. Do you pay attention to the number of Israeli settlers on the West Bank? Of course not. Imagine if you were betting on it. Imagine how much more interest Americans would have in geopolitics if we could have a little action going on. Like I said, Ukraine. What's the spread on Ukrainian troops versus Russian troops? What day does Putin invade? I have the 16th. First day of casualties, what's your over-under? I'm making a backdoor cover that China is going to intervene. These are just uh, ways to stay focused on the truly important things that are going on where we wager. So I love the commercials. I did. That's, that's what the Super Bowl is all about. Can't get enough of the commercials, especially Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson's commercial for Amazon. The golden couple going for the gold. Uh, that commercial was more tone deaf than Rudy Giuliani as the masked singer. With all the commercials Scarlett and Colin could agree to, they sign up to endorse Amazon. Wow. There, there was a time in this country when people would be ashamed of themselves for doing something like that. Uh, they should be. You should be ashamed of yourself doing, being that wealthy 
and doing commercials for Amazon. This week, Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, are voting once again whether to unionize after the National Labor Relations Board ordered a, a new election when it became apparent that Amazon violated the law in last year's election, which ended up rejecting the union. This is big stuff. This is labor stuff. Amazon is anti-labor. Which side are you on? Amazon or the 99%? 5,000 workers in Bessemer are voting again this month. They have to vote again because Amazon stole the election last year. But Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson are doing commercials for Amazon. Which side are you on? The workers are fighting for dignity in Bessemer. But they're not the same workers who voted last year because Amazon's business model is to eat up workers, grind through them, and then hire brand new workers. That's the Amazon business model. Hire someone, pay them as little as possible, and then try to burn them out before they qualify for benefits and higher pay. So the 5,000 workers who are voting this year in Bessemer are not the same 5,000 workers who voted last year. They were chewed through by Amazon. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of Amazon? Or are you on the side of the workers? Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson, they think it's cute to do a, a commercial for Amazon. They lent their name. The only thing we have is our name. And Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson lent their name to Amazon. When uh, we go into the great beyond, all we take with us is our name, not our money, our name. And Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson lent their name to Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of Amazon or are you on the side of America? Amazon, they've crunched the numbers and they've decided it's easier to replace workers than nurture them. They are a parody of capitalism, a parody that is just as sad as what Colin and Scarlett tried to pass off yesterday as comedy. The message from Amazon is you are all replaceable and you shall be replaced. First, we will replace you with other workers who are more desperate, who will work for less and demand even less. First, we'll replace you with other workers and then eventually machines. But there was Harvard's very own Colin Jost and his bride, Scarlett Johansson, making cute during a commercial for Amazon. And of course, they will be the first ones, the very first ones to warn us about Trump or the end of democracy. They will be the first ones to express solidarity with all the good causes, so long as it doesn't cut into their bottom line. How much is enough? 
how much money does Scarlett Johansson and Colin, how much money do they need? How much is enough? Uh, I don't, I don't know their game. I don't know what their politics are. I suspect they play the Hollywood game of keeping politics to themselves, right? That's what a lot of rich celebrities like to do. They say, you know what? Uh, I, I keep my politics to myself. It's not my job to choose a side. But those days are over. When you do a commercial for Amazon, you picked a side. It's not dangerous to say, I'm voting for Biden. You could vote for Biden. That's not hard. You're not revealing anything about yourself. You tell us which side you're on. You picked your side when you did a commercial for Amazon. That's everything we need to know about you, Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson. Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on? You made it clear. You don't need the money. You don't need the money. You made it clear which side you're on. Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost side with Amazon. That's it. That's all you need to know. The same way all you need to know is that OJ murdered his wife. All you need to know about Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson is they lent their name to the single biggest union buster in American history, Amazon. The single biggest enemy of labor in American history, Amazon. Which side are you on? You don't need to tell us whether you're a Democrat or Republican. Doesn't mean anything. We know which side you're on. You sided with Amazon because life comes down to moments, the choices we make. Nobody held a gun to Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson and forced them to do a commercial for Amazon. They chose to be on the side of Jeff Bezos. They are not on the side of labor, period, which means they are not on the side of the 99%. Now look, there's nothing wrong with breathing rarefied air. This is America and everyone has the right to earn a living and everyone has the right to get filthy rich. I think once you get to a billion dollars, you should probably have your kids rounded up and placed in a re-education camp, but I don't begrudge anybody making a quiet fortune. But to endorse Amazon, to slap the patina of a golden couple over an endorsement of Amazon, the message being, look at us, we're winners. We're Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson. Look how wealthy we are. And not only are we wealthy, we are getting wealthier by endorsing a company that creates, among other things, poverty. Which side are you on? 46 million people right now are rent insecure. 46 million Americans 
live with the threat of eviction right now. 140 million Americans are living at or below the poverty line. And that is partly because of Jeff Bezos. That is partly because of Jeff Bezos. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of Jeff Bezos? Or are you on the side of the 140 million Americans living at or below the poverty line? Which side are you on? Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson told the world on Super Bowl Sunday they are on the side of Amazon because nothing screams solidarity with the American worker more than a rich celebrity couple hanging out in their Nancy Myers set of a home, basking in their toys and furnishing. Watch that uh, commercial. Rich white people surrounded by their stuff. We see them at dinner parties, their well-appointed walls and bookshelves. Look, they were flaunting their wealth. They were rubbing our noses in it on Super Bowl Sunday. They were siding with Amazon. There's nothing wrong with having things that are nice unless it's paid for by people who aren't nice, like Jeff Bezos. I'm told Colin Jost and, and Scarlett are some of the nicest people you'll ever, ever want to meet. I don't think I want to meet them. I don't think I would want to know anybody who would lend their name to Jeff Bezos and Amazon when 140 million Americans are living at or below the poverty line. And Jeff Bezos is partly responsible for that because Jeff Bezos is evil. Jeff Bezos is evil. And it is the job of Colin Jost as a comedian, a comedy writer, to attack Jeff Bezos, not get into bed with him. There was a time in American culture when Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost would, wouldn't even consider doing a commercial, let alone one for Amazon. Now, we know that Amazon is evil. And I wouldn't expect Scarlett and Colin to march on the picket lines in Bessemer or out in Staten Island where Amazon workers are trying to unionize. I don't expect Colin Jost to use his celebrity, his wealth, his Harvard. <clears throat> Excuse me, got something stuck in my throat there. His Harvard education to deliver spirited testimony in Washington against the evils of monopolistic corporate greed. But I do expect him not to lend his name to Amazon, especially a comedian. People might say, well, maybe they gave the money to charity. There's good money, there's bad money. Whatever money they made, whatever money they gave to a charity, that's bad money. Better Jeff Bezos pay his fair share of taxes. Better Jeff Bezos uh, not control Washington, D.C.'s tax code. Better Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson pay their fair share of taxes. 
then take money from Amazon and donate it to their favorite charity, if in fact that's what they're going to do. Uh, because Amazon is evil. Now, uh, Scarlett Johansson is interesting. Uh, let me just state up front, more talented, smarter, uh, more charismatic, obviously, than I could ever dream of. Uh, both of them. Scarlett did commercials for SodaStream. That's an Israeli company with a factory in a settlement on the West Bank. Now, I believe Israel has a right to exist. I, I believe uh, in a two-state solution. I support Israel. I support Israel. I do not support the settlements on the West Bank. Uh, it's a third rail better left untouched by American celebrities. The UN, the Red Cross, the International Court of Justice all told Scarlett Johansson that the SodaStream factory on the West Bank is against international law. She didn't care. She gave an interview saying there's no right side or wrong side on this issue. Really? Well, I guess... People who don't know the difference between wrong and right will say things like, yeah, I'll lend my name to Amazon because it's complicated. They're gray areas. No, there actually aren't gray areas. There's good and there's bad. I'm a Zionist. I believe Israel has a right to exist. I don't think the West Bank should have settlers or factories. But it's a third rail that I choose not to talk about. So maybe Scarlett should just stay out of it. She has enough money. She didn't need to endorse SodaStream. She didn't need to go up against the UN, the Red Cross, the International Court of, of Justice. You have enough money and clout. Why bother with SodaStream, Scarlett? Why dip your toe into this Palestinian issue, especially since you live in America, unless you're pro-settlement, unless you're pro-Israeli settlers living on the West Bank, in, in which case you should probably say that because you've touched the third rail. Uh, you're, you endorse SodaStream, which has a factory, uh, it's an Israeli company that has a factory on the West Bank. There's no upside to siding with an Israeli company that makes its product on the West Bank. There's only downside. So why risk? Why risk it? You're an actor. Why get involved unless you believe someone needs to speak up and take a stand in favor of Israeli factories on the West Bank? Unless you believe that. Maybe that's why you did the commercial for SodaStream. When she was criticized for doing ads for SodaStream, Scarlett Johansson said, I don't apologize. I stand behind that decision, unquote. She went on to say, quote, I was aware of that particular factory before I signed, and it still doesn't seem like a problem, at least not until someone comes up with a solution to the closing of that factory and leaving all those people destitute. So she's worried about the, the settlers on the West Bank who work at that factory ending up destitute. Uh, well, 
sounds like she took a stand by endorsing SodaStream. Personally, I believe the solution is quitting the West Bank, uh, getting the settlers out of the West Bank. But it's, you know, way beyond what an American citizen can think about. So I choose not to get involved. I, I think it would probably be wise not to endorse SodaStream. Uh, Scarlett's worried about leaving all those people destitute on the West Bank. By people, she means Israeli workers, I guess. Uh, I happen to believe that the Israeli settlements on the West Bank <clears throat> promote violence and war and leaves people destitute. Uh, that's why I, but I don't know. I don't live over there. I, I just wouldn't endorse uh, SodaStream. Uh, I believe Israel has a right to exist, but I do not believe in the settlements. Given that it's complicated, maybe an actress, an actor, shouldn't put their name on SodaStream. Maybe she should stick to commercials for Chanel. Maybe pass on SodaStream, unless you're trying to make a point about Israeli settlers. She can't blame stupidity. She's brilliant, more brilliant than I could ever be. Uh, so she has no problem with the settlements on the West Bank. Obviously, she sees nothing wrong with Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Which side are you on? Uh, the West Bank is probably complicated because I live in America. Amazon and Jeff Bezos is not. Jeff Bezos is evil. Jeff Bezos is evil. Everyone knows Jeff Bezos is evil. Which side are you on? If someone offered me a job on a show that was streaming on Amazon, I would take it. I wouldn't want to, but I need the money. If someone, however, asked me to write a commercial for Amazon, there isn't enough money to get me to do that. Uh, Scarlett and Colin don't need money. Why would they lend their name to Jeff Bezos? He's evil. He's evil. There's good and there is evil. Amazon is evil. Now, some might call Amazon a necessary evil, and I get that. Like I said, if I was offered a job on a show that was streaming on Amazon, I would have... I would take it. I wouldn't be thrilled about saying I'm working for Amazon, but that's when Amazon is a necessary evil. Some people must rely on Amazon. I don't shop on Amazon. We got rid of the, we were making money on this show doing that ad, you know, what, I forgot what it's called, but I told people to shop on Amazon and we got a cut. And I met Christian Smalls and I said, you, it, I can't do business with Amazon. But it is a necessary evil if you're not in a position of power. Uh, but to be in a position of power and use your name to endorse Amazon, to take money you don't need, to get into bed with Jeff Bezos, pure, unadulterated evil. You know, Colin Jost is from Staten Island. He and Pete Davidson just plunked down $250,000 to buy the Staten Island Ferry. You know who's in Staten Island right now as we speak? 
our friend Christian Smalls. He is the founder of the Amazon Labor Union, which is fighting to unionize several of the Amazon fulfillment centers out on Staten Island. He's doing a big fundraiser for the Amazon Labor Union this Friday night. He's fighting to lead the first Amazon Union in American history. For more information, go to AmazonLaborUnion.org. Christian has been on this show and he has been the victim of harassment. He was fired by Jeff Bezos. His uh, Bezos's lawyer tried to portray Christian Smalls as uh, an idiot. I don't want to repeat what they called Christian Smalls. And uh, so go to AmazonLaborUnion.org and support the workers in Staten Island at the Amazon Fulfillment Center trying to organize Amazon Labor Union. That's Christian Smalls, also from Staten Island. I don't think he spent, I don't think he went in on that $250,000 purchase of the Staten Island Ferry. There was a Staten Island Ferry that was being dry docked and Colin thought he'd uh, buy it because he's just a regular guy from Staten Island. He hasn't forgotten his roots. AmazonLaborUnion.org. If you work for Amazon, you're dealing with chronic stress, a loss of dignity where you are spied on. If you're working the fulfillment center floor, you're not allowed to carry a cell phone to call your family. Workers are underpaid, abused, and threatened. We know that. We all know Amazon is evil. And I understand why some people are forced to use Amazon. But to put your name on it, to endorse Amazon when you have that much money and fame and power, Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost endorsing Amazon, how much money do you need? Which side are you on? I know Colin is a member of the Writers Guild, SAG-AFTRA. Which side are you on, boy? The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, they have data showing that Amazon warehouse employees are twice as likely to suffer a severe injury than any worker at any other American warehouse. In other words, working conditions at Amazon warehouses are twice as dangerous as any other warehouse. Christian Smalls was fired from Amazon when COVID first broke out because he asked for PPE. He asked for tests and he was considered a troublemaker. So they fired him. But Colin Jost and Scarlett have no problem doing commercials for Amazon. It's interesting. Scarlett Johansson took on Disney last year. She claimed she wasn't getting the millions of dollars owed to her from Black Widow. You go, girl. You go, girl. Solidarity. Uh, she was portrayed last year as a woman taking on the big, evil corporate demons, Disney. Good for you, Scarlett. It was portrayed as David versus Goliath. That's Scarlett getting the money she was promised by Disney. I think it was like 
anywhere between 20 to $50 million that she was owed. And she was putting it all on the line by taking on uh, Disney, we were told. And they settled out of court and she got her money. She uh, showed solidarity for all the overpaid actors in Hollywood. Solidarity with all the overpaid actors in Hollywood. No solidarity last year with people earning $15 an hour trying to make rent. When Scarlett and her lawyers took on Disney for that, what, $50 million she thought she was owed, they portrayed her as a Norma Jean standing up for the workers. I want the 50 million that's owed me. Meanwhile, there are Disney employees who must choose between medication and food. That's a fact. There are Disney employees who work the theme parks, dressing up as Mickey and Goofy, sleeping in their car, choosing between medication and food. Now, I don't know. Maybe Scarlett and Colin, maybe they bankrolled the documentary entitled The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, directed by or produced by Abigail Disney, which exposes how Disney treats the workers at its theme parks, at, at the factories that build the toys. I don't think she did. I don't think maybe she did. I don't think she did. But her lawsuit last year got a lot of attention before she settled. I just, you know, I, I saw a lot of press that she got. Uh, I didn't see any mention of how Disney's corporate greed affects the people working for Disney who are just getting by. Her lawyers couldn't wait to mention how many billions in profit Disney earns each year. They couldn't wait to mention what the executives got paid. They couldn't wait to point out that Scarlett Johansson made them all rich. But no mention of the people barely earning a livable wage at Disney who help make Scarlett rich. Staten Island. Colin Jost bought the Staten Island Ferry out in Staten Island right now. Christian Smalls. He's out every day marching in the cold, freezing weather, taking on Amazon, while Colin Joe spies the Staten Island Ferry because he hasn't forgotten where he came from. I'm still Jenny from the Bronx. Well, that's somebody else. He's just a guy from Staten Island. Uh, meanwhile, Christian Smalls is actually out in Staten Island getting hassled by the cops his union buddies getting hassled by the cops and arrested for lighting a fire in a trash can to keep their hands warm while they're taking on Jeff Bezos and Amazon, the company Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson endorsed yesterday for the entire world to see. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Are you on Christian Small's side or Jeff Bezos's? Which side are you on? Yesterday, Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost made it very clear which side they're on. Support Christian Small's by going to AmazonLaborUnion.org. AmazonLaborUnion.org. Which side? Are you on? I'm on Christian small side. I don't expect Scarlett Johansson to do a documentary 
about the plight of workers or make a movie about the plight of workers. I don't expect Saturday Night Live to have Christian Small's guest house or attack Jeff Bezos. I don't expect either one of them to go out to Staten Island and march with Christian Smalls. But to lend your name to his oppressor, to lend your name to Amazon, the single biggest union buster in American history, which side are you on, Colin Jost? Which side are you on? Amazon is evil. And I know people in show business have to do business with Amazon. People sell programs. They have their reruns streamed on Amazon. I work for a show that is being streamed on Amazon. I think I get, you know, some residuals occasionally. I promote books and videos on Amazon. I get that. But to do a commercial for Amazon, to do a commercial for Amazon, I know that Coca-Cola and Ford did business with Hitler, but they didn't do commercials for the German tourist board. They weren't proud of the fact that they were doing business with Hitler. But to do commercials for Amazon? Seriously, Colin? Amazon is a brutal monopoly that puts bookstores, record stores, Main Street out of business. It is a purveyor of surveillance capitalism. It invented surveillance capitalism. The commercial made fun of Alexa reading their minds like it's a joke. Amazon invented surveillance capitalism. It spies not just on its workers, but its customers and American citizens. Part of Jeff Bezos's business model is spying on Americans. You in that commercial trivialized the spying, the actual spying, the surveillance capitalism that is taking place because of Jeff Bezos. That Alexa, you and your wife were playing with in the commercial. Alexa is used to partner with thousands of police departments to keep an eye on ordinary Americans. Amazon makes billions doing business with ICE. It flaunts the law, committing wage theft and bullying workers into not asking for overtime by threatening them with evidence to send them to prison. It illegally fights union organizers. According to Politico, Amazon is constantly calling the Justice Department and the FBI with files on its own employees. In other words, they're spying on their own employees and the troublemakers they turn into the Justice Department and the FBI. Yes, Colin. Yes, Scarlett. Alexa is spying on you. I know it. you thought it was funny in that commercial, but Amazon is spying on us. Amazon is sending a message to union organizers in Amazon warehouses that you better be a compliant worker. Otherwise, we have stuff on you. We will turn you in. MIT Review, it's a magazine, reports that last year, the entire infrastructure of, of keeping tabs on undocumented Americans for ICE was maintained by Amazon. 
So it's really funny in that commercial that uh, Colin and Scarlett did yesterday about Alexa reading their minds. Uh, it's supposed to be funny. It, it's making fun of the idea. It's poo-pooing the idea that Am Amazon is violating our privacy. Amazon is violating our privacy. They hold 62% of high-level authorizations in the government. Those are the high-level authorizations needed to handle data for law enforcement systems. In other words, any spying that goes on requires software and servers, and 62% of that spying goes to, uh, is, is implemented by Amazon. Amazon's cloud computing software is used by the NSA, the FBI, and Homeland Security to spy on ordinary Americans. The NSA gave a $10 billion contract to Amazon, and we can't see the contract. We have no idea what's in it. Why is the NSA doing business with Amazon? But that commercial was really funny. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that Alexa could be reading Colin and Scarlett's mind. All but two states, only Montana and Wyoming, all but two states have police departments participating in Amazon's ring network. You know, that little surveillance camera that you put outside your door? Well, uh, the ring network lets law enforcement ask users for footage from their ring security cameras to assist with investigations. This is according to the Financial Times. This is new, this is brand new stuff. And according to the Financial Times, there are 2,014 police departments in America that are gaining access to Amazon's ring security video. This is Amazon. Amazon invented surveillance capitalism. Their servers run the software used by Homeland Security, by the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, to spy on us and round up undocumented Americans and ruin their lives. Besides selling books, Amazon is also a publisher of books. And I believe at one time in American history, that would be called horizontal integration. I think it's horizontal integration and it's against the law, but nobody will enforce the antitrust laws. Amazon should not be allowed to sell books and publish. Amazon puts out roughly 10,000 books and audio books and is using its clout to take on American libraries. It will not allow American libraries to purchase any eBooks or audio books published by Amazon. Amazon is anti-library. In testimony to Congress, the American Library Association called Amazon the, world, the worst obstacles for libraries as we move into the 21st century. Would you give your name? Would you lend your name to Amazon? How much would they have to pay you to do a commercial for Amazon? Stephen Greenhouse, he's been on this show before. He's the great labor reporter. He had a piece in The Guardian last week about Amazon. I'll end on this. He writes, the average Amazon warehouse worker, quote, leaves within just eight months. 
that's an unmistakable sign that Amazon's jobs are unpleasant, to put it kindly, and that many Amazon workers quickly realize they hate working there because of the stress, breakneck pace, constant monitoring, and minimal rest breaks. Stephen Greenhouse in The Guardian goes on to write, Indeed, experts on the future of work often voice concern that Amazon's vaunted algorithms and technologies treat Amazon's warehouse workers like mindless, unfeeling robots, having them do the same thing hour after hour after hour, unquote. That's from Stephen Greenhouse in The Guardian. That's what Amazon is, and that's which side Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson, that's the side they're on. They're on the side of Amazon, which doesn't allow workers to take pee breaks. Amazon workers get fined. The, the, the warehouses are so big, they're, they're allowed a pee break, but it takes so long to walk from where you're stationed to the restroom and back, there isn't enough time to go to the bathroom, so they get fined. You all remember the Amazon dri uh, drivers having to pee in Gatorade bottles because they weren't allowed to take breaks to go to the bathroom. Which side are you on, Colin and Scarlett? I'm not on the side of anybody who forces its employees to wear diapers. So we need a cultural revolution because there is right and there is wrong. Jeff Bezos is evil because unions are necessary and Amazon is not. Which side are you on? Are you on the side of the corporate oligarchs who don't care if we live or die? Or are you on the side of the working men and women here in America? Which side are you on? Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson answered that question yesterday during the Super Bowl. They are on the side oppressing workers. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.
Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinell. He will be on a litter. A li you know, I keep saying litter. A, a little later on. A, lit a little later on. A little later on with hopefully new music. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Coming up on today's program, and it's a good one, Jason Miles is back. He's co-host of This Is Revolution. Then in about a half hour, we're going to be joined by Donald Cohen, author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. I am just finishing up this book, and it gets the Feldman guarantee. Go buy Donald Cohn's book, author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. If you buy The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back, if you buy the book and it doesn't light a fire underneath you, I will, I will reimburse you. It's one of the most important books I've read in the past six months. Then at seven, Howie Klein, and it continues. Our guest is not here yet. I don't think so, unless he's in the Zoom room. Dan, do you want to do Community Billboard? Yes, I do. Good. How are you, Dan? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? Please welcome our resident pretentious douchebag, Dan Frankenberger. Every show, Dan Frankenberger keeps track of the people in our growing community and tells us what they're up to. What do you have for us? Do you have any birthdays today? Uh, we do have some birthdays. Okay. And I want to let you know I sent some pictures to you just a couple minutes ago. Okay. And did you send, we like to send out birthday cards. Did you send out the birthday cards to people who are having birthdays? I did send them out. Okay. Who, who are the people who get birthday cards? Um, the first one up is Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer. Let me see. I can tell you how old Jerry is. Mm -hmm. Jerry Springer, who bounced a check in a brothel in Cincinnati in 1973, I believe. I'm going to say he's 81. The year was uh, 1944. 18, well, that, a little less, it sounds like. That, that's, he's pushing 80. He'll be yep. 78. So I, I was off. Okay. He's looking good, though. He he is, and, and well, you know, I always say the bad drives the good out. He's an example of bad speech driving out good speech. They gave him a show on daytime television, and he single-handedly ruined it. The judge has tossed out the Sarah Palin libel suit against the New York Times. They, uh, we'll, we'll get more on that later. Uh, any other birthdays? Uh, yeah, when, when I go through these birthdays, there's so many that are uh, YouTube stars and TikTok stars. And you Instagram. don't know who they I've, are? I've never heard of a lot of them. But in my local area, we have uh, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. He was from Rochester. He ended up uh, living in Rochester for a while. But I think he was originally from Maryland. I don't I don't have all the, the info right in front of me, but uh, Frederick Douglass. Yep. Yes. But uh, okay. See here, he was he was born in eighteen eighteen on Valentine's Day, February fourteenth. Okay, happy birthday! I'm going to assume he's no longer with us, only in spirit. Correct. That is true. Okay. 
Uh, who else? Um, By the way, take the your time. I think I have a feeling our guest isn't showing up. So it could be. So yeah, get comfortable. Get <laughs> um, everyone in the YouTube and Zoom uh, rooms should uh, prepare some questions. <laughs> Raise your hand and uh, throw some questions in there. Or I, I might take off my shirt and sing. You never know. Go go ahead. Whoa! Holy yes, moly! I, I've been known to do that. <laughs> um, the rapper Birdman has turned fifty-two. Birdman is already fifty-two. Yep. I can't believe how time flies. The man is fifty-two, and I still have no idea who he is. Who is Birdman? Um, he is a rapper. I think he became uh, prominent in the community back in the '90s, and he was ended up being kind of a mogul for uh, op opening uh, a record label himself and signing okay. other. Did other you know musicians. who he was? By the way, I'm yeah. not proud of the fact that I don't know who he is. I have no idea who he is. Yeah, he's a he's a leader in the the rap community. Okay, from back when like it really blew up in the '90s. Uh, he's bald, has some face tattoos, and we didn't straighten this out about the birthday card. Send him a card. He, if he's bald, send well, him a card. Well, I wanted to remind you that um, he borrowed your curling iron and never returned it. Yes. That's so right. I'm not sure that's if you wanted now to. Now all uh, my pubes are straight. Oh, boy. <laughs> I have to curl my pubes. Um, Galileo Galilei. Galileo Galileo. He's the uh, uh, he's known as the father of science, right? And his his contributions included confirming that. Well, you the, know what? Do you realize well, uh, he would have been five hundred years old today? But if he didn't re if he didn't teach us that the Earth circles around the sun, uh, he would be five thousand years old today. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> you got math jokes. I don't even think he taught us that the. What did he teach us? Um, he confirmed the phases of Venus. He discovered four of Jupiter's moons, and he invented the thermoscope, the precursor to the thermometer. I, I did not know that. I think it was Copernicus. Who, who taught us that? Okay, go ahead. Uh... <laughs> um, I also have um, a Sopranos quote today. Okay, no more birthdays. Nope. Okay. Um. Why was I born handsome instead of rich? Why was I born handsome instead of rich? Uh, mm, I have no pussy. It was Ralph, Ralph Cifaretto. And this is from uh, season three, episode six, entitled University. And it was a scene where uh, Tracy insulted Ralph in the VIP lounge in front of his friends. And as as Ralph's walking away, he says, why was I born handsome instead of rich? Yeah. OK. All right. Office hours this Friday at 8 p.m. Very quickly. Let's uh, see what's going on in the community. Tom Weber. Oh, look at that. What is that? Um, this one he entitles a Robin. And that's what it is. It's beautiful. It's How a, do people buy his art? Um, you can go to TomWeberArt.com, and Weber has two Bs in the last name. Um, he said, here's a recent wildlife uh, pen sketch I did last Saturday. Okay, there's some, look at that. Is that Glenn? That's uh, Glenn Costick. It's a couple of loaves of bread, and uh, he's been on a French bread roll lately. So That's beautiful. A couple of beauties. 
Got a couple different shapes. This is a drawing by, oh, look at that. I know who that is. Yep, this is Coco. Coco. Uh, our, our buddy, our buddy Lane uh, drew this. It looks like a, a charcoal sketch on black paper. Beautiful. And he he just said, bored. It's amazing. <laughs> and there's a lot. We, we, showed, we showed this last week from Randall in Harrisburg, but I wanted to show it again because it was so awesome. Right. Uh, he said, please have a look at the attached photo. It's from the Fix Coffee Shop in Harrisburg. It's called A Latte from Way Back. That's fantastic. And he says, uh, please, please, listeners in PA know that March on Harrisburg continues to fight against corruption. So uh, visit giftban.org to join the movement. And there's uh, Scarlett. Look at them. They're a beautiful couple. Yes. Why would they want to endorse? uh, Why? Why? Why do they have to endorse Amazon? Hey, happy Valentine's Day. Did you buy jewelry so you would be loved? Yes, I bought jewelry, and I bought it from josephbrintonjewelry.com. Um, since today is Valentine's Day, I would like to say that one of the worst feelings to have during Valentine's Day season is, oh, no, I'm late. But it's not too late. What, 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 late right. as in what? As in a gift or? Yeah, um, you forgot to get the gifts. That's oh, I, I thought, meant. no, the worst thing you want to hear is her saying oh. she's late. Oh, well, it's not too late to get your late gift. So you can go to josephbrintonjewelry.com. He's got some awesome earrings. He specializes in earrings, and they are gorgeous. And they're made here in the United States by him personally. That is the truth. Look how beautiful that is. josephbrintonjewelry.com, because love requires gifts. And finally, (laughs) the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. What's the topic? Um, Ralph welcomes the editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, yes. to, to offer her uh, expert insight into ways the U.S. can peacefully resolve our conflict with Russia over Ukraine. Plus, the former Nuclear Regulatory Commissioner, Peter Bradford, updates us on the latest rise from the, the dead of that dangerous zombie technology known as nuclear power. Yes. And coming up, go check that out at ralphnaderradiohour.com. How do uh, people contact you? Um, You can get a hold of me at dentfeldman at gmail.com. All right. Thank you. As always, nothing gets done here without the brilliant Dan Frankenberger. Thank you so much. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we will talk with Donald Cohn, author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. And go buy this book. I don't ask you for much. Go buy this book. If it doesn't light a fire underneath you, I will reimburse you. Bruce, how are you, sir? Let's go to Bruce. Thank you, Dan. Hey, Dave, you hear me? Yes, I can, sir. Okay, so uh, I follow uh, the Wrecking Crew on Facebook, and I'll just read the headline. It says, this week in February of 1961, Reprise Records was launched by Frank Sinatra in order to allow more artistic freedom for his own recordings. Then they go out and give a really nice history of Reprise Records, but nowhere do they mention Howie Klein. So... Uh, well, they were bought out by Warner Brothers. Uh, let's see. That was in it's in the history here. But he, uh, I looked him up. He ran it from like 89 till 2000, was it? Right. Something like that. 
So, but but they, they talk about the buyout, but they never mention. The only person they mention is Mo Austin, right? As the uh, in the hierarchy. Well, where are you getting this information from? From uh, the Wrecking Crew, their their uh, their Facebook page. Okay. So, all right. Thank you for that I piece thought, of information. It's, that was an interesting post. Yeah. Why don't you correct them? <laughs> I will. Okay. Thank you, Bruce. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And if you would like to join our Zoom room, let me invite anybody who's in the Zoom room to raise your hand if you would like to talk about anything, since I'm always interested in what's on your mind. And uh, so far, no uh, war in Ukraine yet. So far, they haven't invaded. So that's good news. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will take your calls. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. suspicious please pardon me if i'm somewhat repetitious like a hand in a glove i'm a pig for love yeah i'm a pig for love For love, the great, the great Mike Steinel, who will be joining us a little 
a little later on, a little later on. If you would like to join the Zoom room, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and uh, sign up to attend a live taping. Let's take some calls from the people in the Zoom room. Nobody's raising their hands. Okay, there we go. All right, well, let's check out YouTube while we're waiting for uh, our 6.30 guest to show up. I don't know what happened to our six o'clock guest. Ah, there we go. It's, uh, let me see what the chat room is saying over, uh, over at, uh, YouTube. Okay. Those songs are so great, but he ought to make condensed versions. Okay. That's just give me the truth. I will, uh, ask if you have any questions in the YouTube chat room while we're killing time before our next guest shows up. Uh, if you have any questions in the chat room, I will answer them. Uh, I, I just poured a glass. All right. I can't repeat that. Let's see what's going on. Oh, there we go. Warren G. Yes, sir. Hello, sir. Hey, David. Thank you. Thank um, you. I was, I was going through your, um, your, your next guest at 630. Did you, did you um, listen to his interview on Pitchfork Economics, the podcast that Nick Hanauer does? Uh, no, we had him on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and and I bought the book, and it, it's just so great. It's just so important stuff. Yeah, I, I was listening to the podcast earlier that he gave on on Pitchfork, and it's it's really good. It's it's really really interesting. It's 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 good stuff that he's doing yeah. i'm looking forward to it the thing that so most, i just was curious yeah. the thing that i think a lot of younger people may not know or anybody might not know is there was a time when our government actually did things i'm not being glib when margaret thatcher became prime minister of great britain she sold off all the industry all the british industry and uh, there was a time when the government would nationalize necessary industry, trains, water, uh, turnpikes, electricity. These were all either government run or they were utilities that were highly regulated by the government. And when Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, it started it started a trend that caught on here in the United States of deregulation, of selling off publicly owned institutions. And now we're seeing libraries that belong to the public. There's Donald Cohen. Hey, Donald. Good to see you. We're talking about your book. Uh, so why don't we just jump right into it? Okay. Hey, this is taped, I assume. I'm sorry. No, we're live on YouTube. Oh, you're live. Okay. We do it live well. to tape. So this is very <laughs> exciting. Why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, we will talk with uh, the author of a book that gets uh, my guarantee. And I mean this. Uh, Donald Cohn is the author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. And here's the deal. Go buy the book right now. If it doesn't light a fire underneath you, I will personally reimburse you. I do this, Donald, with books that I really believe in. And you were on the Ralph Nader show. The, 
the interview and the book has they, blew me away. It's some of the most important. I, I think your book is one of the most important books I've read in the past year. The privatization of everything, how the plunder of public goods transformed America and how we can fight back. We'll talk about the uh, privatization of America. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of wool light and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller. Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. I need my sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics. And my little red Speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket in case I get a chill. I'm traveling late. And my rusty old blender A 50 tequila In case I go on a bender My attorney's number In case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light Portable dark room. 
my hair plug lotion, and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem, I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., Thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel, who, let's see if I can say it, who will be joining us a little later on, a little later on. Well, joining us right now is David Cohen. He's the author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. He wrote it with Alan McCallion. Please welcome Donald Cohen. Thank you, Donald, for taking time to be with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I don't mean to embarrass you, but uh, the book is just fantastic. You were on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and I recommend everybody go listen to that show as a podcast. The thing that even I, even I I'm an idiot, uh, I think most Americans don't understand what privatization means because they've never seen a government step into the fray and actually take over an industry or a public good. So in, in the past 40 years, since Reagan was president, we, we've just lived through deregulation, the demonization of government and turning everything over to the private sector. For a first grader, how would you explain the difference between a public good that's run by the government and a public good that has been privatized? Okay, first grader. So um, first off, I'd say not all public goods are run by the government, but they all need to be controlled by the government, right? That's kind of the distinction we make, right? We don't, we all eat. We don't make our, you know, the government doesn't produce the food, but the government's role is to make sure we're healthy, right? Because that's the, you know, healthy and with good nutrition and an adequate supply of food. So the simple uh, description is when the private market or private entities or corporations get control over the things that matter to us all, health, education, clean air, clean water, then um, their interests, profit, uh, sales, profit, uh, become paramount. They right. take money out of the system. I'm not sure this is the first grade version, so I, right. I apologize, David. Um, well, they take money away from providing goods and services because for profits and CEO salaries and all that, when we need that money. That's kind of a, one of the simple answers. Let's start with schools. We're, you, we're in a school, we're talking to first graders. It seems to me when this country was first founded, we had an idea of the utilitarian purpose of schools that would be provided as a public good by the government. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. We decided that everybody that, you know, before, you know, 
before we had public education and mandatory public education for everybody, everybody, you know, parents and families were on their own. Some got educated, some didn't get educated. We decided as a society that everyone should be all, you know, young people should be educated to be both productive adults and productive members of society, you know, good, good citizens. So it's, a, you know, we, at, at one point we realized that. Right? And so all American citizens are entitled to a free public education paid for primarily by our tax dollars. That's right. And no, but here's where it gets a little bit more complicated, right? That's still true. But the privatization of education comes through a variety of, of uh, uh, several ways, one of which is by um, uh, school voucher policies that are happening in a number of states where a family can take their school voucher, you know, the money that that student would have gotten, you know, the money, the money that would have been spent on that student and take them to a private school. OK, so it's you know, it's our money, private school, but also the growth of charter schools, which is the same, you know, they're publicly financed and privately operated. So what essentially what's going on there is we're taking, you know, we're saying, okay, everybody gets a basic dollar amount. They've turned it into a commodity, a dollar amount rather than an outcome, an educated population. And they've said, okay, you know, through these two mechanisms, said, let's put it on the market in in the market. Let's let the market decide who gets and who doesn't get and how they get and, you know, and, and what they have access to. So everybody can still has their voucher money, but, you know, no longer are we in a public education system that, you know, that everybody's in. You write clearly if you want to bring back segregation quickly, charters are the way to go. Yeah. Well, you know, for a little bit of historical context um, for everybody, you know, the privatization of public education began as a segregationist response to Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s. White families did not want their kid, their school, their kids did not want their kids in schools with black kids. So what do they do? States passed voucher policies and then uh, moved, uh, you know, where they could take their money and go to a white, you know, a segregation academy or a white flight academy. And then since we were drying up the, the public coffers, um, you know, black schools were with predominantly black schools were closed in many places. And so that's where it all started. And that's so what that again, the bigger idea here is put it in the market, let everybody choose individually. Right. And they use the same language back then of school choice that is used today. And, but what what but markets segregate, they stratify, they exclude and so what we're seeing now, you know, fast forward to today is increasing segregation, increasing stratification because people take their dollars and go um, and uh, schools are competing against one another for those dollars, which creates all kinds of other distortions. So charter schools versus just plain old public schools. You write in the book that a lot of the leaders of, of charter schools uh, differentiate between smart kids and stupid kids and try to court only the, the smart ones so that the tests skew better because they're only weeding out. Right. They weed out the, the ones that they don't want and the ones they do want. What kind of education do you end up getting if you're only going to school with smart kids or if it's homogenous? 
if you're only going to school with smart people mm -hmm. of color or smart, right. is that good for a, a kid's brain? No, no, it really, it, it's not because, you know, I mean, we could, it, it's almost silly to, to say that the nation is divided now. It's, you know, in every which way. But one of the sources of division is we don't interact with one another. People from different perspectives, from different classes, from different religions, from different, you know, belief systems, from, you know, different geographies, perhaps. But I don't need that. I want my kid to learn STEM and I don't want him distracted because the kid next to him has some socioeconomic issue that interferes with my kids. What does that have to do with my kid learning algebra? Well, that's a, um, you, you asked that question perfectly. So here's what I didn't first mean it, off, by the step way. back. <laughs> I, didn't mean, I didn't mean what I said. Step back for a second. And we say, first off, yes, every parent, children, I have grandchildren now, you know, we want, what's our top priority? Getting our kids educated, a good job, and all the above. Absolutely true. But it is also a fact, not just a value, that we, that it, that we need every child to be educated, right? So it's in our it's 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 in our that's in our interest for every child to be educated. So that's number one. Number two is, you know, I'll just go to what I teach my kids. You know, I had two lessons, learn how to learn and learn how to see the world through someone else's eyes. Empathy. Right. Exactly. So I believe we have an empathy crisis in this country an empathy and huge empathy deficit and empathy crisis. And it, it kind of goes to the core. My favorite part of the book was the section on community, because when we don't interact in parks, in libraries, in schools, in the places that you know make us equal, then we don't we, we can't get an appreciation of the perspective and the experience of the others, which means that we can't we're not going to solve the same problem and that we and that we can't then solve the big ones that affect us all. You talk about resiliency, that these brains are developing and without coming up against, not against, but meeting people who are different, who think differently, have different struggles. Everybody's life is a struggle, no matter what socioeconomic class you're a member of. To understand everybody's struggle, you write, creates resiliency in, in a developing brain, and it teaches you how to handle all the frustrations that you will encounter, even Bill Gates's daughter, the medical student, the doctor, mm -hmm. she is going to face frustrations and setbacks. And that's what we want to train our, our kids to, to learn how to deal with setbacks. Right. And, and, and it, happen, it happens in subtle ways, too. It's important to understand this. You know, I live in Los Angeles. I, you know, I, I'm a, uh, when I go to the airport, which I've done frequently before COVID, I pay extra to, you know, to drive as a single driver in the hot lane or the HOV lane. Right. Okay. And I get there a half hour quicker because I, you know, because I'm going to the airport at six in the morning. So there's a problem with that. You know, I look at it and go, I mean, there's two ways to look at that situation when you're the driver going 60 miles an hour or more. Right. One is, you know, look at those people. We should, you know, we should all be able to drive it. You know, somehow we're not in it together here. Right. 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 But the other way to look at it, the, the selfish way to look at it is, I paid for it. I deserve it. Right. Either way, when we're not experiencing, I'm, I'm aware of this when I'm driving, you know, when I, if I believed I deserved it, then, okay, that's a problem. Right. 
when you because when you deserve it, when you're in a, a different experience and you believe you deserve it, then there's no reason to solve the problem of mobility right. to get to the airport or to work. We're talking with Donald Cohn. He's the author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Go buy this book right now. And again, I will reimburse you if this doesn't light a fire underneath you. It's it's a great read and it's not it's 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 written for people like me who aren't particularly bright. Libraries. I was talking earlier about Amazon. They are besides bookstore destroyers, uh, they are also publishing books, which I at one time would would have been against the law if we had an antitrust division at the Justice Department. They have about 10,000 ebooks and audiobooks that they will not give to libraries. There is a war in this country against our libraries. If somebody came up with the idea of a library today, mm. I have an idea. You get a card, you tell us where you live, and you can borrow books, CDs, videos, and we'll fine you if you keep it too long, but you can borrow this book for free. Would Americans in this current state agree to libraries? Well, and it's also free. You don't even get charged for the card. Right. So let me parse that. Would Americans agree to that? Yes. Would um, conservatives who don't believe in government agree to that? No. Right. Right. And so, you know, I'll, I'll give a, a, another example, you know, because it's not all, you know, in a different context. So I think we write about, about broadband, right? Broadband, you know, access to the Internet. We're on it right now. I think we all see as completely essential for survival at this point. It's as important as the roads and, 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 and our transportation system. You know, when when telecom companies passed a law in Colorado to prevent cities from creating municipal broadband, you know, the cheaper and more accessible and more affordable. Um, they gave the right, they gave cities the opportunity to vote for it though. And if they wanted it and every city that did voted overwhelmingly to create municipal broadband. So would they do that? Would they create postal banking? Yes. Would they create, right. um, uh, you know, all sorts of things that we, libraries? Yes. In fact, you know, what, I, I is it Escondido? Where's the city? Is it Escondido in California where people spoke out against the privatization of their libraries? What happened there? Yeah, well, they law. We helped them. We work with them a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, they you know, LSSI, which is the primary private company that wants to run libraries, um, you know, they're starting, they're moving around the country to try to sell their wares. They say cheaper, they say better, faster, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Can you explain, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of this stuff is a little complicated. So we have libraries that are basically run by municipalities or their private foundations, but they're in league with a school or some public good. Usually, there's cities. Cities have library systems, and counties have libraries, and, then, and sometimes there's county libraries. But it's all public. These are public institutions. They're public buildings. They're public institutions. They're funded by their the agency they're part of. The city budget. Uh, if it's it's in the city, it's a if it's in the county, depending on what part of your you know how. So there's you a live. company you write about 
that yeah. wants its hands on our libraries. That's right. So who, who's so funding them? Why do they want? Why do they want to run our our libraries? What's their motivation? Well, the company's called LSSI. They're a corporation. I believe they're traded on the stock public company traded on. So their motivation is very simple. They want to make money. Right. So what they want to do is get control. They want to you know have the city a, a library system contract with them, hand then over a contract with them for them to run the library for, you know, whatever period of time the contract is let for. So let's just, let's get, let, so let's get into that a little bit. Now they say it's still public. We're just been hired to run it. Okay. So the, what's the impact of that? It's a private company. They have profit. Their CEO makes a lot of money. Uh, they have to borrow money to build, to buy other companies because they, you know, companies do that. So they say, you know, we're going to do it cheaper, you know, and it's just going to be just as good service. What are they, when they do it, when they say they're going to do it cheaper, what do they do? First off, they cut wages and benefits because they don't really think librarians work very hard. So like, you know, they're just sitting around um, so they can, you know, they can cut the wages and benefits of librarians. Librarians are teach, you know, are teachers. They're exalted in my view. Um, they also do bulk buying. Okay, so the library collections, instead of having librarians with a sense of the community and a knowledge of books, you know, you know, some, you know, choosing their their collection, they'll bulk buy. So the, you know, you'll get a dumbing down of the of the collections, you know, what what's accessible. Um, so you'll have less, you know, interaction with kids who come in and need help with their homework. You know, you'll have less opportunity for, um, you know, fewer hours. That happens because you have to cut costs, and that has happened. And you write that there that libraries are our second responders, and, and during the pandemic, they're second responders. They they think about what's in your community that's public. There's a school, there's the post office, and there's the library. It's a community center. So the pandemic happens, and. They, you know, made hotspots available for kids in their, to go in their parking lot to, who didn't have access to the Internet. They responded to homeless crises. They became the place for, for tests and vaccines. It's a community center that is, has no, you know, it's not about whether they can make money. They're not selling anything. They are, are. It is, these are institutions that are ours. Right. They're the eyes and the ears, like the post office. They're the eyes and the ears for the community. And this is his name, Pizant, what, what is uh, Frank Pezanite? Yeah, I can't remember how to pronounce it. But yeah, he's the owner of LSSI, right? He, um, you know, again, I, let me step back for a second. What are these? What do companies want to do? There's only one thing they want to do, and they want to sell things, and they want to make money selling them. So, any, you know, whether it's a library, a prison, a water system, a road, you know, anything. That's all they do is sell stuff. Right. And so, and what do they care about? How much they can charge for it? How much it costs to make? what the profit margin is, how much of and how much of it they sell. I mean, that's all they care about. So would you agree um, that everybody has a patriotic duty to get a library card? If you are wealthy, you have even more of an obligation to get a library card and take books out there. There somebody said to me, uh, I rather buy books because I want to support authors and publishers when you take a book out from the library are you helping publishers and authors oh absolutely how so I was, well first off i don't have the numbers and i will get them after right. this discussion the number of people who have library cards is strikingly large it's larger than most people think the usage of libraries is pretty is broader than people think um 
I, uh, I've been, you know, I've done a lot of these interviews since the book came out in, in late, uh, you know, a few, just a few months back. And I've been delighted when people have interviewed me that it said, yeah, I found it in the library. The mo- <laughs> Why? Because first off, if you can, that's what I tell people to do. If you can afford it, buy it and buy it from an independent bookstore. We want that. That's part of the whole mix of, you know, how, how we learn in society. But if not, Take it from your library. Maybe they'll get another copy, but mm-hmm. maybe if not, someone else will get to read it because the point of the book is not to make money and not to sell units. The point of the book is to move ideas and right. to educate. But there are thousands upon thousands of public and private libraries. And the more libraries that are in, are in business, the more books are being purchased. They are the undergirding of the publishing industry. You, The problem that, and I want to talk about what happened in Escondido because that's a city in California. I would assume most upper middle class, uh, hyper credentialed, educated people don't depend on libraries the way lower middle class people living at or below the poverty line who rely on libraries. I, uh, uh, I would assume that the people who have the most pull in government don't even know where their library is. And that's why even what what happened in Escondido, the people were against the privatization of the libraries and what happened? Yeah, they, they were against it. They waged a, you know, a vibrant campaign, but the city, you know, the decision makers, I think it must, I think it was the city council. Escondido was in Northern San Diego County. Right. Um, and um, the decision makers had decided that they were going to do it. Now, I wasn't there, so I don't know why, but I can speculate. One is they were they they drank drank the Kool Aid. Oh, it can be cheaper. We could save some money. How do you do that? You cut wages, or you know, one less problem on our hands. Or they knew the company, or they believed in the free market. They had this belief that the private the government government should do less. You know, there's some pretty conservative corners of San Diego County. So, you know, it could be any number of those ideas. And, you know, the decision makers decided. But I will say, I find with libraries, there is this sense of civic, you know, that they are a civic institution that is, you know, more than most things that's broadly, not just among working class people, but I think, you know, there's a cross, there is some level of cross-class understanding of the civic role of libraries. Right. So the big issues are social security and the privatization of Medicare and Medicare Advantage. Uh, Sometimes that feels insurmountable. So I'd like to just talk about what's happening locally where you can see this in action. Talk to me about the privatization of turnpikes and and roads. And I think, Mm -hmm. is it Colorado? There was a road. What is the road you talk about? Is it in Colorado? Yeah, the Northwest um, Northwest Express. But we don't call them turnpikes in the West. I live in L.A. We call them freeways because they're free. Right. Uh, well, for the um, time being, at least. Yeah, we so, have very few toll roads out here. Right. What happens when you privatize the roads? So here's what happens. And why do so, you private? Why would you privatize a road that... Uh, either you built, the government builds a road and then turns it over to... A, a private company why would they do that well i'll say why do they do that yeah. um so um so just I'll, again i'll give like a real quick 30 second one-on-one what they mean these are public private partnerships 
where you know the the road in Colorado you referred to, there was a ninety nine year agreement between either the city of Denver or the Arapaho County, I can recall, to to give control of that road for 99 years to a private consortium. And the private consortium would be fully responsible for upkeep, for maintaining it, for all of the above, for collecting the tolls, because that's where they make their money back, right? So there would be complete control. So why do folks do that? I mean, I think it's flawed reasoning, but I'll give you there from their perspective. One of which is the governments, you know, we have massive needs of infrastructure to rebuild our roads and all that. There's a big need and and transit and broadband and all the above. Uh, They say government doesn't have the money. um, So we have to go to the private sector to get the money to do those things. Government has the money, but people don't want the rich people don't want to pay taxes. So they say we don't have the money. Exactly. But here's but I'll even say a little bit more than that. I'll go even deeper because they'll go to the they'll go to elected officials and say, you need your road fixed. We, you don't have the money. We have the billion dollars and you won't have to pay new taxes. Very politically appealing. OK, but there's a there's a little you have to ask one or two questions. So one is borrowing the money is the easy part. You know, you build a bridge or you build something, you need a billion dollars, you got to borrow the money no matter who you are. You could buy it on the public, you can get public capital, municipal bonds, pretty cheap or private. But, you, you know, that's the easy part. The hard part is paying it back. And there's only one place to get that money, us. So they'll say no new taxes, but things cost money. So the tolls go up because it has to, especially when you have profit. Either way, you have to pay it back no matter what. How does it work? So, you, you, In other words, you're going to... you you. You sell the the road to this private company. They give you what five billion dollars? They, they they sell. Yeah, they give. So first of all, it's not a sale; it's a long term lease. Okay, seventy five years. Ninety that was ninety nine. They don't do ninety nines anymore. But fifty, sixty, seventy five is typical. And so so it's you know it's privatization. But they say no, no, we're just leasing it. But okay, so that's so the the private sector will give the public sector you know, a, a cash infusion, the public agency, in ex- you know, and what they're doing is buying that control, that long-term lease. And what do they get for it? They get to collect the tolls. They get to, you know, maybe have run the concessions or gas stations, you know, whatever. Let me give one example for you, because I think it's really illustrative. It's in the book about Chicago parking meters. Right. Before you, you do that, because I, yeah. I, I, but so Go. the, the, they they build this this for profit road that's maintained by a, a for profit yeah. company. They raise the tolls, and what happened? What did drivers? Uh, oh, what do they do? Well, they do two things. One is they pay more, or they look for alternative routes, and, and right because what, they don't can't afford it. So, you know, historically, there's a my, my co-author is a historian. I learned about this in our process. It was a process called shun piking way back when they shunned, you know, truck drivers and they, you know, shunned the pike. They went around. But here's so, but so, of course, if it costs a lot and you can take an alternative road, you do it. But included in these long term, very rigid contracts are non-compete clauses that prevent the agent, you know, the jurisdiction, the county, the city, or what have you, from upgrading the road, the competing roads, right? Or from creating mass transit or for things because they, you know, you, you've signed a deal with them wow. that protects their interests and profits. So they're against mass transit because it cuts into their profits. 
Well, yeah, I mean, here's I, I try to think, of, uh, you know, objectively, we made a deal. We, you know, I'm the private say we made a deal. I've calculated how much I was going to make for the life of this deal based on my projections of traffic and et cetera, et cetera. You change the deal. You compete with us. You got to pay us or you can't do it. You know, right. and so, you know, from their perspective, fine. From our perspective, that's not that's not our concern. Our right. concern is getting people around and saving the and saving the planet. That's incredible that that the yeah. anyway, talk to me about Chicago and the the uh, the, the meters. Yes, because it's similar. That's why I right. bring them. So because yeah. it's also it's a public private partnership. It's not a new on a Friday uh, in 2008, maybe early 2009 cities bleeding red ink. Right. Terrible time recession. A consortium of more private consortium, Morgan Stanley. Wall Street, a, a, a sovereign wealth fund from the Middle East. It's a national investment company, and um, and a national parking company. They told the mayor, "We'll give." They told they had given the proposal to the mayor. We will give you one point one billion dollars upfront. This is a city in desperate need in exchange for this control of the city's thirty six thousand parking meters for seventy five years until twenty eighty three. Vote on Tuesday. I'll cut to the chase. It was it's incredibly stupid to borrow money on on your future revenue. Who knows if we'll be driving in 2083? I certainly won't. I know that. Um, probably you neither. Right. We'll, we'll <laughs> need both. How old but, you are? But the way the way the flooding's going, we're going to need robots. But here's the bottom line: now the city, for the life of the contract, for the next 61 years, you know, if they want to eliminate parking spots for a dedicated bus lane to get people out of their cars and to solve the climate crisis or bike lanes or pedestrian malls where you know, they just change all land use pattern. They have to buy the spots back at the future value of the spot. That's a straight jacket on democracy. Now the city council and the mayor, you know, going forward can't do their job because they have to keep this private contractor whole. And by the way, the, Parking rates went way up and they're making their money back in 15 years. We've been talking with Donald Cohen. I hope you come back. He's the author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. I have one question. I, I think I asked you this on the Ralph Nader show. Uh, can you name one example of the government turning something over to private enterprise, having it run more efficiently and cheaper, where, where a public good became an even better public good because it was given over to the private sector. Can you give me I one do, example? I, well, I do recall that question. I, 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 was, I was as uncomfortable then as I am now in answering that because I don't like to speak in universals. <laughs> I bet there is one somewhere. <laughs> I bet there may even be two, but, but I think it's, you know, it's the, the here's the, it may, I don't remember what I said last time, but here's the thing, what I say, it's always, there are efficient companies, there are inefficient companies, there are efficient government agencies, there are inefficient, it's like life, everything is complicated, right? Here's the issue. Private sector has different interests than us. If they're going to take, no matter what they're going to do, they're taking money out of the service for profits. Right. Nothing else. It's a legitimate business thing to get make company to make profit, but they're taking money out of the service, so they're going to spend less on the service. Okay. Um, the public sector. So their job is to sell as much as possible. 
Our job is for as many people as possible to have things. So critically important to, see, to, to understand the difference in their interests, that they're different things, that there's market things and there's public things, and to make sure no matter who's providing the service, even if we contract for sanitation, that we're in charge. Right. I want to introduce you to Howie. Regulations. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I want to introduce you to Howie Klein. Howie, are you there? I am so happy you're introducing us. I was going to ask you to do it uh, once I got on. Yes, I'm here. It's Donald Cohn, author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. You should know Howie Klein. I'm going to say. Yes, I think, yes, I'm yes. I think I'm familiar with your work, Howie. Yeah. Um, and and why don't I do this? Why don't we wrap it up and then I'll send an email where we introduce you. Uh, l- let me give the uh, Feldman guarantee on this book. I promise you this will explain to you the difference between a public good and the privatization, why privatization has to be stopped. And uh, if this book doesn't explain things clearly to you, all the whole gamut, locally, you know, uh, bridges, tunnels, all the way up to Social Security and our military, the privatization of our military. If this book doesn't explain it all to you in, in a clear and concise way and light a fire, uh, I will reimburse you. That's how important this book is. It's called The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Buy 10 copies of this book and give them out as gifts for what? Easter? What's next? What are they What are they training? Uh, give them to your local city council member or your yes. local school board member or your, I mean, we want, we want, you know, we wrote the book to be an educational tool for people who are trying to, you know, make the world a better place. This book will, the thing that I really appreciate is how clearly it's written and it's, it's easy enough for somebody like me to understand. Please come back, Donald. Thank you so much. You bet. Look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. I'll leave the book up on the screen. Let's go to Los Angeles, where Howie Klein is standing by. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive candidates around America. And uh, he writes down with tyranny. It's good to have you back, Howie. What's going on in Texas? What, what, What do we have coming up in Texas? On March 1st is the uh, the election. The actual primary election uh, is March 1st, so so it's for real. And today... Did I lose you? He hung up on me. Are you there? Oh. Well, it's one of those days. Howie, are you there? Okay. Uh, let me do this. Let me call... Yeah, let me call Howie back. This is, you know, um, if I had a if I had a Valium, I'd be in. I'm staying sober, uh, not particularly happy today. Things aren't going my way the way I want them to. But uh, into the wrong phone. I'm so sorry. That's all right. We're good. We're good. What I was, what I was, I don't know what you heard, if anything, of what I said. Let's start from the beginning. All right. So basically, March 1st, which is coming up really soon, is um, the primary, the actual election of uh, candidates, especially in all red or all blue districts, which there are a lot of in Texas. 
the person who wins on primary day is going to go to Congress or whatever office they're running for. So um, today was the first day of early voting. So it's a really big deal. So I'm not sure if that's what you were asking me. Yeah, or what if are you we want looking at? Like what big, Bernie, yeah. Endorsing uh, some of the progressive candidates today. All of that. Okay. Well, so Bernie uh, this morning endorsed Greg Kassar, probably the best person running for Congress. Well, I shouldn't say the best, but one of the best people running for Congress anywhere in America. Uh, so Greg is incredible. Bernie recognized it. Bernie endorsed him. And, uh, and, and several other candidates as well. I mean, certainly he endorsed um, Jessica Cisneros, who's running against the Blue Dog in, uh, in South Texas. Uh, Henry Cuellar, who has the worst voting record of any Democrat. I mean, it used to be Cinema who had the worst voting record of any Democrat. Now it's Henry uh, Cuellar. And Jessica is running against him again. She nearly beat him last time. Uh, she's a young woman. She's, I believe she's 28 now. She ran against him when she was 26 and came within an inch of beating him. So she should probably beat him this time, especially since he's been, uh, his house and office were both raided by the FBI. He, I, I think we went into this last week about how he was uh, uh, fooling around with Azerbaijani uh, mafia, hmm. same people that Trump fools around with, and, uh, and, and they caught him. So, he, so they're not trying him yet. They're just putting the case together. And, and Jessica probably would have beat him anyway, but I think with that, it's going to, there'll be uh, curtains for him. Right. And how hard? So anyway, yes, a so, bunch of good candidates running. And uh, like I said, today is uh, the first day of early voting. Right. How hard is it to vote in Texas right now? Uh, well, it's, I, I hear it's, the hard, it's harder than in any other state, but I don't know if it's that hard for just... Uh, you know, just a regular person to vote. I mean, they they put up unconstitutional boundaries to to voting, but I don't know I don't know how many people that really affects. Right, and are we seeing candidates, for example, uh, Abbott? The governor is running for re-election, correct? He is, but there are a lot of people running to his right. Now, normally you think of a guy like Abbott and there's nowhere to the right of him. Right. And yet there are several candidates running to the right of him. I don't know how they can squeeze themselves in there, but they are. In fact, some of them are urging uh, Trump to withdraw his endorsement of Abbott because Abbott isn't, uh, isn't insane and right wing and extreme enough. Right. And Beto is running? For yes, Beto is running. Uh, like Democrat. Uh, personally, I do like Beto. I, I've known him for a long time. I think he's a great guy. He's a fun musician. And when he was in Congress, he didn't have a great voting record. He didn't have a terrible voting record. He had, you know, kind of something in between. Um, but, you know, he, 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 he certainly ran last time on the right issues. Um, so, that, you know, so he helped to expand the consciousness of a lot of people. So I like that about him. He, he's not... He's not my kind of candidate. Can anybody to, beat him? He's he's got more money. I'm looking at his campaign. Chest. No, no, he'll, he's going to win the primary. Uh, yeah. But the polling shows that Abbott would just you know destroy him in the in the uh, in the general. But there's a lot of time between now and November, and we'll have to see what happens. Right, right. The AOC said that Texas is purple and it's about to go blue. 
What are your What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> now you'd have to read me her exact quote. I, I can't imagine she would really say that unless she she was saying it in kind of her, her hyperbole. At, statewide, uh, Texas is, is a is a swing state, but it doesn't swing to the Democrats. It always swings to the Republicans. So I would say that it's it's uh, pink about to go purple, maybe okay. if we're lucky. But in a lot of districts, there have been there have been that's that and that's the good news. In a lot of districts, they've been moving uh, bluer and bluer. So that's good news. In fact, I was just writing a story about some guy named uh, Nimrod or something who's a Republican. You know, he's running on a typical Republican platform. You know, all all the nightmares that they run on. And one of them is uh, he's against um, sex trafficking. And, you know, he tries to blame it on uh, people crossing the border. Or that, that's, that's their angle. It's all about crossing the border. So it's a big issue for him. So his opponent leaked all these documents and, uh, and more to, uh, to the press over the weekend that shows that this guy who's so anti, uh, you know, he's a real family's value kind of candidate. He's a Trump nut. They're both Trump nuts, but this guy, the guy Nimrod, is more of a Trump nut. And it, it turns out, it included in, it was a, uh, a batch of videotapes from a hooker, or, or I should say a professional escort, who he was having sex with. Now, he denies this stuff, but there he is on tape. Um, so this just happened over the weekend. It, it, you know, just typical Republican nonsense. They were... Uh, he, he he was endorsed by the uh, the Dallas Morning News the other day, and, and not with, not with great enthusiasm. But basically, they just said, you know, if you want a Republican, this is the guy who can probably uh, come closest to to beating the Democrat. It's a Democratic held district, but kind of a swing district. And the Democrat who who's got it, a guy named um, Colin or- Orred, is he's a new dem. He's you know he, he's not again not terrible, not great. You know, I don't know why any anyone would vote for him, except uh, he's better than a Republican. That's that's about it. I want to ask you about the contest. You were asking people to donate to have a chance to win an autographed copy of Disturbing the Peace. Uh, and yeah, has, is the contest over? Why don't we plug this? The contest ended um, a couple of hours ago. Let's see. Is it over in Hawaii now? Yeah, it's it's over in. It was the contest ended at noon in every time zone. Okay. So, so it ended now. It's it's past noon in Hawaii, so it's officially over. Uh, however, it's going to take me some time. I thought it was going to be easy this time to compile the votes because Act Blue sort of does it for you in a way. But uh, one of the rules was you're only allowed to vote once, and a, a ton of people voted more than once so in a way we like it when they vote more than once because a vote is a contribution so they're giving money so that's explain, good explain what the, the contest is it involves uh, yeah, some it involves of our favorite candidates and their favorite musical artists yeah so instead of voting for somebody because their solution to the green new deal is or their take on the green new deal is great instead it was vote for them based on what music they liked. So, you know, somebody picked Prince, somebody picked ACDC, somebody picked Maz Def, somebody picked Joni Mitchell, all very, very different artists. And I was just asking if people wanted to, not if they didn't want to, to, you know, vote for a candidate. A vote means any amount of money. A dollar, I think the most anyone gave was $300. Right. And it doesn't matter if you vote 
if you give one dollar or three hundred dollars, that's one vote. Well, let let me give was, everybody. So the, the basic idea, there's a new book out. It's about Howie's first record company, 415. There's a new book out called Disturbing the Peace, 415 Records and the Rise of New Wave. And the way this contest works is you go to Act Blue and you enter the Disturbing the Peace contest. Right. You don't need more over. I'm sorry. You don't do it anymore because it's over, but you could have done it. Oh, you can't. It, 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 it oh, went for uh, eight days and, and it, it ended today. So, but if you voted by giving a donation to one of the candidates based hopefully on what they thought about music, then, uh, then the candidate who got the most votes, not the most money, but the most people who, who clicked on them and voted for them, uh, by, with a donation, th that candidate gets a thousand dollars from Blue America and, Randomly, a couple of people get uh, uh, get their name picked at randomly, as I said, and they win the book and, and a companion CD. So there's two levels of winners, the people who are doing the donating and the people who are getting the donations. Okay. So really just a fun kind of thing. Uh, a lot more people donated than I thought would. It was, it, was, it was enjoyable to watch it happening, especially in the last couple of days. And our goal was to raise $5,000 for our candidates with this fun little thing. And uh, we raised over 6000 Great. And I haven't looked in an hour, but, it, you know, it, it, it keeps going up. Even now that, the, that it's over, the page is still live and people are still donating. Great. They, great. they can't win, but the candidates still get their donations. Right. So that's great. Right. Yeah. So, so systemically. So don't ask one because I don't know yet. Okay. Although, you know, I know who's a ha uh, who looked like he's out ahead is Shervin. Uh, you, you've had yes, Shervin on your show, right? Yes, yes. But Shervin is pretty far ahead of everyone else, but not prohibitively far ahead. And he certainly had the most people who were voting uh, multiple times. So, you know, if someone votes six times, which many of his people did, um, that only counts as one vote. Even though they gave money each of the six times, it's just one vote anyway. So, uh, but, but a lot of the candidates, uh, had, uh, supporters doing that. I just noticed that Shervin had more of that than anyone else. So that's why I have to do this whole count by hand and it's excruciating and it's going to take two or three hours out of my life to do it. Right. But so, what are you going to say? I don't know if I, I have other good news. Yes. In those, along those lines. So a friend of mine called me today and, uh, who, who's selling her house. And she has been interviewing um, realtors to sell her house. And, and she didn't like any of them. So she asked me if I know a good realtor. And I said, I do. I said, someone who I think is perfect for you, who's, I know a lot of realtors, and this, this uh, guy is, is just right for you. He's fantastic. And I put them together, and she is going to use him. So that's really good. But even better, in some, on some level, he, he said he would give me a... Um, a referral bonus. So I said, well, you know, uh, you don't have to give me a referral bonus, really. I have, I, I, I'm, I'm upset. Don't worry about it. Right. He said, well, it's kind of standard, you know, that I would do that. So I said, well, how about this? How about donating it to some of the Blue America candidates? He said, absolutely. I'd be happy to do it. Fantastic. And I don't know how much it is, but he says it's four digits. That's that's a lot of money. So what are we looking at in November? Am I getting good news about the House? Am I seeing stories that redistricting is turning out to be 
better for the Democrats than the Republicans? That that the Democrats. You watch stories like that, but they're not true. So you're oh. seeing false stories. Oh, okay. So it's kind of a wash, uh, but some of the worst uh, some of the worst cases aren't uh, aren't in yet, like Florida, for example. And uh, so, so it, 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 these stories are premature and, and in some ways silly. And it's really because someone is writing and doesn't have anything better to write about. So they're writing, you know, to get people's hopes up and to get clicks. And it's not it just it, it just isn't true. It's just it's just bullshit. And, it's, and you've seen it over and over again from people copying each other. It's just not true. We don't know yet. My guess is it'll be, uh, you know, people who expected a huge Republican uh, win over this redistricting. Uh, are going to not see that. They'll see a, a slight Republican win, but, but that's all you need. You just need a, a few seats more for the Republicans. But rem- and, and, and one of the reasons, aside from states that haven't done it yet, um, like Florida, another thing is that a, a ton of states are in, in court over this. So there's going to be litigation. That, and I, just for example, in, in um, North Carolina, uh, the judges say, you know, this, no, this is not, this is a no go. And they put back the, the, the uh, primaries. So, you know, in other words, it, it, they, they put a couple of months more on while they can, uh, uh, you know, continue the, the, um, the court case. And this is, this kind of thing is happening all around the country, both in red states like North Carolina, where the legislator, the legislature cheated. Uh, and there are other states like that, but also in blue states, because uh, the, the New York state legislators did the same thing. They, except they screwed Republicans over and the Republicans are suing. So everybody's suing everybody. And anyone who says that they, they can see that uh, the Democrats did better in the redistricting than the Republicans did, it's, it just doesn't know what they're saying. It's just not true. We don't know yet. The truckers. Let's turn to the truckers. Yes, the truckers. <laughs> I have a quarrel with the left. We, why are the truckers on the side of the right wing anti-vaxxers? The truckers, the Teamsters, the unions. This is no, 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 no. The union, the the trucking unions in Canada are are absolutely against what's going on. Well, let me finish what I'm about. To by say. the way. Hang on, Only very, here. very few truckers. I, I mean, it, it's really not truckers. But, but here's what I'm asking you. Look at what a handful, a fringe element of truckers can do to the economy. Imagine if we had a labor union, a, the Teamsters, who stood up for all working men and women. We could shut this country down. We could have a general strike that would bring Wall Street to its knees and elevate the 99%. How are we not using the Teamsters? Why has the left abandoned the Teamsters? What? Huh? I didn't get the left. I didn't understand the left. Why aren't, when people talk about, you know, they want to change the government, they want to empower workers, it's the Teamsters the Teamsters, the Teamsters, the Teamsters. If you want to to move the ninety nine percent and and scare Congress and scare Wall Street, you need the Teamsters and scare the voters. Um, look, my, my the, the single stupidest person that I've ever had um, 
conversations with in my whole life. You know, I, I mean, more than just a couple of words, but actual conversations. Not, not that I've done done that in in number of years, but the single stupidest person, let's say the single stupidest person that I know is my brother, brother-in-law. He, he's, he's beyond, he's unbelievably moronic. I've known him since we were in high school and he's, he's a teamster and he's, he's a Trumper. Uh, he's not an anti-vaxxer. He did, he, he did get his vaccinations, but, um, but he's a moron on every, every imaginable level. I think the only reason he got, he got vaccinated was because his daughter, uh, was, um, in, in the hospital, uh, uh, very, very seriously ill. And he had, he had to, that's the only reason he did it as far as I can tell. Do you mind if I push but in back, any case, can I push back on what you just said? Out of love, about him being the dumbest person, you know, someone who's 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 <laughs> no, more dumb than I know. But this is exactly what's wrong with us. What you just said, yeah. and that comes from a place of love. We need the teamsters. Those are the people we should be reaching. That that's our muscle. That's our muscle. We could shut the highways down and fight. I think you. The wrong union, to, to be honest with you. There are there are progressive unions, and those, are not, and I don't know that the Teamsters is one of them. Well, I would assume that the Teamsters should be against Wall Street. I would assume the Teamsters should be against any corporation that wants to deregulate the highways and force the Teamsters union, the, te- the, the Teamster unions uh, leaders. Are, are fairly good so so yes but but that doesn't mean the rank and file is uh you know i think the rank and file is very 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 split between uh the right and the left uh whereas you go to the s s seiu and you've got there you have a, le- a left-wing union but it's a uh, cultural go- thing you it's you can adjust the culture by the leadership there you i would assume your brother-in-law is uh, stupid when it comes to cultural issues and that eclipses the economic My brother-in-law issues. has an EDIQ. So just assume that he's a moron about everything cultural or otherwise. Okay, so we but you could explain to we need him on the economic issues, not Want me to have him come on the show? No, I haven't spoken to him in 20 years, so <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to get a hold. Maybe stupid, but he's not that stupid to <laughs> to come on my show but am i am i barking up the wrong tree here when i say i i it may be i i I, if we had a count on the teamsters to save us i think we'd be in trouble well we need somebody with muscle the left who do we have why are you rejecting the seiu those would be the that was stein he quit he's no longer the head of seiu Right, but it's still a great union. And and who are their workers? The janitor uh, people well, in Las Vegas. Janitors. Yeah, I mean, but it, it's it's a gigantic service union. So whatever you know, just think of any service job, uh, and and there and and a lot of them will be SEIU. Right. They can shut down everything. You you want you're calling for a general strike. Uh, teamsters are you know they're important, but that's not a general strike. SEIU is maybe more of a general strike. Uh, one bridge. I don't see. I don't really see the kind of union um, solidarity that 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 you need for that kind of thing at this point. One bridge 
cost $360 million a day to our economy. That's right. One bridge. One bridge. Seems to me... To both economies, Canada and the U.S., or yeah, 360 million per day for the two economies. Seems to me the truckers have a lot of power. Those weren't truckers. There were some truckers, but but it was the, you know the vast majority of people that were on that bridge were not truckers. They were just right wing nuts. Okay, is Congress going to pass bipartisan legislation that would make being Paul Pelosi a crime? Are, are we going uh, to outlaw well, uh, Paul Pelosi's trading? Uh, yes, I believe that they, they, they may wind up. Be, I mean, there are a couple of different ways that the Paul Pelosi's of the world are fighting against this. So Paul Pelosi's wife ha- has this great idea from her perspective and his perspective to put a poison pill in it, which will which will also target the Supreme Court which would lead immediately to the Supreme Court taking up the case real fast and and declaring it an unconstitutional law. So that's Pelosi's idea. So it would be, uh, it's unconstitutional for the Supreme Court to have congressional oversight over their their finances. You're asking me. That's, they'll, they'll come up with something that will. Uh, I mean, remember, we're talking about a Supreme Court with five right wing justices. And, and that doesn't count the one that uh, Biden is going to put in, who's no who's not a liberal. You know, I mean, just because it's a black woman doesn't mean it's a liberal. And the right. person that Lindsey Graham and, yeah. and Jim Clyburn are insisting on is kind of a, a corporate shill. She's she isn't good. Biden would never pick someone good. I mean, he has he has a short list of three women. Two of them are, are really excellent, and they're both on there for um, uh, you know decoration. And then he has, he has one that's terrible. I mean, not as terrible as a Republican, but yeah, terrible. And uh, she's the one that's going to get the uh, nomination. Is this Childs? Is that who we're? Yes. Talking? And that Michelle. is. And and you write over down with tyranny that Lindsey Graham can guarantee 10 Republican votes. That's what he says. He can guarantee 10 Republican votes. I don't know if he can. Maybe he'll get 20 Republican votes because they're so happy to get a conservative uh, judge uh, who's a black woman. But um, and it was not it wasn't just Lindsey Graham, by the way. It's also Jim Clyburn, who apparently doesn't think it's enough that uh, Biden Whose whose ass he saved in the presidential primary that he that Biden let him pick the vice president and how terrible she is. So now he gets to pick an even worse uh, Supreme Court judge. Right, right. So anyway, the uh, you know this is going to be Biden's one uh, one Supreme Court pick, and you think maybe he'd want to pick someone outstanding, and instead he's just picking a hack. I mean, she you know you can make a case. That um, that she's surely the least qualified of of the of the three or four people who who, who he who he said were his finalists. You know, I mean, one of them is, would be one of the best members of the Supreme Court ever. She'd be incredible. I mean, it'd be amazing. So of course, Biden runs from her immediately. Right. That's Biden. That's who he is. Anyone who voted for him, and no offense, please don't don't take offense. But anyone who voted for him should have known. 
Certainly anyone who listens to this show should have known what to expect from Joe Biden because I said it. Oh, how many times did I say it? How many times? I, I, I voted from because I don't have your courage. I don't have your courage. How big a factor is Trump going to be? New polls are showing that he is no longer the face of the Republican Party. A year ago, people who were Republicans said they were a Trump supporter first and then a Republican. Now Republicans are saying I'm a Republican first and then a Trump supporter. He's not as powerful as he. He's a tiny bit less powerful. You know, maybe it's a trend that's coming that we that 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 we're going to see. But right now, I I wouldn't uh, take hope. Uh, in the, I, if you want to do something, uh, persuade some of your friends who don't vote to to register to vote. That would be more important than than counting on Trump not being powerful. Last question: Trump disappears. Yes, in a gory, gruesome way on TV. Yes. Does oh yes? Does the threat to our democracy disappear? Well, let's hope that he's on a train on a on a plane that goes down and it's all packed with people like Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis and uh, Gray, uh, what's his name, Hawley, and, uh, you know, all, as many as you can stuff on there. Can I? But no, can I put it does a- not. Um, it does not. Uh, the, the threat to our democracy does not disappear. What the hell happened? What the hell happened? I, I, I mean, you know, I never liked Republicans since I was a, 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 a young teen. And but it's never been like this. Or am I wrong? I don't Has know, it ever been like. Well, I mean, now we're, we're under the threat of fascism for real. Hey, you can't fill that entire. And that is coming from the bottom up. It's not just coming from the top down. It's a two way street. Are, are there any seats available on that plane? I, I have some. They're not political, but I just have a list. Of <laughs> oh, it's all politics, please. Oh, okay, because uh, Jeffrey Diamond from third grade, I'd like to buy him a seat on that plane. How we? <laughs> I have an enemies list, and I think everyone should keep an enemies list. It. Uh, you know, I, I, unfortunately, you never let me come on the Zoom session with you. It's always a phone thing, so people don't know what I look like. However, uh, a woman did a, a, a spectacular drawing of me uh, as a plumber, uh, pl- plunging uh, Trump's um, <laughs> a golden toilet bowl. <laughs> It's, uh, it's up on my blog, and if, if people want to see what I look like, and she really caught it. Although I do have to admit, when she sent it to me last night, um, I, I just I didn't see it was me. I just thought it looked really great, and I wrote her back and said, thank you so much. That's really good. I'll try to use it. And then I looked at it again, and about five minutes later, I wrote her back again. And I said, is that me? <laughs> <laughs> it's you. <laughs> I always but say it's, everybody's an intellectual in New York City until they need a plumber. You you don't realize how then they can call Howie. Yeah, you don't realize how little you have to offer our society uh, until you until you have to call a plumber. You realize the plumber or an electrician, everybody else is just posturing. Howie Klein, it's good to have you back. Is thank you, thank you. Uh, let's meet some candidates, uh, please. And oh, next candidate, a candidate day, whatever you want. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's it's great. Uh, go read Howie over at Down with Tyranny and give to the Blue America Pack. 
and go and go to the five a.m. post that I put up today, and you can see a picture of me as a plumber. Great, thank you, thank you, Howie Klein. Thank you, David Feldman. Talk Great. to you next week. Thank you, and follow Howie on Down with Tyranny. Follow Howie on Twitter at Down with Tyranny. David Cobb joins us from Humboldt County, up there in California, God's country. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket, and he also managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign in Texas. He's also an activist working for public banking and everything else that's good in this world. Howie Klein, I love Howie Klein. He is my moral compass. I don't, when it comes to voting, if he doesn't, he tells me who to vote for. I asked him about the truckers and the Teamsters. And he said something that I disagree with. I wanted to ask you. The left. We should get down on our knees and worship the Teamsters. We should we should when we see a Teamster head, we should throw rose petals. When you look at the power of a fringe minority of truckers, what they can do to Wall Street. Aren't they the key to our economic salvation? Uh, no, uh, although it's more complicated. So since you asked me a direct question, I'll answer no, they're not the key. But the, but uh, I like how I think that you're thinking. Uh, and that is that the truckers control one of the very few true power points uh, in this neoliberal economy uh, that could actually... Uh, frankly, uh, uh, bring this system to a halt. To that end, I would say, take a look at the International Longshore Workers Union uh, and what they've been able to do, especially uh, in the San Francisco Bay and Oakland uh, area, uh, which are politically much more uh, left progressive. The problem with the Teamsters, of course, is that they are not a progressive union. Uh, in fact, uh, they are uh, they are simply a uh, another example of a working class uh, uh, perception that says, "Now that I've got mine, like how can I individually make sure that I get the most out of it?" And I think what your uh, what this brings up, uh, David, is the difference between business unionism and justice unionism. Uh, there was a time before the uh, merger of the AFL and CIO where many people in organized labor said and meant an injury to one is an injury to all. And they organized unions in order to not only confront the power, illegitimate power of the ruling elite and the bosses and the capital class, uh, but they organized uh, themselves in order to make a challenge to genuinely restructure society into an uh, a, a economic democracy. Uh, the business, and that's what I will call uh, justice unionism. Mm -hmm. Business unionism happens when you say, uh, we are going to uh, organize ourselves for ourselves and only the members of our own union to get them extract the best possible deal 
uh, from the ruling class. We're not actually challenging the ruling class. We're saying, give us a few more crumbs. Now, I'm gonna be clear, I understand that. I don't think that that makes those folks my enemy or bad, but I have clarity that there is a difference profoundly between the orientations. Is that because of, of our government? You know, the the Teamsters were under a consent decree by the Justice Department. We tried to arrest Jimmy Hoffa. We did arrest him and we fixated on their corruption and didn't nurture and outlawed. You're not allowed to have communists or extreme leftists running a union. So our government kind of forced the Teamsters into the arms of both the mafia and the corporate state as opposed to the arms of the rank and file truckers. I think that that's uh, very much true. I also wanna, uh, like, look, it's complicated, but I will lift up the Teamsters uh, because I do remember uh, when I was, gosh, now, uh, when was it? But the last time that the Teamsters actually went on strike uh, and actually demonstrated the power of organized labor to to be uh, militant and confrontational. So, you know, there was, uh, and, and part of the reason for that, of course, was because the Teamsters control the the delivery system of goods and services so again your the way you began this conversation there are most of that premises most of those premises i agree with the one that i i just think that we have to 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 struggle for more clarity on is to have uh, an understanding about what are the politics uh, of the teamsters the real politics because one of the problems that I see in business unionism of the Teamsters and of 90% of organized labor is that they're still fighting the old battles of the 1930s and the 1950s uh, and losing mostly uh, uh, instead of confronting the new changing dynamics of automation, robotics, technology, uh, and the fact that we ha that we do in fact have emerging fascism in this country, objectively. Right. And if you were, if if you could imagine Bernie having won a landslide in 2020, he would have picked a cabinet, a, a, a labor leader to run the labor department a Justice Department that would have gone in and helped the unions become more radicalized, right? There, there are ways that our government can insist that the union leadership represents the workers and not the other side of the table. It's mind boggling how the Teamsters the, the guys and gals behind the wheels of these trucks will identify with their oppressor, their economic oppressor. It, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Listen, I, it is absolutely amazing. And I think that your, uh, uh, your, your premise, I mean, I'll, I'll fantasize with you for a moment and imagine uh, a, uh, U.S. president and administration that is actually pro-labor and pro-environment uh, and pro-working class people. Uh, and you're right, there is so much that could be done under our existing political, economic, and legal institutions. You know, one of the things that we have to come to terms with is that the Taft-Hartley Act uh, 
uh, literally prohibited ju- jurisdictional strikes, wildcat strikes, solidarity strikes, political strikes, secondary boycotts. I mean, there's a whole series of things that uh, the the Taft-Hartley Act um, did, right? That that a uh, a movement to dismantle the Taft-Hartley Act uh, would have been and and is in fact necessary. Uh, but even within the Taft-Hartley Act, there is so much that the Department of Labor could do that the. Uh, 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 that that again, as I overheard from Howie, like we have to be clear, Biden is not a friend of organized labor. Right. Uh, he never was. Uh, I don't think he ever is going to be. Uh, he postures, right. uh, and the the like. Biden does what Clinton does, which is fake left but run right. right. Uh, you know the 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 uh, so. What could we do if I could fantasize? Well, I would say, all right, well, first and foremost, let's have clarity uh, about how the system is currently operating and what the impacts are. Then we could begin to say, all right, let's immediately ameliorate the worst parts of this current system. Let's immediately begin to address the climate crisis. It's not coming. It's here and getting worse. So let's immediately begin that. Oh, but wait, let's also recognize that so much of the suffering that is happening uh, could uh, be uh, immediately addressed uh, by giving people the uh, the access to resources uh, to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to house themselves. And let's recognize that the climate crisis uh, and the social and racial justice crisis are intimately uh, tied together through deep militarism. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. military is far and away uh, the biggest polluter uh, and creator of fossil fuels, uh, uh, either on par or, or probably on par with uh, the fossil fuel industry. So we would say, let's like we will put a halt on the extractive uh, uh, po- uh, uh, mechanisms of creating and distributing energy uh, and say, all right, let's begin a true Green New Deal that actually merges the uh, or addresses U.S. imperial foreign policy and energy production and economics and economic democracy. Here's how it could work. We immediately halt the the uh, U.S. military industrial complex. Uh, we begin a massive uh, Green New Deal uh, for not just energy production, but also restructuring of how energy is produced and distributed. And we begin to create a uh, a whole new, uh, from the bottom up, local version, not of... Um, of unemployment offices, but of employment offices. And each employment office would go through a democratic process to say, what is it that this community needs? Do we need schools? Do we need libraries? Do we need hospitals? Do we need uh, uh, climate mitigation? Like a very clear and unambiguous menu of things that uh, could be chosen from to say, what is it that federal monies are going to be made available uh, a la, you know, this should sound familiar, right? Mm -hmm. Not unlike what uh, FDR did, only I'm saying you 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 allow local 
uh, communities to decide what those projects are. And get this, David, when I show up at my local employment office, there is a counselor who goes through a process to say, all right, let's find out what your skills are, what your interests are, because maybe I say my interest is uh, to be a major league baseball player, but then they find out I can't hit a curveball, uh, and they say, sorry, you can't play major league baseball. So that may be your interest, but what are your actual skills? So we go through a process to find that Venn diagram of my skills and my interests. Then we put in the third diagram, Venn di- part of the Venn diagram that says, here's what the community needs. So Mr. Cobb, you are, you're not required to work, you're allowed to work. We honor labor, you know, because I believe this with all of my heart, David Feldman, and all of the listeners of this program, people want to work. If by work we mean dignified human labor, if we mean being able to, to, to provide your gifts and your skills in such a way that will be productive and respected by others. Everybody wants to work. What we don't want is to have to show up at a job where we're so, where our labor is bought and sold on the market by a bunch of bosses who force me to do things that I either don't want to do and or I know is actually harming my community or the environment, but I have to because they've locked up all of the food and the only way I can get my basic needs met is to submit and subject myself to a soul-crushing wage slavery. I would be curious to my listeners, of my listeners, is there anybody out there who works for a living who doesn't find themselves being stripped of their dignity and their humanity? I'd be curious. I know doctors, lawyers, I'm trying to think, journalists, jobs that the professional class aspire towards, and... I find them more and more stripped of their humanity and their dignity. Let's return to the pieces of the puzzle. You have a grand unifying theory that explains the source of all our problems, and it's right behind you. The patriarchy, the, the uh, America's imperialism, capitalism, and white supremacy. You have had this on your left shoulder for the past six months. We reviewed... Can you explain most of our nation's ills through either patriarchy, imperialism, capitalism, and white supremacy? Is that how you is that how you see all the problems? It is because to me, this is the lens by which I understand how a very small ruling elite have created a power over dominator system of extraction and imposed it on all of the rest. So I do believe that this uh, uh, jigsaw puzzle behind me uh, actually helps me to understand how the current world is operating. So let me, let me argue with you, I agree with you, but let me okay. argue with you just for the sake sure. of doing a show. <laughs> let, let's take each piece. Sure. Patriarchy. Mm-hmm. As a, a leftist, what does the patri- what 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 does the patriarchy have to do with labor and and 
taking care of the 99%. How does that have anything to do with corporate greed and the inability of the 99% to act in lockstep? So uh, I'll engage the process, but before I do, I want to point out uh, uh, something that uh, um, John Muir said, and that is, as soon as you try to pull out one thing from the universe and really look at it, you're going to find it's connected to everything else in the universe. So I, I can talk about just patriarchy uh, in one way, but it's going to be connected to all of the other things. But so I just want to uh, preface it. Okay. Remember that to me, patriarchy is not merely uh, a gendered thing. Uh, it is a worldview that actually uh, looks at uh, a dominator system, uh, a, a power over rather than a power with system. Uh, it is deeper than mere uh, gender or uh, uh, mere sex. It is certainly connected to it, but it goes far beyond it. And as uh, the great philosopher and thinker uh, Bell Hooks uh, said in Understanding Patriarchy, we have to understand that patriarchy hurts everyone, men included. Uh, so the definition of patriarchy is, is, is really important. It's not, uh, it is a social system uh, around domination uh, and uh, ultimately the control of property and decision-making. And it is throughout history has historically been uh, gendered, uh, but it goes deeper than gender. So to me, the the way that I would uh, uh, answer your question about how it relates to it is that it is about the control of property and con the control of decision-making authority uh, in a power over way rather than a power with. I mean, way. you will hear the right wing say that women are just as bad as men and that women will go to war just as quickly as men will. And I mean, look, I mean, like, uh, 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 what I would say is to acknowledge that uh, it is a, uh, it is not such a gendered thing. I mean, give me Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, or Technic Tan or our Gandhi all with penises uh, before Condoleezza Rice uh, right. or, or Margaret Thatcher uh, or May Marjorie Taylor Greene or any of the others, right? I mean, it would, it's not hard to find real, uh, you know, horror shows uh, that are women any more than it's hard to find really beautiful human beings who are male. But the, so but, that but, is the point. But one quarter of our problem stems from men trying to dominate women. Yeah. Hetero, I mean, and I would, mostly I would, heterosexual men trying to dominate. Yeah. I, I, I would... I, I wouldn't say it's a quarter, but I would say because it, it doesn't work like that, but it is absolutely part of the mix. Right. And is that a an animal instinct for men? No. Is that In fact, I would encourage you, David Feldman, and any of the listeners of this podcast or viewers of the program uh, to take a look at what to me is a seminal uh, book. It's called The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler. Uh, and she persuasively uh, argues that for about 90% of the time that Homo sapiens sapiens have been on Earth, you know, somewhere between 100 to 200,000 years, most of the way that uh, folks organize themselves 
uh, were around a very uh, uh, matriarchal uh, power with uh, kind of system. I want to point out that the 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 male was not subjected. Uh, the male was lifted up and applauded for the masculine energy and what it could do, just as the feminine energy was lifted up and applauded for what it could do. It was not a either or, it was a both and. So uh, this idea that somehow patriarchy is genetic or, or natural, Rianne Eisler, again, persuasively uh, argues, absolutely not. In fact, for 90% of the time that Homo sapiens existed, that was not how we existed. So. I, I think that one could easily argue, and in fact, I will argue, human beings, homo sapiens sapiens, would not have survived had we not been cooperators. You know, this notion of, uh, 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 of homo economicus, uh, which is like uh, that we're all like self-interested and we only do what's in our own best interest and are very selfish, that's actually a flawed idea. Uh, I, I say, look at Homo solidaricus. Uh, the, 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 the reality is that human beings only survived by working together uh, uh, and ultimately division of labor. And we can go throughout the history. Well, and well, 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 let me so ask guys, you about well, white supremacy. Let me ask sure. you about white supremacy. There's no question that this country was founded on white supremacy, our whole economy is rooted in white supremacy. But uh, Dr. Farrar, do you disagree? Yeah, well, not from the very beginning. It was founded on agriculture. It was always a white supremacist country because in 1619, first slaves arrived. I, I, that's what I said, that this country was founded on white supremacy. Yeah, but that wasn't the founding principle. The founding principles was were indentured servant, The indentured servants were white. That's right. Right. And so were the prisoners that were released. Right. They came from quite a crowd. Right. Uh, you know, poor people, desperate people. Right. And um, not considered supremacist at the time, but just trying to get out of jail or survive. Right. Right. That That's true. Before we brought the slaves, we had uh, indentured servants who were from Britain and they were working off their debt uh, and indentured wives right. who were married for seven years and who were owned. And if they ran away, were beaten and returned for more servitude. So it was sort of a chattel, but and not property slavery. Is corporate America, though, is, is corporate America about white supremacy? If you're filtering this through class and the 99%, don't they, it seems to me, as, as, as bad as African-Americans and people of color have it in this country, certainly with the police uh, and our schools and hiring, mm -hmm. the people with capital in this country, are they about white supremacy or isn't it just about capital? Don't they want money? Yeah. And they don't care it's whose money they more. get. 
More and, for them. And that's why, David, I was telling you, like you can pull, as John Muir says, you pull right. one thing out and you find it's connected to everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you really want to understand it, I would recommend Cedric Robinson's uh, seminal book on racialized capitalism that really does a good job of explaining how the development, remember it goes uh, feudalism, to mercantilism, to the beginning of industrialism, right? Like, like the, the, the big superstructures uh, and how that worked. And the us and them was not actually based on pigment at that time. Uh, you know, the, uh, and I would argue that, and remember by the way, that whiteness uh, as we now experience it, uh, didn't even exist. Uh, you know, there was an otherness to be sure, and otherness would sometimes be reflected through pigment, but it was almost always reflected much more on language and culture and ethnicities, etc. White, uh, as a, a whiteness, uh, it was created in this country in order to prevent the development of class consciousness, uh, especially amongst the indentured servants and the enslaved Africans. Uh, And if you really want a taste of that, take a look at Bacon's Rebellion, which took place uh, in Virginia in what, 1600s, right? Uh, And that's where you literally had enslaved Africans and uh, runaway, or no, self-liberated uh, Africans and self-liberated indentured servants, right? Let's get out of this idea of runaway slaves because like we were not slaves, right? That uh, born that way, we were enslaved illegitimately, horrifically, uh, and then self-liberated, right? Like that's really what was going on there. So self-liberated people with my pigment and frankly, my ancestors, uh, 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 got together with enslaved Africans and and, uh, and engaged in a, uh, a a rebellion, a true rebellion against the class caste system. Because you could and, all Grace Jackson uh, did a segment on our show about this. You couldn't vote unless you own land. How about that? Oh, and get this. What- so so the first time that literally the word white privilege. Uh, is found in uh, in at least in, in, that I uh, have been able to determine was the reaction in the state of Virginia to Bacon's Rebellion. Because by the way, there was not only Bacon's Rebellion, that these uprisings were happening all across uh, uh, this, this, uh, this continent, right? Because that's what uh, uh, oppressed people do. They rise up, they resist. You know, Nat Turner was not the only uh, revolt. There were literally hundreds. Like it, it's, it's, but it, you can't say that because that inspires people to revolt now. But my point is this, that in reaction to Bacon's Rebellion and scores of others, the Virginia legislature, all very wealthy landowning white men, by the way, but they weren't called white then. Remember that they think they thought of, they were Englishmen. I tell us that's what they were. They were wealthy, noble Englishmen who had come here in order to extract wealth and steal the wealth and return it back to England, just like they had done in uh, in India. They were doing in the West Indies. They were doing all across the world. They wrote a series of laws that literally said that 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 white people would have certain privileges, the ability to do X and Z. In other words, they said, okay, you uh, poor white working class or poor class who has this pigment, we're gonna now make you white. 
And that means we're gonna lift you up over the enslaved Africans. You're better than them. Now, do you think they brought them all the way up to the level of the ruling elite? Hell no. And I often tell people who are confused by whiteness, if you think that whiteness and the economic system uh, are somehow different, why don't you go to a country club, knock on the door and say, hey, I ain't got no money, but I'm white. Can I come swim in your swimming pool and see how they treat you, right? Like make no mistake about it. The, the wealthy ruling elite have absolutely no illusion that they are unified with these poor crackers who they are manipulating. My cousins, by the way, who are deeply confused about uh, class consciousness uh, and around race. My point is this. You cannot talk about capitalism and uh, without understanding white supremacy, and you can't really understand white supremacy without understanding what capitalism is. is. These are inter, not only they, are they interrelated, they are inextricably linked. It's not even like they're bound together. It's like it's a mush that is literally an alloy, if you will. And at the same time, in the United States in the 30s, as Adolf Reed talks about in the book Hammer and Ho, there were unified, powerful, militant struggles of white and black sharecroppers together, organized by the Communist Party as a united group. Now, the blacks, when they were caught, were tortured more, more. It was a continuum. However, they were, in, they were unified and powerful because they realize their class connection as sharecroppers, the same system. And so periodically it broke down. And and you earlier, you know, you talked about organized labor and I talked about the difference between justice uh, unionism and business unionism and the AFL and the CIO and so forth. If you really want to understand organized labor through the ends that the lens that Dr. Fraud uh, is talking about, take a look at the Knights of Labor founded in what the 18, like the, the mid 1800s uh, that operated uh, very clearly uh, as a true cross racial class conscious entity that understood the, 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 the like how that operated, right? Like I, and remember, this is before Das Kapital is even published. The point is that if one has a consciousness around class, and I don't mean socioeconomic class, I mean the classification of whether you own capital or your labor is treated as capital. And to me, that's the lens. Like, like when you understand racialized capitalism, right? When you understand that how white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and settler colonialism as power over dominator extractive systems all operate together, that is a lens by which you, I can now understand everything that's happening in the world. I can understand everything that's happening in this country. And unless I have that lens, mostly I get confused because mostly things just don't make sense. Like why the hell is all of this stuff happening? If you have the lens, of these interconnected, this interconnected worldview, then it actually gives you the ability to understand not only what is happening and why, and then once you understand how the world actually works, 
then you can finally begin to say, then what can we do to change it? Because the point of it all, as Karl Marx so famously said, is not as the philosopher who have always done is to just understand the world. The point is to change it. But if you don't actually see how it operates, most efforts at changing it end up at best just floundering. Right. It's what we're talking about is exploitation and everything that facilitates it and the necessity for fighting against exploited labor and right. cooperative labor is what we're substituting. So people work together and there aren't those hierarchies. Right. You know, it, it began when they tried to enslave the Native Americans, but they didn't cooperate. You know, they they killed themselves and they wouldn't do it. Right. And so... Um, let, let's let's do this. Let's wrap up with David Cobb and then we'll bring in Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you. Really interesting conversation. David Cobb, how do people contact you? You know, uh, it's, uh, I am on Facebook at David Keith Cobb. You can also hit me up at Cooperation Humboldt. Uh, cleverly, that URL is cooperationhumboldt.com or cooperationhumboldt.org. Uh, I make myself uh, pretty readily available. Uh, so, you know, you can find uh, even my direct uh, contact information uh, either on Facebook or on that site. Uh, so I appreciate the conversation. And I'm so sorry, Dr. Broad, I'm not going to be able to stick around. But one of these times we ought to figure out a way to get all three of yes. us in the conversation. Yeah, maybe do an hour together. I know I speak on behalf of Dr. Harriet Fraud when I say I wish I was in California with you today it yeah, is new york yeah. is a just, thank you david cobb let's go downtown we're dr harriet fraud thank you david cobb let's go downtown where dr harriet fraud is standing by she is the host of a new show on wbai pacifica radio at 2 30 on wednesday what is the name of your show interpersonal update interpersonal update as well as capitalism hits home and it's not just in your head. Welcome back. It's good to see you. Thank uh, you. Very quickly, uh, it's Valentine's Day. Yeah. Do, do Americans know what love is? Do we have any idea how to love somebody unconditionally without it being transactional? I don't think so. <laughs> I, you know, we're you know we are trained to not to do that. There's nothing cooperative and loving about the society that really helps us except our early childhood education where children are taught to get along and to share and so on. And they're quickly uh, shown that that doesn't fly. However, people can manage to be unselfish and kind and not sac sacrificial, but helpful and in solidarity with each other in a deep way, in spite of capitalism around us. But it's it's an unusual thing. And I think it depends on, <clears throat> excuse me, working out a relationship. It depends on trusting enough that the partner that you have wants the things that are best for you, that you want in yourself and you want from your partner the things that they want from themselves so that you can, you challenge each other to be a better person. Right. And I think, you know, I've been married for 55 years. That's a long time. And, um, you know, I, I think that that working hard and commitment is something that's hard for Americans rather than individualism. 
But I think marriage is about commitment. Marriage is about seeing the other person as in this with you and willing to negotiate and work it out and hear from you and improve and grow. You've talked about how much better sex was uh, in Eastern Europe, not personally, but you said that we have have, uh, studies that show that sex was better in Eastern Europe. Under socialism. And they had a great comparison, people in the GDR and people in West Germany. And when the wall came down and East East Germans came to West Germany, the reporting, oh, these women have much better sex because they're not worried about the economics of it. You know, I better have sex with him. I better marry him. He's got some money. Do we know what family values were in Soviet Russia to, and Eastern Europe was there some I it, what was did they push the idea of a nuclear family a man and a woman and that's the backbone of our society was no. that no they didn't I mean they had families however one of the things they did at the beginning less further on under Stalin sadly enough is first of all one of the first things they did in 1917 is they declared that no one was illegal, that all children born in or out of wedlock were full Soviet citizens and nobody was to be discriminated against. They also gave women rights for the first time. And they had the first woman cabinet minister in the world, Alexandra Kolontai, who had been their minister of propaganda because she spoke 10 languages and was amazing. And You know, they had a commitment to a changed family, a new person, a new family in the beginning. It was very, very important. They had cosmonauts, women cosmonauts. Early on, women were Early on. And that women's job was outside the home, as well as, unfortunately, in it. Under Stalin, women were to work outside the home and do all the housework within it. However, they got women to work outside the home because they provided communal kitchens where at the factory you could pick up a meal for your family. They provided communal childcare centers, which were excellent, and groups for slightly older children, young pioneers outside of school and in the summer. So they took over a lot of the functions of the family. So the people who say the people who say the family is the backbone of our society tend to be those who don't want to pay taxes, who don't want they 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 want want they don't want the government taking care of the families. They want the woman or the man, but preferably the woman staying home and raising. They don't want women working because if women work, the government has to take care of the kids. Well, I think they want what. Hitler tried to accomplish, which is the fascist feudal family, where the woman works full time outside the home and has to do all the household work within it. You know, that's what they wanted. And that's what their ideal is now, too, that the the woman takes care of their emotional needs, their sexual needs, their children, their household duties, their cooking, cleaning and so on, and their social connection with other people and also works full time. And so that young women have changed their minds. It's women who now refuse 
marriage. More, much more than men. Right. And I once said to my daughter, you know, when we, when I was young, they had this old saw telling you to be a virgin. Why buy the cow if you could get the milk for free, right? Mm-hmm. You know what my daughter said to me? Hey, you know what we say? Why keep a pig in your house if all you want is sausage? Right? <laughs> That's and and, so happy and Valentine's Day. Happy right? Valentine's Day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So did they demonize? Do we see the demonization of homosexuals in Eastern Europe? No, they didn't demonize it. One of the they were some of the first. Now, under Stalin, things were changed. But they were some of the first people to accept homosexual rights. And, you know, Putin is trying to change all that. But they, because the idea of homosexuality was condemned, because if you are saying that your sexual assignment of um, genitals determines your life and your work, and your place in the society, then gay men, what are they? Right. You know, or women. Then that idea that anatomy is destiny, just like if you're born black, you're born to serve, was the racist equivalent. If you're born a woman, you're born to serve men. Right. And that disappears if people are of people's gender don't match the social roles that they're assigned. And so they condemn homosexuality. The truckers. I've been saying for two weeks, you want to see strength and power. It's the truckers. It was the truckers. The CIA hired the truckers to destroy Allende. If you want to bring a country to its knees, it's the truckers. What do you think of the left condemning the truckers in Canada? I think it's an outrage because I think whoever gets the working class wins. And this is a militant, angry working class. And a working class that I've been studying truckers because it got in my mind. They've had a between 21 and 50% decrease in their wages. They passed a law that you could only be on the road 11 hours and you're paid for your time on the road. Well, if they're waiting around for a shipment, too bad for them. They don't get paid. If you know, there's no parking in America for yeah. truckers. They have to have, uh, have to circle around, yeah. or they have to wait somewhere. Right, and then they don't get paid. Right, so that they've had their wages decimated. And I think the left was wrong because I think where you have a group of angry people, you want to find out tie into that anger and tie it to what really needs to be changed. So I think if you said to the truckers, the problem is an inadequate healthcare system. We don't have enough hospital space so that you don't have to take the vaccine. And when you get sick, there's a place for you rather than you're throwing other people out of a room or taking up hospital space. So but we that's should have Canada, more. though. They have a better health care. They have a better. They, they have an excellent health care system, but they have insufficient hospitals for right. everyone. And if you had sufficient hospitals, you could take a lot more chances. Plus, you could understand that they are sick of anyone of the government telling them what to do and passing these laws that um, decimate their wages. However, they don't understand that the government are pawns of the rich. 
And so that's who should come down also. But you'd have to give them the support of, we support your anger. Mm-hmm. We think it should be directed towards the corporations and not just the government. Who buys the government in the United States? Corporate America. Wait a minute. But I think that it's wrong. And the reason it's wrong, because I think the left is confused in the United States. The left doesn't try to win. Because if it did, you court the working class and take them where they are. But instead, they want to be moral. Do what they think is moral. That's why they gave Whoopi Goldberg such shit. So she made a mistake. Big deal. But they're into the moral purity rather than winning and stopping exploitation. Right. So I think it's a huge error what they've done about the truckers. And I feel strongly about it. It's a failure I, of the left. I, I could thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I've been saying this for 10 days that, you know, I don't want to beat up on the left. I, I don't. You know, they do a good enough job of it all on their own. And I consider myself to the left. Me but too. but when somebody says to you, uh, you know, how do we get a, a social safety net? Because Manchin just won't. Uh, oh, I think if you had the truckers on your side. Yeah. I, I think you, you could. had the Democrats on your side and gave his address and had people flooding it the way Trump did and had people going down to West Virginia and informing all the people around there just what they've done to the people of that state and picketing his house and all the rest. It come around one bridge, one bridge between Canada and the United States cost three hundred and eighty million dollars a day. And and for the for I'm not attacking the left, but for anyone to to say, oh, how we, we just can't get mansion on board. Oh, F that reach out to the truckers, get the truckers, the Teamsters on your side, you could bring corporate America to its knees. You can shut this. Allies, they're workers too. And you know, one of the reasons that they're angry is they used to have a very wonderfully militant union and they don't anymore. The Teamsters was a wonderfully militant union. And as most unions have weakened, so has theirs. But I think- Well, they the, the, whole, the Justice Department purposely infiltrate yes. it? because it turned out the Teamsters were just as corrupt as corporate America, and we can't have that? That's right. They infiltrated. But the reason they infiltrated and destroyed that union was Jimmy Hoffa was corrupt, but he delivered. Mm -hmm. It was a militant union. They don't care if you're corrupt as long as you don't deliver for labor. And he did. Right. I think uh, the American who condemn the truckers are making a huge mistake that they are laborers who are angry and who have been cheated and we need to have solidarity we don't have to share their position that nobody should get a vaccine but we solidarity with them it it really gets down to lack of focus lack of priorities and i don't know if you've noticed this but uh professor harvey jk and Alan Minsky from the Progressive Democrats of America put out a press release calling for a 21st century economic bill of rights in honor of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who Mm -hmm. also issued an economic bill of rights. 
And there's a lot of commentary out there about everything that's not important. But if you look at what Harvey and Alan point out, there are about six points. The right to a job that pays a livable wage, the right to quality health care, the right to a complete education, the right mm -hmm. to affordable housing, the right to a clean environment. And number six is the right to a secure retirement. Those are the six points. Now, I know that there are other things to talk about, but those six things, if you're not talking about those six things, then you are in the service of the corporate oligarchs. This That's should sad. be the all, these six things, along with peace and tranquility and and no more wars. These are the six things that, that we should be talking about, not mask mandates, not whether or not the vaccine is safe, not whether or not Joe Rogan should be saying the N word. Uh, we know he shouldn't be saying it. The, you know, what are we talking about here? The, 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 so when when you see the truckers and you're confused and you're not focused and you're on you think you're on the left, you go, oh, they're anti-vaxxers. No, you effing moron. They're frustrated workers right. who are your allies mm -hmm. and they have and muscle, you that. moron. That's right. And they attach to that cause, which really is a displacement for their anger. However, their anger is genuine and they are workers and we need them and they need us. Yeah. And it's, it's a real mistake. Can you imagine? Well, I, the, the Bobby Kennedy and yeah. the Justice Department imagined a, a powerful Teamsters Union, and they set out to destroy it. That was Bobby Kennedy went after Jimmy Hoffa, not because Jimmy Hoffa was in bed with the mafia. Bobby Kennedy and Joseph Kennedy were in bed awesome. with the mafia. That's right. And they made their money through selling illegal liquor, liquor during Prohibition. So Mr. Wonderful there was against Jimmy Hoffa because he delivered to right. his members. He was corrupt, but he delivered. That was his crime. The 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 power powerful people are threatened by other powerful people. You're, if you're in the mafia, if you're a bootlegger, you you know how important trucks are. Right. And he was servicing the corporate elite, stripping Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters of their power. By the time Nixon was president, they they had. Uh, put uh, the Teamsters under a consent decree with the Justice Department. They couldn't make a move without the federal government looking over their shoulder. And because of Taft-Hartley, as you've pointed out, I didn't know this until you told me, you can't have a leftist running the Teamsters. You couldn't have a, a, a pit bull of a, of a Marxist running the Teamsters. Can you imagine if the Teamsters were run by someone who ideologically, to the core of their ideological bones, believed in the power of the 99%. Can you imagine how menacing that would be to the, the, the corporate oligarchs? And this is why 140 million Americans are living at or below the poverty line. This is why.
because That's we right. don't have a labor movement in this country. Because they, the leader, Philip Murray, went along with the uh, with McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee and threw out the spark that kept that the, the unions militant, the leftists, the communists, and the socialists. They were all thrown out. And that was the backbone of union militants, the idea that labor does all the work, we should get all the proceeds and we should push. And that's what started gutting the labor movement. It's only now that it's starting to be resurgent as people even outside the AFL-CIO are organizing because they see they're shafted. They're essential, but they're not paid like they are. So speaking of the AFL, how about the NFL and the Super Bowl yesterday? Where is labor? Where where is the celebration of labor when when we watch the Super Bowl to see mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost doing a commercial for Amazon and to get away with it without anybody raising an eyebrow? The, the biggest union buster in American history is Amazon. Nobody has fought unions more fervently and successfully than Amazon. Scarlett Johansson and, and uh, Colin Jost, they have all the money, glamour, and success one could possibly ask for, but they had to take that extra step and do a commercial for Amazon. Which side are you on, boy? You, they told us which side they're on. Right, they're on the side of their own money. There were 100 million people watching that Super Bowl. They wanted to get their names out, and they didn't care if they were allied with the worst name in labor history. And I should say, well, not labor history, but current labor. I should say, because it's instructive for Americans, that many of the Amazon unions in Europe are organized. Right. They're organized because... They have a communist party and a socialist party and anarchist parties and a left consciousness that won't let them get away with that. Right. Just like McDonald's in Denmark pays $24 an hour to start. Okay. Right. They want that. Meanwhile, Christian Smalls, AmazonLaborUnion.org, look up Christian Smalls and send money. He's organizing the union at, in, on Staten Island. Colin Jost just bought the Staten Island Ferry for $250,000 with Pete Davidson because I'm just a kid from Staten Island who's who bought as a vanity project the Staten Island Ferry that was being dry docked. Meanwhile, out in Staten Island, Christian Smalls is in the cold getting hassled by the cops because he lit a fire in a trash can to warm his hands as he tries to unionize the, the Amazon workers on Staten Island. Yeah. That, I mean, it, it's well, there was a time in this country when Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson would know that it's unseemly to lend your name it would be bad publicity for them. And if all they care about is their own name, they wouldn't do it. Because that's what they care about. Culturally, though, there ha- you know, and, and everybody in this country immediately goes to the default of uh, censorship, cancel culture. Uh, no, values. I'm just, I'm not saying 
cancel Scarlett Johansson or or Colin Jost. I'm just saying values. You need, Amazon, that's more like it. You need yeah. to know good versus evil. You need to be held accountable culturally for your choices. If Colin Jost does a commercial for Amazon, he's anti-union. He went to Harvard. He knows who Jeff Bezos is and what Amazon is. He's he can't say I didn't know that Amazon is a is a union busting. No, of course not. It's just that within this culture there isn't the left sensibility that would make that shameful and therefore make it bad for their careers and they wouldn't do it. We right. don't have that consciousness that a left does. They do in Europe, which is why they have unions in the Amazons in Europe. What I don't understand with Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost is they make their money off the 99%. Yes, they do. Just just from from a business sense. But the 99% is not conscious enough to bo to boycott them for this. And so they they're not even thinking about it. It's not on their radar because it's not pushed on their radar by the 99% who stand up and make them ashamed. Right. And I'm not even calling for a boycott. I'm just saying shame on you. Just shame. Shame. Sure. I agree, shame, but I think one of the reasons that they do this is they don't give it a thought. It's not in the culture. How could you not know? How could you be in that much of a, a, a bubble to not, I, I guess the whole, I guess the 99%, as you said, the 99% is in the same bubble. Exactly, exactly. And they're not conscious of exploitation, their own and others. I, you they're know, I get- strong enough. I got, we have to wrap it up, but you know, I, I got complaints from listeners years ago when I questioned Comic-Con. This is where people go and their identity is linked to their favorite television shows, their favorite graphic novels, the, the Marvel universe. And I, a vast preponderance of my listeners wrote to me, how dare you uh, attack Comic-Con? Uh, and I said, well, you know, I understand people need to belong to a tribe and they need an identity. But why do you turn yourself into walking billboards yeah. for Hollywood? Why would you embrace? It's the same thing with the NFL. Why are you a billboard for the New York Mets run by this hedge fund manager, Cohen, who should be in prison for insider trading? Right. The guy who owns the Mets should be in prison for insider trading. Tra trading. Why would you root for the Mets? Well, I think it's, look, insider trading is something that Trump would have bragged about, as well as not paying his taxes and going bankrupt six times to foil his creditors and right. cheating them out of their money. That there is, you know, that there's one ethic that is very dominant that says grab it grab it all for yourself and so those people are admired and we don't have the antidote to their poison as a popular movement yet that has captured americans and so that they're aware of this yeah look up stephen cohen uh majority owner yeah. of the new york mets sack capital advisors worth about two billion and 
was uh, either confessed or was convicted for insider trading and should have gone to prison. But we don't. Why, why, why lock up? A, yeah. Yes. We, we have to wrap it up. Your show okay. is Wednesdays at 2.30 on WBAI here in Manhattan. And, and people should listen to Capitalism Hits Home and It's Not Just In Your Head. You're also a, a therapist. How can Indeed. people contact you? Because everybody I'm needs help. I'm a psychotherapist and I'm a hypnotherapist, actually a mental health counselor and hypnotherapist. H-Fraud, H-F-R-A-A-D at gmail.com or you. on my website, harrietfraud.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. When we come back, we're going to talk with Professor Adnan Hussein, host of Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless podcast. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. <laughs> I'm a poor scene gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. Suspicious. Please pardon me if I'm somewhat repetitious, like a hand in a glove. I'm a pig for love. Yeah, I'm a pig for love. I'm a pig for love. Thank you so much, Professor Mike. Steinel, who will be with us a little later. I got it right. I can't. I, can't. I finally said it. 
I keep saying a little later, a little later. Joining us is Professor Adnan Hussein. He is the host of the Mudgeless podcast. I'm going to ask who's on that this week. And of course, Guerrilla History. Okay. Guerrilla History with Henry Huckamacki. He is also chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And let's talk briefly about the truckers. I am getting uh, emails from certain people accusing them of being undemocratic, of being tools of the right wing. Professor uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud was just saying the left should be embracing the truckers. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think um, the left should be uh, embracing activist labor struggle. Uh, they should be foregrounding worker conditions. Um, and I think if we want to call into question some of the uh, aspects of the public health mandates, the real focus of those should be on the fact that governments have not prepared the conditions that are necessary for people to observe and uh, obey them without, you know, financial losses and all kinds of um, other issues and problems and consequences that have really been kind of off the table. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about here in uh, Ontario and in Canada more broadly, we've had two years to prepare schools to be better ventilated, to have smaller classrooms, to provide PPE uh, by the you know, school districts uh, to all of the employees and students. Um, it seems as if mask, you know, there was a mask shortage, you know, for a little while uh, during the o Omicron surge and that there was just this assumption that vaccination would solve all problems and that would be the cheapest solution, you know, rather than doing the structural things that are necessary. I mean, from the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, it's been a fight to get sick days, you know, um, paid sick leave in Ontario. It's been difficult to get a hold of PPE you know, masks and other things. Everyone's had to finance these pretty much themselves. And so there are clearly a lot of things the government could have done if it wanted to have its citizens obey public health mandates. Um, of course, we're not even talking about UBI and, you know, all of those. I mean, we had some sort of a program here in Canada it was a little bit better than in the United States, but still nothing like what was sufficient. So I think the left critique has to be not just focusing on the mandates uh, and those difficulties with public health strictures that people are tired of, acknowledge that they're tired of it and demand that the government actually address the conditions that are needed to make it possible for people to weather the pandemic adhering to these public health mandates without you know, their kids never getting, you know, a chance to get a proper schooling um, or to feel that they are safe. Uh, I think that's the real crux of it. Do the you... actual truckers themselves, however, if you want, maybe we should start putting truckers uh, in quotation marks because it doesn't necessarily represent the trucking industry as a whole, either the professional kind of organizations or the unions and associations or really frontline actual truckers, the vast majority of whom are, you know, vaccinated. 90%. Uh, 
Yeah, 90%. So who exactly um, is this, uh, you know, representing and what kind of political goals? When you look at that in a little bit more carefully, you see that it was these, you know, kind of breakaway Western parties, far right sorts of groups that have used the anger, uh, frustration and inequities of the pandemic uh, to rally around um, a very abstract and individualized idea of freedom. Um, to achieve a political purpose of trying to bring down the Trudeau government. And, hey, I'm with you. You know, I would love to see the Trudeau government and its neoliberal policies um, dissolve. And in its place, um, you know, a a government that actually cares uh, about workers. Um, But I don't see that as the design of these protests. So, so Trudeau, well, I as I understand it, we've got to be very careful about how we support them. Trudeau accused these truckers of being racist and of being uh, not too bright instead of. Well, it's almost as if they were going around in blackface. Right. You know? Yes. Like Mr. Trudeau got away with. So I think Bernie would have said. Well, what would Bernie have said if he were the prime minister of Canada? How would he address what would be the because he would he would say these people are aggrieved. They are channeling their frustration against the wrong organizations. They're being exploited by the people they drive for and we want to help them. We, we we support them. They need more money. They need better medical plans. And we support the truckers. And he would go out there and meet with them and listen to them and hear their complaints and show solidarity with them. I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the problems is that... Um... Trudeau was very dismissive at the beginning um, and, you know, really didn't acknowledge that there might be some genuine uh, grievances and frustrations. Earlier this last week, um, he made a speech that um, seemed to at least rhetorically be a little bit better at acknowledging that everyone is really tired with, uh, you know, the pandemic. Um, So instead of just... um, you know, during the kind of uh, <clears throat> moral shaming, you know, these people are violators and they're not able to adhere to something, you know, standards that we're all adhering to and make them, you know, this excluded, uh, shameful um, you know, group, uh, you know, acknowledge that everyone is really tired by the perduring of the, of the pandemic. And, um, But then as he tried to do, it was just rhetorical, is tried to say, well, you know, that's why we had to come together. And that's what most people have done is try and come together um, and protect one another. Um, But of course, the missing component, because he's uh, just a pure neoliberal, is and what can government do to help people adhere to these things? And I think Bernie would have, as you said, addressed those grievances, shown solidarity, would have met early on, gone out, acknowledged that this was a long running kind of set of grievances, not just because of the pandemic, but because of changes in the trucking industry um, and championed getting a fair deal for truckers. And I think that might have really 
um, change the direction of this. Now it's become a complete culture war, of course. And so right. you have protests and counter protests over the weekend. Kingston, my town itself, had a slow convoy that went through the downtown honking and so on, including, uh, an, a, you know, a protest that was to take place in front of City Hall, uh, showing support for the convoy and um, the repeal of all the local health mandates that we have. And there appeared a counter protest of about 100 to 200 people that actually blocked the convoy. And I think that's what we're ending up getting is this kind of political battle rather than addressing the real issues. Um, I can imagine. I, I remember Bernie on Fox that one time with Brett Baer. And, it was terrific. And, yeah. and, and, and it was in Pennsylvania. And it was almost as though he was being we, we had said it looked like Fox was setting him up because they <laughs> wanted him to get the nomination. But, I, you know, he, he you don't set Bernie up. He's right. And if you give him a plat, I think his platform on Fox was the only place where he actually got to state what he was for. And I could see him saying to the truckers, look, I'm not going to discuss the vaccines with you. You're not scientists. You're, you're not doctors. Uh, I, I'm not going to. This is not up for discussion. You need to get vaccinated. And that's it. What I will discuss with you is trucking and the and what what you're going through and how do I put more money into your pockets and make sure that you're uh, being taken care of the truckers the uh, 90 percent of the truckers are vaccinated 90 percent of the truckers would support that the power in labor the power in unions is terrifying does it send a chill down your spine when you think of how easy it would be oh, yeah. for labor to just <clears throat> grab hold of the power. I, I keep bringing this up. One bridge mm -hmm. is is three hundred and fifty million dollars a day. Yeah. Does and it winds, scare you as a leftist? Yeah. Does it scare you as a leftist where you go, oh my God, there's so much power in the union, all we need to do is exercise it. Well, the system is so fragile in some ways. I mean, we should know that because of, you know, what happened when the Evergrande, you know, ran aground in the Suez Canal and immediately you have price spikes and shortages exacerbating the problems already because of uh, disruptions of production during the pandemic. Then you had the shipping and transport. Um, this just-in-time distribution networks are meant to have very little slack, very little redundancy because those are costly and you go for the absolute most efficient but that assumes everything goes right and so it seems like there are all of these choke points in the global distribution network that dock workers truckers uh, rail workers could so easily disrupt the entire system i just think that the emergency powers act would have been invoked a lot earlier i mean you know trudeau just invoked the emergency powers act um, um you know, a couple of weeks ago, if it was genuinely targeted, wide scale and with a worker's agenda, I think um, 
we might have seen a lot quicker action by, you know, the government to protect those industries. And that's what I'm kind of concerned about. But obviously, labor needs to start testing in a more direct way. Um, corporations and the governments that are absolutely beholden, you know, to the corporate interests with precisely that. Instead, what we've got is, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of Lollapalooza, you know, kind of situation, you know, it's a kind of party out there with no real demands. I mean, the demands that they're making are like these wild political demands of dissolving the government and putting in place some new committee with the Senate and getting the governor general to declare, you know, the, the government prorogued. I mean, it's all zany, fantastical. And even if you if you read the um, actual petition or document that they have. It's got faux legalism. It, it sounds so strange and unrealistic, to be honest. Um, those aren't demands. Those aren't real demands. It's, it's almost um, as though the CIA infiltrated the left to come up with these ideas. Well, yeah, we've seen, you know, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the um, historic uh, guidelines for how to infiltrate from the CIA, the 10 things you should do. Um, but, I, you know, what's interesting oh, I, I, about I haven't that, seen that. What is that? Oh, uh, there's like a, a document that's circulated. I'm forgetting exactly the details um, of it, but I, I read it about a year or so ago, and it's something from, I think, the 19... Uh, it might even be the late 1950s, and it's a document about basically trying to disrupt... Um, you know, left movements, how to, um, you know, obfuscate about process and, you know, make everything really slow and difficult to agree on, you know, propose kind of more extreme, you know, suggestions. Oh, um, you know, so there was a whole variety of techniques in order to fragment and defer coalescing around a clear agenda that could be achieved uh, in order to undermine these 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 groups it gets down i get I, I apologize for getting animated here but the dirty word is money they want one thing the other side money and they use that that's their weapon money because that they get power and money if we're not fighting for the same thing as they are. It's like playing football and they're going after the football and we're going after a hockey puck. It's just, you have to go after the same ball that, that, they, that they want. We're not going after the same ball. We, we, we've complicated everything. It should be money. We want their money. Why can't we get a politician who will like Bernie, who will just say, we're coming for your money. We want your money. That's what we want. Why can't we say that? Well, I, you know, Bernie did say that. And, you know, uh, what happened to him? I mean, it was very clear he was about uh, increasing taxation on on the rich and um, delegitimizing the idea that. If you have a billion dollars, it actually really belongs to you. I think he was doing quite a good job with this absolute focus on the 1% upon the billionaires uh, to suggest that had to be redistributed. I mean, I think it was very clear, and that's why um, some people were quite um, 
I guess, uh, uh, unnerved and um, concerned um, because they thought such a message wouldn't be popular and thus he wouldn't beat Trump. Others were genuinely concerned because it was going to target them and those who uh, they were, you know, receiving their support from, uh, like the establishment politicians. And between the two of them, uh, between those two groups on um, the progressive or centrist uh, left, um, you ended up having uh, people lose their nerves. I mean, it would have been interesting. This is what I, we always wanted, is at least to see a genuine confrontation between the agenda of the left articulated clearly, directly in just that way, we want your money, and the agenda of the right. And let's you know see what would end up happening um, in a fair, well, I'm not saying that, you know, the electoral situation would have ended up being fair, but it was much better. It would have been much more edifying for the American public uh, to have that be the confrontation in the in the main election rather than it being kind of sidelined and corralled in the internal primary uh, discourse. I mean, that needed an airing broadly in society. I remember when Joe the plumber uh, talking and cornering then candidate Barack Obama and Joe the plumber was taking him on and Obama made the mistake of saying, well, you know, there's a lot of money and power at the top and, you know, you want to spread it around a little, distribute it, make sure everybody gets some money. And then he had to walk that back and say, and say, I don't believe in the redistribution of money or power. So here you have a Democratic candidate in 2008 saying, I don't believe in the redistribution of wealth. Meanwhile, Joe the plumber became a right wing uh, hero who went belly up, had no money. Uh, but uh, you can't even get a Democrat to say he's in favor of redistribution of the wealth. How is that wrong? How did that become a bad thing to say? Well, when they moved away from close association with labor and um, neoliberal policies themselves, starting with, I guess, uh, Professor Harvey J.K. would tell us with Carter, you know, um, they shifted in their support. You know, they were not being um, responsive or responsible to labor unions, and they did everything um to facilitate along with uh, right wing, you know, governments under Reagan and and the two Bushes. But there wasn't a lot of change in the interim with, you know, Clinton's and Obama's starting with Carter. So you have uh, 40 years of undermining, you know, labor's power. Um, that's the only institution on a sort of civic and social level that was dedicated to redistribution in an organized way. Um, so politically speaking, there just hasn't been anything other than in a rhetorical sense value there. Um, right. And on the other hand, there's been such a reinforcing of this uh you know language around um opportunity i mean that's even what the democrats talk about no one talks about actual material benefits they talk about opportunity you know oh you know and this was the, the, this was what uh clinton re reoriented when he did welfare reform he started talking instead about opportunity in society and this is where we get this idea that if we create 
uh, a level playing field as if that's you know possible in a market you know economy where there's already inequity that everyone should have the opportunity to succeed and that way it's up to them and it's not really anybody else's responsibility it's not our collective responsibility it's not our institutions from government that have to ensure those outcomes that's up to the individuals and if you fail that is your fault that you're failing right um, that i think is the problem yeah it's like it but i did well i did want to bring up something about you mentioned at the very outset um this criticism of the trucker convoys as anti-democratic as leading to authoritarianism which of course is counter to their way of framing their interests around freedom so i think right. that's the part of the reason why they're trying to say you're not being democratic you're not actually in favor of freedom um but I'm not sure that's the greatest, uh, you know, argument. I think the the main point that they're trying to get at uh, that might have some local benefit within ca Canadian political culture is the fact that this is mostly foreign funding, or at least about you know half of the donations are coming from the U.S. and there are some small percentages from other countries around the world, mostly Europe, um, but something like 30 or 40 percent um, you know, are Canadian uh, donations. Um, but it's about equivalent in terms of the amount of money uh, that's coming from donations outside. And this is just for, uh, this isn't from GoFundMe, this is the second round with the other um, I think it's uh, go send um, something. I can't remember the exact name of the uh, of of the the funding platform, uh, but it's oh give send go. Um, um, that there's been a leak. A hacker seems to have gotten the um, information about donations and circulated these. Um, so that's why we have and, these. And you can hear the right saying the hacker should be arrested. Not the trucker. You have Ted Cruz and Rand Paul supporting the illegal shutdown of a bridge that they're OK with. But the hacker who hacks their uh, charity, they should that guy should be arrested. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so what we've we found is that. Uh, of the 92,844 donations, 56%, 51,666 came from the US. 29% came from Canada and uh, 1,831 or 2% from the from the UK. Um, and, uh, you know, when so Putin, I think- When is Putin gonna stop meddling in the affairs yeah, of other nations? this is the point is that, that, I think this is so Christia Freeland, um, who's pro who's I think grandfather was a Ukrainian neo-Nazi during World War Two um, is trying to characterize. So she's a foreign minister, you know, minister of foreign affairs is trying to characterize this as interference. Right. In our domestic uh, elections by authoritarians, she's trying to invoke a sense that it's those nefarious forces of authoritarian governments abroad uh, without acknowledging and being clear. Most of this is coming from U.S. Uh, sources, you know, so this is not coming from 
Russia or, you know, authoritarians in Eastern, you know, Europe or, you know, some, some other far flung land. This is, uh, you know, coming from mostly from the United States um, and that there are some people who have even been traveling up to try and join the protests from the U.S. They've been turned back at the border recently. Um, so. I'm a little cautious about how you invoke um, this sort of discourse about authoritarianism is what's behind it, because typically that's being used uh, to obfuscate the fact that this is coming from from the U.S., whereas I think that is actually what would galvanize the Canadian public with their sort of nationalist kind of, uh, you know, sense of identity um, to want uh, to avoid the importation of Trump-like far-right politics into Canada, although we have plenty of it ourselves, but, you know, mainstream Canadians um, will object if they think that the U.S. is actually interfering in Canadian politics. That would be much better by being clear about that and acknowledging that most of these donations are coming from U.S. sources than to just broadly talk about anti-democratic forces and the specter of authoritarianism, because that vagueness is exactly what they're using to hype up conflict now with Russia and so on. Right. Very quickly, Jason Miles, let me just take care. There's been a screw up. You were uh, scheduled for 6 p.m. Eastern time, but I just realized that you're on Pacific time. And so I apologize. Can I ask you for a favor? I have to unmute you. Can you, just so I can accommodate all the other guests, do you mind coming back uh, in an hour and a half? Or we can reschedule. I have to unmute you. You have to unmute yourself. I'll be on my own show at that time. Well, do you mind? Is it asking too much for you to no longer do your own show? <laughs> is that asking? Just let me know if uh if that's asking too much for you no, to I stop have mild doing enjoyment your... paying my bills well could you could you please enough. stop uh paying your bills and look, quit if your... you want to house me i don't mind uh new york you looks like you got a nice house yeah yeah this is uh i have a you've heard of brownstones i have yeah, a i have okay. a gold stone i painted my brownstone gold i'm kidding about the brownstone uh well, then can we do Thursday or next Monday? Can we do that? Mondays works for me. Mondays works for you? So I, I apologize. I, it wasn't made clear to you that it was 6 p.m. Eastern. So we screwed up. Jason Miles is the co-host of This Is Revolution. And you're going live at what yeah, time? An hour. Yeah. Okay. On YouTube? On YouTube. Well... Go out. People should go out and buy another computer and watch both of us at the same time. <laughs> this is revolution. Well, I, I apologize for for crashing your uh, your. No, party. no, I no. We're, I, I'm sorry for uh, not telling you that we're on the East Coast. So I, my bad. My bad. It's really your bad. Uh, now, now I'm gonna. Now I'm doing the mind game. And you can, yes, I should have checked that. I this time stuff and you East Coast people is too much. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, thank you, Jason. We'll, we'll, we'll see you next Monday, I hope, right? Okay. Give thanks. him my spot, 5.30 Pacific. No. And, and by the way, Jason, don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel bad about ruining my show today. I don't want you to feel bad. 
because <laughs> you, you didn't show up. Don't feel bad. That's not what right. I do here. Thank you, Jason. Professor Adnan Hussein, let's very quickly plug Rahima.org. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Rahima.org, uh, local uh, Bay Area foundation that provides support, uh, food, other kinds of assistant, uh, assistance, rent support um, to people in the South Bay. Um, it's open to all. It started, however, with uh, refugees coming from Afghanistan and then later Somalia, Bosnia. There have been successive waves, of course, Syrians, Iraqis and so on. But it's an organization uh, my mother founded in our garage about 30 years ago, and uh, she's still going strong. And any help and support people can give will uh, go to um, assisting people who are the most desperate and most in need, um, particularly during this pandemic, where uh, there have been so many other challenges and disruptions. Uh, they've continued to work and operate and distribute food and other uh, monetary assistance uh, to people who, who really need the help. So um, if you can chip in a few bucks, go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot O-R-G, and um, make a donation. And it's good food, by the way. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Very quickly, who's on Mudgeless Podcast and who's on... Well, Gorillas coming up Podcast? this, uh, you know, later this month, we'll have Juan Cole talking about this new book that he's edited with a number of essays, important and interesting studies, Peace Movements in Islam, History, Religion, and Politics. And so we'll talk to him about, about, that, uh, about that book. And um, also check out our uh, recent episode on guerrilla history discussing uh, Edward Said representations of the intellectual, a very interesting and important book um, from the late, great uh, Edward Said. Palestinian scholar and pianist. That's right. Con That's concert right. pianist? He was an, apparently, I never actually heard him play piano, but he was apparently maybe not quite concert level, but very, very close. Uh, he was a, a, a real virtuoso and loved music and was a great a great music critic in the nation, actually. Right. He wrote uh, powerfully about opera and, and music, um, about Glenn Gould, for example. I remember reading some essays about of his about Glenn Gould. So he was a really multi-talented public intellectual who knew how to write in a clear way uh, for a public audience and was very much against the specialization, the use of jargon and literary criticism. Uh, he thought you needed to really communicate what was powerful about art, music, and above all, politics. It's exclusionary, the, the way some academics write. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you. Let us now go to California, back to California where Peter B. Collins is standing by. He is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. And go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's podcasts, radio shows, and interviews. And I gave you sharing privileges. We're all about sharing here today. Well, thank you, David. I'd like to share just a couple of things before I get uh, wound up here. One is, um, I, I love it when you get fired up about labor. Uh, this is something that is so missing. Uh, once upon a time, newspapers had labor columnists. Mm -hmm. And your commitment to working people and uh, organized labor collective bargaining is something that I, I just find so refreshing. 
because most people, even those who are members of at least the professional unions, are afraid to acknowledge it, much less, uh, you know, talk about it in a full-throated manner. So uh, I, I want to thank you for that. Well, also, I, I just thank, wanted- I, I, I want my response is I want to thank labor. You know, I, I'm a beneficiary of the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA, more so mm -hmm. the Writers Guild. I, I moved to Los Angeles and I didn't think I would need a union because I was going to go be a big star. I was going to be a big star. What do I need a union for? <laughs> and then I found out uh, I'll be lucky if I can get a job. Mm -hmm. And when I got a job, the union was there for me. The union provided for me. And I portable, wish portable pension benefits, portable health care that move from one employer to the next. And, uh, Everybody should have that. I, I just, I saw how uh, it made my life livable and uh, everybody, it's a human right. And I walked around feeling, you know, people, I bosses would, you know, they threaten to fire you and then you lose your benefits. And I thought this should never happen to anybody. Nobody should live in fear of losing a job and then their family losing all benefits. Mm -hmm. Nobody should live that way. Well, I served in my union, which was AFTRA, now SAG-AFTRA, uh, starting in the 1970s. And I made myself unpopular with management everywhere I went because I was one of those people, I, I would never say I was a big star, but uh, I had a contract. I worked for overscale rates. And I felt that it was not a duty, but it was something that I willingly took on to advocate for those who were working at scale, uh, the, the part-timers who barely got benefits. And our union always had a long tail. <clears throat> we knew that our members got fired. And I, I lost count. I think I was fired nine times, David. Uh, but the benefits lasted for 18 months after you were terminated. And then you could go on COBRA for your health care, right. for example. And so uh, the, the performers unions uh, have always been extremely progressive. And one of the limitations that we imposed on ourselves at AFTRA and then SAG-AFTRA is that we don't engage in politics because we represent people who are or could be journalists. Not, I'm joking about the TV people. Right. Uh, and so we don't have a PAC. We don't endorse candidates. And the union does not get involved in any kind of political action except for lobbying in the interests of our members. And so that often makes it seem like we don't have a voice and that our members don't care. Uh, but in fact, uh, both of those aren't true. And so, you know, I have mixed feelings about the the trucker convoys because. Well, let's get to that I, in a second. Let me just, can I just address SAG sure. after and the Writers Guild? I, I do want to talk about the truckers convoy. There is this belief 
uh, you are trained, especially if you're a member of SAG-AFTRA or if you're a member of the Writers Guild or the Directors Guild, that you're special. You are special. Uh, the industry that you worked in and I've worked in is made up, unfortunately, of malignant narcissists, borderline personalities who are starved for attention, are exhibitionists, not you, but we like to think that we're special. The hardest thing for us to realize is there are 20,000 people who can do what we do. You know, John Stewart, people say, why do you keep criticizing John Stewart? Well, he's a bully and a malignant narcissist and he's anti-union and he's beloved. You know, the guy is absolutely beloved uh, and rightfully so. I think I thought he did a great job on The Daily Show. But when I was there, I saw how he treated his employees, how he punished the writers because they went union on him. He fought the union, kicking and screaming, reminding them, the writers, you can all be replaced. You know, Trevor Noah replaced Jon Stewart. Just as good. Just as good. There are 20,000 people you could find to replace Trevor Noah. I've, I've had bosses who couldn't wait to tell me that I could find somebody else in a second to do your job. And I've seen them replaced. If Ooh. nobody is irreplaceable, as Charles de Gaulle said, the cemeteries are filled with irreplaceable men. Everybody can be replaced. Nobody's special. Whatever skill you think you have, either as a surgeon or a pilot or Neil Armstrong, nobody is special. It could have been Neil Armstrong. It could have been Buzz Aldrin. It, Neil Armstrong, it was his turn. They chose him. Nobody is special. That's why you need unions. It's unhealthy well, that, that to think you're better than somebody. That takes me back to the 80s when I did uh, the morning show on KRQR in San Francisco, and I, I just detested my, my boss, my program director, slimy guy, chain-smoking. Uh, he said he was a program director. What more do you need to say? <laughs> So we, we kind of uh, butted heads over some trivial matter. And he reached down to this file drawer uh, in his desk and pulled it out. He said, look at this. He said, these are all the people who want your job. And I said, look, dude, I came in here before you did, knowing that I'm going to get my ass fired out of this place someday. It's only a matter of time. And you cannot intimidate me with that. And Good. if you want to fire me tomorrow, write the big check and I'll give you my key card. Right. Right. <laughs> so they try to use that against you. But your your point, you know, is solid. You know, I that, see, and I see Colin Jost doing commercials for Amazon, which anyway. Well, I, I heard your rant about that and I, I certainly agree. Uh, and it is this sense and and we ran into this uh, coming back to my union. Yes, we tried we tried to organize 
the NBC television station in San Jose, where they used the most bizarre tactics. Their news reporters didn't work for NBC. They worked for a staffing company. That's who, who mailed them checks every other week. The staffing company was owned by General Electric and was wow. used to hire nuclear power plant workers that they called jumpers. You know what a jumper is? No. A jumper is somebody comes in and they get paid big money because they can only work a short period of time because they're exposed to radiation. So, wow. so NBC was treating its TV reporters like jumpers. Wow. And that was just a union busting or union evasion strategy. We also tried to organize, there was a, a, a radio station devoted to tech that was not owned by, but it would, the programming was produced by CNET. People probably know about mm -hmm. CNET. And so we approached the on-air staff there and we said, hey, uh, we'd like to organize you into a union shop. And they all said, well, no, I, I identify more with management. And they felt that because they were covering the tech industry, that they were next to be an Elon Musk or a Steve right. Jobs or, you know, pick your uh, uh, right. kleptocrat. <laughs> and so we failed in both cases because we, we couldn't penetrate either the mindset or the uh, structural obstacles that had yeah, been they, placed they, in front of us. There has to be a law on the books that says a union signatory is the person who or the company that runs the business. In other words, you go to work for Comedy Central. Some of those shows are union shops. Some of them aren't. Yeah. You have to work to unionize each individual show, depending on who the producers are. Comedy Central is owned by Viacom, which is owned by CBS, which is owned by whoever. There has to be a law on the books that says who owns, is it Viacom? You're the union signatory. We go right to you and every show that you put on has to be union. Not the individual producers, not the, especially since the Telecommunications Act of 96 or 97 got rid of producers. There was a time when producers owned the shows. Those days right. are over. They're, all the shows are owned by the networks now, mm -hmm. but it's, it still devolves to the individual producers to decide whether or not to become union signatories. How, it's like, why do we allow that? Well, why do we allow it? So the truckers- David, keep, keep talking for a second. I'm gonna close the door. There. No, no, I My like to hear What kind of, what's the dog's name? Oh, that's Chloe. Uh, my Valentine is arriving and Chloe is greeting her. So don't uh. give her chocolate. <laughs> no, we don't. don't give Chloe chocolate. I like dogs. Bar uh, uh, what kind of dog is Chloe? She's a little 15 pound. Uh, her, her breed is uh, Cotan de Tuléar. That's an offshoot of the Bijan family. So her job is to drive you crazy by barking. Well, she only announces Kathy's arrival. When I show up, <laughs> she barely moves. <laughs> so let's talk about the truckers. Mm -hmm. you're, you're... Well, I really appreciated what uh, Professor Hussein said, because th this is an opportunity. Uh, we see that 
manufacturers, including the automakers in Detroit, haven't learned a damn thing from the interruption of the supply chain. And they are still operating with very low parts inventories with this just-in-time strategy. And of course, they think it lowers their costs because they don't have to you know, stockpile parts uh, in anticipation of a labor sh- strike or any other uh, interruption of their business. And it does show just how vulnerable uh, the American system is and how lame the political party that claims to represent working people and working families truly is. Because we could be uh, forcing the issue of Medicare for all. We could be forcing uh, many other critical issues uh, like voting rights, which the Congress has now moved on from. And the Democrats are busy gerrymandering New York the same way the Republicans are gerrymandering Texas. And so we really have lost any vision of using our power. Everybody is operating either from a position of fear or they're just fat and happy. Uh, You know, they've got their big screen TV and their Amazon Prime and whatever else uh, diverts their attention. And they don't feel that they are part of a community that can be improved through collective action. And so it is a sad commentary on America today. And when we think about the the risk that comes from the far right uh, using their Second Amendment remedies to try to uh, cram down our throats, their authoritarian points of view, uh, we are lambs and the left doesn't fight. And it's, it's really tragic to see that uh, at a time when the oligarchs have squeezed even more out of the peasants. Yeah. And there's, there's really no end in sight to that trend. It's a loss of community. They've stripped us of a community. And we don't, I, we are alienated from one another by design. The, 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 you get rid of libraries, you denude our public schools of uh, community, and you're just left on your own and scared straight. You know, the, the, the head of the retail wholesale and department store union is a guy named Stuart Applebaum, and he's the one in Bessemer who's unionizing the workers. He lost last year. He's probably going to lose again. He's a he's from Hartford, Connecticut. Lives in Hartford, Connecticut. Harvard Law School. I reached out to him last year to come on this show. Didn't even I, I didn't even get an email saying I'm too busy, but thank you. Or you know what? I can't do it, but here's somebody who can. Just completely ignored my request. It came as no surprise to me that the retail wholesale and department store union wasn't able to persuade the workers in Bessemer, Alabama to vote yes. His name is Stuart Applebaum, lives in Connecticut and went to Harvard Law School. Seems to me you do what Dr. King did. You, uh, when you want to point out how bad things are in Chicago, 
you go live in the tenements with your wife and see what it's, you know, you draw attention to the lack of hot water, the cockroaches and the rats. I don't mm -hmm. see Stuart Applebaum, Harvard Law School graduate and head of the retail wholesale department store union traveling down to Bessemer and shining a light on what it's like to work for Amazon. Chris well, Smalls we do does. have we have atrophy. We have atrophy in the leadership of the labor movement, and we have corruption. And it's painful to have seen, you know, the last round with the UAW in Detroit, where they were living it up on the the backs of the assembly line workers. And uh, so again, we have people who are nominally leading a labor organization who consider themselves to be highly paid executives right. and that they are entitled to that. And I so, saw a I saw uh, a, a TV reporter uh, say Buffalo to Starbucks and Buffalo go union, how this can affect the price of your next cup of coffee. And yeah. I thought that guy should be sanctioned by SAG-AFTRA. He's a member of SAG-AFTRA. I think he was on NBC, the local NBC affiliate. He should be kicked out of the union for for lying that it, that it's going to affect the price of coffee. He's he's auditioning for Fox. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have something for us. What 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 is it? I do. Uh, I I hope I'm not uh, annoying people, but I am pretty uh, focused on the rush to war in, uh, or at least the cheerleading for war in Ukraine. And uh, in a minute, I want to uh, play a couple of excerpts from, it's actually one with two different parts to it, of Lester Holt uh, at NBC who interviewed Joe Biden. And they released part of it last week, and I was not watching the uh, uh, commercial-laden run-up to the Super Bowl yesterday, but I believe they played part of it in the pregame portion. But before we get to that, I, I wanted to note that uh, while uh, Biden is warning and, and so uh, is the uh, uh, head of the Pentagon, they're pulling the limited number of troops that we have in Ukraine who are mostly trainers uh, from the Florida National Guard. Uh, they're pulling them out. They've ordered the embassy to strip down to its uh, bare bones staffing. But Russia says, we haven't finished talking. And the, the meme in the U.S. media is that this week could be when Russia invades Ukraine. And that uh, they thought that he was going to wait till after the Olympics, which end in about a week, uh, but I, I really don't think that uh, the Kremlin cares about uh, the Olympics. And there certainly is a whole story there about doping and uh, this lovely 15-year-old girl who's an incredible skater. Uh, but <clears throat> the point is that Biden and his cronies talk as if they have gone every mile, overturned every stone, and that they are committed to peace, but they are stoking a conflict with Ukrainians as cannon fodder. 
they are going to be the ones who uh, are killed or maimed and spend the rest of their lives with ugly memories of this misadventure. And as I have said in previous commentaries here, David, uh, the, the, the idea that NATO is so valuable that we can't make a concession to Russia that we will stop recruiting former Soviet republics and former nations that were in that sphere uh, after the current 13. <laughs> we promised in 1992 or so, 93 I guess it was, that uh, if Ukraine went through nuclear disarmament, that we would not recruit more members for NATO and encircle the former Soviet Union as it downsized. And we have violated that. But we don't acknowledge it. We also <clears throat> interfered in the Yanukovych coup in 2014, and it's clear it was a U.S.-backed uh, takedown of that government so that we could put a pliable puppet named Poroshenko in power. And so as, as we elide over the critical points of America's misdeeds toward Russia, and the one other element that uh, uh, I think is it, it's mentioned in a commentary that Medea Benjamin of Code Pink for Peace published a couple of days ago. Uh, Ukraine under Zelensky was building up its forces in eastern Ukraine, preparing for an offensive against the and, and I concede that the volunteers for Russia who are in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass and, and the uh, neighboring region there, uh, you know, they're playing the same game that we play when we insert covert forces in other parts of the world, whether it's Libya or Syria most recently, or the destabilization efforts that we continue in Venezuela. So we thump our chests and talk about, you know, that we're the, the, the people who support democracy here and that Putin is this arch evil who is just, you know, bound and determined to destroy it. And so we are headed toward war and we are using it as abstraction from the failures of the Democrats to achieve what was a fairly ambitious agenda last year. And so I want you to listen carefully to this clip because Biden uh, is faced by Lester Holt, who he's a competent uh, news anchor, but he is an access journalist and he will not burn a guy like Biden because he's angling for the next big interview that will jack up his ratings. And so Lester Holt, kind of like Tim Russert was at NBC in the past, they're really good at asking a tough question with the guarantee that when the question is dodged, he will change the subject. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, here we go. This is about three minutes long. And you know, was... share sound when you when you share, you hit the share sound button on the oh, left. Do I? Where where do I find that? I have share screen. How about that? Yeah. Okay, and I'm going to select desktop one and share. And then I want to go full screen on this. Come on, come on. 
So can you see the window with uh, Putin uh, there on the left? I can see him. Yeah, I, I can. I can teach you. Well, OK, yes, go ahead. There's another way to okay. do it. But, but go I ahead. just went to full screen on that. So go. that there, there you we go. go. That's beautiful. OK, so here we go. And the the thing that I want people who are watching on YouTube to look for carefully is that when uh, Holt changes the subject from Ukraine to the debacle of our exit in, uh, from Afghanistan, watch how Biden stiffens up and leans back in his chair. And he is stiffening himself for what he knows is a rash of shit. Oh, we got to watch a commercial? Well, <laughs> but we can't hear. Oh. Um, you know what? Uh, send me the link and I'll play it. Why don't we try that? Okay. Let me escape from here. Um, so while I'm fumbling with this, and I will send you the link here right now, David, and uh, you want to cue it into uh, a cheat sheet here, uh, three minutes and 30 seconds. Put it in the chat room, if you don't mind. Let's... Okay, so why don't we get out of the share, the sharing, right? Stop sharing. Uh, stop share. There we go. Okay. That was so obvious. Uh, okay, now go. here it comes in the chat. All right. That's the YouTube link, and while you're setting that up, um, I'll mention that uh, Biden in this interview uh, warns people to leave Ukraine but then says he won't do anything to help them. There's not gonna be an airlift or even any kind of coordinated exit. And so when Holt switches to the question about Afghanistan and the recent Pentagon report that slams the Biden White House for its uh, indecision and its unwillingness to accept the reality in early August that the Kabul government was going to fall imminently uh, Biden can't remember what country he's talking about. So first, he disappoints a lot of people uh, saying that if hostilities break out in Ukraine, Americans are on their own. And then he uh, turns around and denies that uh, the exit from Afghanistan was bungled and basically just says that he rejects this new Pentagon report. Uh, and it, it's fascinating to see. Uh, we're looking for three minutes and 30 seconds, David. All right. Let's see if I can do okay. it. And maybe you'll get a commercial from Ancestry, too. <laughs> Their worldview that this thing feels like. 3.30. Mm-hmm that I would follow the science, the science as put forward by the CDC and okay, the, and you're the, pretty and close the federal there. people. Okay. And uh, I think it's probably premature, but it's, you know, it's, it's a tough call. And I asked about the tense standoff with Russia over Ukraine. 
What are your plans toward American citizens who are in Ukraine and might be there during an invasion? Uh, what scenarios would you put American troops to rescue and get Americans out? There's not. That's a world war. When Americans and Russians start shooting at one another, we're in a very different world than we've ever been in. Not even on behalf of simply evacuating Americans? No. How, how, how do you do that? How do you even find them? This is not like I'm hoping that if, in fact, he's foolish enough to go in, he's smart enough not to, in fact, do anything that would negatively impact on American citizens. Have you, have you told him that? Yes. You've, you've told him to, that, that you know, Americans would be a line that they can't cross? Well, I, I didn't have to tell him that. He, I've, I've spoken <laughs> about that. He knows that. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit... Uh, Look, that's why what I've asked is American citizens should leave, should leave now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation and things could go crazy quickly. On the subject of American citizens, I have to draw your attention to that army report and investigative report that's come out about the lead up to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It, it interviewed many military officials and officers who said the administration ignored the handwriting on the wall. Uh, another described trying to get folks in the embassy ready to evacuate, encountering uh, you know, people who are in, essentially in denial of, of this situation. Does any of that ring true to you? No. No. That's not what I was told. Okay, now listen. You were told that the U.S. administration officials were prepared, they knew it was time to get out? No, what I was told, no one told me that, look, there was no good time to get out. But if we had not gotten out, they acknowledged that we would have had to put a hell of a lot more troops back in. It wasn't just 2,000, 4,000. We would have to significantly increase the number of troops, and we'd be back in this, this war of attrition. And, it, and there was no way we were ever going to unite Ukraine. I mean, excuse me, Iraq, Afghanistan. No way that was going to happen. And so this is a much wiser thing to do. I just want to clarify, are you rejecting the conclusions or the, the accounts that are in this army report? Yes, I am. So they're not, not true? I'm rejecting them. Then there was today's sour headline on the economy. Inflation skyrocketed. 7.5 percent okay. a 40 year high prices still spiking on everything from used car that's scary well it is i mean first of all uh holt says did you tell putin and biden says just flatly yes and then he backs away as well you know he already knew and then this fumble over which fucking country uh he's talking about just shows a, a serious cognitive decline. And when you couple that with the bad ideas that come from his history on foreign policy and from the, the team of advisors he has surrounded himself with. And let me quote from, this is a neocon named Corey Shockey, who is a, a female fellow uh, used to be on the National Security Council in the George W. Bush administration. She was mentored by Condoleezza Rice, and she is now at that far-left think tank called the American Enterprise Institute. Mm. And in an op-ed in the Times last week, she complimented the Biden administration on things that it's doing right in F uh, 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 Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> and then she says... Um, the real problem 
in administration policy is President Biden. This is a neocon talking. The insular nature of his decision-making, including his reliance on like-minded advisors, lacks rigorous thinking and fuels a kind of arrogance that can lead to unforced errors. His casual suggestion last month that a minor incursion by Russia might not draw a tough response required mopping up by the administration. It also drew a bitter rebuke from Ukraine's president. Now, Corey Shockey is advocating for a more muscular policy the kind of talk of all options are on the table. And, uh, you know, this is where we have this huge disconnect because Joe Biden was the only one we're told in the Obama cabinet who opposed the surges into Afghanistan. There were two of them. But in this case, there does not to be appear to be a single person who has Biden's ear, who is saying, you know, Joe, um, Zelensky doesn't think that war is imminent. Russia thinks that there's more time to talk. Macron is trying to, in a self-interested way, generate uh, some sort of, of bilateral talks with Putin. And you are talking as if the trigger has already been set and it's going to be pulled immediately. And I can't predict, and I want to be really clear with your listeners and viewers, David. I don't pretend to know if this situation will be defused. But we are hearing the most ridiculous commentary from American officials, like Russia needs to withdraw. Well, the only place it can withdraw from right now is Russia and Belarus. That is simply idiotic. Or Crimea. Yeah, but come on, right. <laughs> that that piece right. of real estate is not going back to Ukraine. So it this just becomes this uh, selective narrative that underscores a, a former superpower sensibility of American exceptionalism. And it is fueled by the way Democrats have been taught to engage in Russophobia from the whole scandal about Russiagate. And I don't trust this uh, prosecutor who Trump appointed, or actually it was Bill Barr, but it was done under Trump. The guy's name is John Durham. And he published a report that, at least as an indictment, offers substantive uh, support for Trump's denial of the Russiagate scandal. Now, Trump didn't attempt to cover up, but I think it was about his efforts to get business deals in Russia, not about interfering in the 2016 election. But that aside, uh, the Democratic rank and file has now been groomed to see Russia as the darkest enemy on the planet and that it doesn't matter we must confront them at all costs and uh, that war would be okay. Right. And can I tell you I, what I, I think, think is going, what I think is happening? And I'm not, this is not a value judgment on Biden, but what I think the geniuses over at West Exec, uh, who are now running foreign policy, they are saying invasion is imminent. 
this is what they're thinking, I think. This is what I think they're doing. They, I'm not passing judgment. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. I think the Americans believe that Putin invading Ukraine is an impossibility. They would be an occupying force. It's the last thing the Russians want to do is to occupy Ukraine. They learned their lesson in Afghanistan. And the, the political will isn't there to go door to door, house to house, fighting the Ukrainian people. The, the West would shut off the second pipeline to Germany. We would freeze the assets. Whether or not you think that's right or fair, that's what we would do. And it would end up being uh, a bad move on Putin's part to invade Ukraine. Nobody wants to invade and occupy another country. I think that Biden and the people surrounding him believe that there is absolutely no way Russia is going to invade Ukraine and they're trying to humiliate him. They're saying, show us what you got. It's eminent. He's going to invade. And they're caught. They, they're giving. He, you know, they, he's when you whip out the baseball bat in a bar, when you're the bartender, you don't whip out the baseball bat unless you plan to use it, because if you don't use it, then that baseball bat means nothing. And the same applies to Putin. He's whipped out the baseball bat and now they're humiliating him. He's got he has no choice but to go in, but he can't. He can't go in. So they're they're humiliating Putin. That is what I think Biden is thinking, whether or not mm -hmm. it's whether or not it's the right way to think and whether or not we're going to avoid war. I don't know. But I think they're pushing him to admit that he he doesn't have the will to invade Ukraine. Well, you mentioned the freezing of assets, and that so far is the biggest threat that we have put forward. We should but talk about Afghanistan, but, by the way. Did you okay, we're but, free? But, but oh, go ahead. You, you interrupted my joke. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what I do best. <laughs> Before Biden can freeze assets in Moscow, Putin is going to freeze asses in Deutschland. Ah. And the whole facade that we are in lockstep and that NATO is this unified organization is going to crumble. And that is truly what Putin wants. And that's where I feel that he's two to three chess moves ahead and that, that Biden is going to be left flat-footed. So uh, as to the splitting of the Afghan assets, I think it's really unfortunate. I'm not sure Biden has a whole lot of choice. One of the uh, survivors of a, a person who died in the Twin Towers on 9-11, uh, who's a spokesperson for the group that has sued both uh, the Taliban and the Saudis, acknowledged that the Afghan government and that the Taliban had very little direct involvement in the uh, official narrative of 9-11. And so uh, this is Biden trying to play Solomon and say, well, we're just going to split this baby. Uh, 
there's no question that we have created a huge mess in Afghanistan with a lot of misery and uh, suffering, but we also were exploited and looted when we put billions upon billions, I mean, over a hundred billion in so-called reconstruction projects alone. And so it's a very difficult situation to try to be humanitarians in a place that we ravaged for 20 years. How many innocent civilians did we kill in Afghanistan? More than the number that died on 9-11. Oh yeah, easily. yeah. And again, your Taliban had nothing to do with 9-11 and Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11. Saudi Arabia did. Uh, and bin Laden was supposedly killed in Pakistan. What was he doing in Pakistan if it was the Taliban that was propping him up? To be continued, Peter B. Collins, go to, great job as always, go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of this brilliant man's radio shows and podcasts and interviews. And uh, thank you. I look forward to next week. It's good to see you, David. Thank you. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where Parks Commissioner and physicist Professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. Hello, Professor Marianne. Uh, hi there, David. I, I just want to interject one thing into the last discussion. Um, there seems to be a weird take on Crimea. Crimea. I mean, I was stunned when Rachel Maddow brought up Crimea and didn't give any background on it, because at that time, several years ago, she used to give full-flushed background on a lot of her subjects. Crimea, Crimea has been part of Russia since before we had a constitution. I think it was 1783. And it was ceremoniously handed to Ukraine in 1954 by Khrushchev, back when Ukraine was very firmly in the Soviet Union as a sort of, as an autonomous region. Now- It was a gift, they he never, gave it to them as a gift. As a gift, but, but the thing is, is that that was in a world structure where they were all part of the same, you know, collection of Soviets, right. republics, which of course, you know, was just basically their client states. Uh, the idea that Russia would ever give up its one warm water port is it's just insanity. And it would be, you know, it would be crazy and unreasonable for anyone to think that they would do that. So when they're using the fact that they took back Crimea after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after, you know, the, uh, after the civil strife in Ukraine. I mean, it's highly misleading. I mean, Russia is protecting an asset that has been part of its country for over 200 years. So it's a little little misleading. And, you know, and I well, for anyone to think that they would do that. So when they're... Okay, I, I, I heard my ghost. I'm sorry, we hit the wrong button here. I apologize. Okay. So anyway, um, so that is just giving, you know, just sort of a little unbalanced, you know, kind of viewpoint of the whole situation. Um, The Ukraine nationalists who form the backbone of the current government 
security forces is not a group of people we want to support or at least admit we want to support. I mean, look up the Azov group in this collection. I mean, these guys are Nazis, all right? These guys are, are nationalist, nationalist supremacists, and we would call them white supremacists here, but in Europe, like, white is subdivided into further categories. Right. And the, uh, so anyway, it's a much more complicated situation. The idea that would be, we would be so, you know, kind of clumsily uh, belligerent toward Russia in this circumstance. I mean, a sane government would be having, would, would be having diplomatic crews talking with Russia, talking with our EU colleagues, getting forcing Ukraine and Donbass, the autonomous, semi-autonomous region that's Russian speaking and leans toward Russia, to get back to the Minsk agreement that was agreement that was reached maybe five years ago, so that you know they could unify Ukraine, but that there would be no uh, there would be no outside interference. Ukraine would never be part of the EU. And you know, it, it, it was a reasonable attempt to bypass you know, hostilities from the U.S., but that ain't happening right now. It might be happening under the radar, but you know, um, the idea that that uh, the, the Biden administration or those Nimrods from West Exec are going to outsmart Putin at playing diplomatic chess is kind of preposterous. I mean, Russia at least knows how to just, they know how to engage in the world because they've had to engage in the world. I mean, look at their border, 23 hostile countries. And they managed to maintain a kind of equilibrium. And now they're just bypassing the US and and forging alliance with, uh, with China. I mean, it's really sad that we do not have a leader in this country with any kind of vision whatsoever for a world post hostilities for a world that can get together and start solving the climate crisis so what is it we need just need a permanent enemy the only semblance of a potential enemy is china or russia because of uh because of sense memory we we like to think of russia it's easy to remember Russia as the Soviet Union. They're not nearly as powerful economically mm-hmm. or militarily as they were 30 years ago. Well, it's a cheap, yeah, it's a cheap shot. I mean, you know, people want to like remind me that Russia isn't, it is no longer communist when I said red, red baiting, you know, when right. I referred to red baiting, right. I said, yeah. And I also understand that the, tr- the proper word is tissue, not Kleenex. And photocopy, not Xerox, but red baiting has a more generic term now. That means to start smearing your opponents uh, giving the, by giving them darker characteristics rather than deal with them on the issues. Right. So, and, and I said this whole Russia gate nonsense was formulated by Robbie Mook and John Podesta the day after uh, Hillary Clinton's loss which Amy Parms and who was her, Jonathan, can't remember the guy's last name, but the, the authors of uh, Shattered, uh, Shattered. Allen, Jonathan they, Allen? Jonathan Allen, that's right. Well, they were embedded in the Hillary Clinton campaign and they were the, 
they were going to chronicle the rise of the first woman president, right? So they already picked their title, ironically enough, because it was shattered referring to the glass ceiling. They decided to keep it because it was just as appropriate, but with an entirely different meaning. But they were, you know, people were talking openly. When you have a catastrophic loss like that, people start talking. People start, you know, telling the palace secrets. People start, you know, blaming and recrimination and things like that. So, uh, they got the full earful of what they decided to do. They decided on the narrative would be Russia. It was Russia interference. It was Russia, you know, basically uh, tipping the election. It was Russia even maybe perhaps being part of the Bernie Sanders <laughs> campaign. I mean, look, and it, and it worked because uh, I no longer listened to um, Stephanie Miller because two days in a row in 2017, she said that, well, the Bernie people may have to come to grips with the fact that they may have been maybe unwitting Russian assets. And I thought she was telling a joke. <laughs> she wasn't. She said it the second day in a row. And I said, okay, you guys are all out of your minds insane. Or propaganda really does work. When they got their media friends to repeat a story and repeat and repeat, you know, it was... In that sense, it's not the same situation, but in that sense, you know, I was told even in late 2002 that, well, there's just so much information from so many sources about weapons of mass destruction. I go, yeah, so many sources? No, they're all coming from one source. <laughs> so these stories, so it's like the fallout from that now, not only were they going after Julian Assange, another big story no one's talking about, and that's the thing that should be utterly terrifying people, the treatment that he is getting. But, you know, you have people who are now all ginned up at the in, in their reptile brain to like kind of respond to the idea that we're gonna go to war with Russia. You know, they're all kind of, they're all conditioned that we have a common enemy. Now, because we bad, know how, because, how well the last couple of wars went for us. Okay, well, but this is the big war. I mean, this is a proper Russians, not right. these any any third world countries. You're right. You're you know, right. this is total to war with the Ruskies. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I laugh, but it is just we are just that insane. As I said, you know, the last time we thought we had a situation under control and were saber rattling belligerents was Cuban Missile Crisis, and again, I don't remember it, but reading about it is like wow people were stunned at how quickly that escalated they thought something like that could be contained and talked over and you know all right we we kind of have a show of force and everybody back down we know the drill we know the dance i don't know uh i would read scott ritter over at consortium news because he does a deep dive into this and i was just reading this morning um over at Down with Tyranny, Eric Zeus, uh, again, I must be, I might be butchering his name, Z-U-E-S-S-E, -S -S -E. Zeus. Um, he's, been, he's been writing for years about this situation in, in Ukraine, and he does a deep dive into these things. So anyway, that's just kind of the world we live in. But, you know, the other thing I wanted to bring up is that, yes, 
enemies are unifying, but there's shortcuts, you know, enemies are, and, and the Democratic, as Democrats as a party has been taking shortcuts for decades. That's where we're in this horrible political situation we are in. But we had another model for how to organize the entire planet. And I agreed with my Republican friends when I lived over at the boarding house in, uh, in, in Ann Arbor that, yes, you know, uh, military wars probably were the big driver of technology for most of human history. But we have a different model now. We had the moon, you know, the moon landing. All right, you could say, you know, there'd be some some military advantage into conquering space and having a moon base, ultimately. But really, people got behind it because it was the coolest frickin' thing they would never thought happened in their lifetime, and it was happening. And it it was like war, you know, showtime. You've got to do some things, accidents at the wrong, at the last minute, but you just had incredibly smart people, engineers, scientists, and mathematicians just pulling off the damn near impossible. But well, you can't dis- that, that's can, you disembag- can you disembaguate? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. The Saturn rockets, the Mercury ra- rockets, the Redstones, those, all they did was switch out the, the tips of those missiles and replace nuclear weapons with humans. It was the same military technology but my point wasn't the technology yes it was the military but my point was you rallied people not because these were this was a potential weapon you rallied people because like wow we're exploring space this is the new frontier so i'd say you know we either have permanent war or we have starfleet and what i mean by starfleet is anything that's where, where you bring the entire world together solving a problem yeah i mean exploring space is sexy and fun and everything else but saving our planet i mean has got to be the organizing principle and i don't see anybody doing that there may be people under the you know under the radar doing something i'm sure there are but we don't it, it is just a tragedy that we don't have the kind of leadership. And it would only at this point be the United States still, even in our diminished capacity, but we could still lead the world on these efforts. And I think right. I think the rest of the world has gotten tired of waiting for us to start coming to our senses. Hasn't COVID kind of been a dress rehearsal for climate change? Haven't we seen how impossible it is to unite this country to take on a common enemy? This was... I mean, everybody agreed we needed a vaccine. COVID is killing us. And well, it, it was the space race. It was a moonshot to come up with this mRNA vaccine. And Americans. But we didn't. But but we weren't all in this together. I mean, about a week or so ago, I had I had heard I, I read you the article read or read the points from the article about Denmark just opening up its country after Omicron, but then reading about it and reading the statements from their minister of health saying that, you know, everyone really here feels that we're all in solidarity. And that was a remarkable statement. They have a healthcare system. Nobody's, nobody went bankrupt because they had to stay home. 
Um, they prioritized that the vaccination. They, I mean, their their elder population is over ninety six percent vaccinated. And when he said something like, "At this time, we're going to take precautions to protect the vulnerable," but there's also a social compact that the old recognize that the young have to get back to school and they have to start earning a living. And you can do that because in Denmark, everybody was all in this together. Over here, it's just been both the Trump administration and the Biden administration has been using COVID to just pummel like the workers. And we've created, as someone in the chat is going, oh, the economy is going great guns. Keep saying that right until election time, and you're just going to get an overwhelming wave of Republicans in there because it's not. Yeah, we've made like 135 new billionaires in the last couple of years. And how many people have gone back? How many people are becoming homeless? I, I think because- it's like 65 percent workforce participation. It's, it's incredibly low when they say unemployment is down. But you look at the yeah. workforce participation and it's not particularly high. It is. It is. It was low beforehand. I mean, it was low all through um, uh, all, all through Obama's recovery. But it was something like 63 point something percent. Now it's like 61 percent. It hit a low for about a month in in 2020 of like 60 percent. Right. But then people started reopening again. But it's not we've not fully recovered even the crappy ass jobs that people lost. And that that unemployment, the unemployment rate doesn't measure underemployment or working poor. We have. You know, well, you, not only that, but lots, lots of businesses. There was an article today about inflation, uh, about inflation, and it was CNBC, um, and it was pretty remarkable because they were pointing out that, well, it, oddly enough, it's not being felt by the big companies. <laughs> they haven't, they haven't had to raise their expenses much. It's only the small companies. And, you know, as commentators were pulling out, were pointing out, if this were a truly competitive market, inflation would be hitting everybody equally. Mm-hmm. It's not. So the supply you know, so the supply chain, the tenuous supply chain that COVID exposed more than created, actually, was, uh, you know, always going to benefit the wealthy because they have it's not just that they're big, it's that there is no free market when basically you're big, you're big enough to control what happens. And the shippers will make deals with the big companies and ignore the smaller companies. So this, you know, uh, this inequality, not just for individuals, but just for the businesses is just continuing to, to grow to just a real oligarchy. And yeah. in the meantime, we've got the surveillance state. We've got, we still have people in jail for pot. Uh, you know, it's, we, we've got, a, we've got the Democrats, you know, uh, calling for more police, not fewer, uh, you know, um, the, the, this is a proto-fascist state already. And I think the the top ten to twenty percent of the liberals are just comfortable because you know they got to spend less during uh, during COVID and they didn't lose their jobs, right? And it, so we've got a big divide between you know my tenured friends basically 
and the people who live in my neighborhood and my tenure friends are becoming less and less empathetic with people in my neighborhood. And that's going to be a disaster because people will vote and the smaller that island, you know, that 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 tier of comfortable professionals gets, you know, the more vulnerable and tenuous their situation is going to be. And, you know, apart from that, we're we're letting the planet melt. Right. <laughs> we are incapable of getting anything done there on that on that uh, front. So but hey, J-Lo and Ben Affleck are together. When the devil did that happen? But her movie isn't doing well. Oh, but they're back together. I saw that at the uh, at, at the Super Bowl. But what? You saw Oh, yeah. I watched the Super Bowl, yes. Yeah, I was What, what about the a... Globe? Or do you have the Globe in front of you? No, I don't have the Globe in front of me. I don't need the Globe. I watched the Super Bowl. So I guess... You know, that 16-year-old quarterback who used to play for the Lions when he was 15-year-old last year won. That's nice. That's the closest Lions fans are ever going to get to a Super Bowl, were you, I suppose. Were you able to lose yourself in Eminem? <laughs> were you able to lose your lose yourself well, watching? You know, I do. I, th- that was a little bit of memory lane, even though that was not from my childhood. But, yeah, I, I like And, you know... I had that thought, like, hey, he's down there taking a knee. I wonder if it's for Colin Kaepernick. And it turns out it was for Colin Ka- Colin Kaepernick. Uh, uh, apparently, the NFL guys told him not to do that. And he was going to open up doing that, but he saved it to the end to do that. And so, you know, good on him. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And uh, what, was- what the hell... There were like more than one commercial for cryptocurrency. I think all those billionaire a-holes are just are about to unload. Did you see Larry David? The one with Larry David is actually quite it was quite amusing. Well, he needs the money to endorse. Yeah, well, you know, they want he needs the money. They need to unload their fake money in exchange for real money. So I think that's what's happening. Is it and, uh, cryptocurrency? You're a physicist. This was invented by physicists. Cryptocurrency. Invented. I think encryption. I don't think was invented. Yeah, by yeah physicists. you guys invent all the money stuff because none of us well, are. Saul, Saul actually is uh, much more of an expert on uh, on blockchain technology than I am. But do, do you, you know, think Larry David, given that he has enough money, should be doing commercials? for cryptocurrency isn't it somewhat irresponsible to to endorse something like this i don't know how much money he has and i heard a few years ago that um you know who is that actor um one of the big time actor was actually broke. He had sixteen mansions all over the all over the world. Oh, oh, Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to say Copula, but I said, oh, and his name isn't Copula, it's something else. He changed it. But anyway, right. Um, right. yes, Nicholas Cage. So these guys go broke. I mean, it's not like just because you make millions doesn't mean you're smart enough to keep millions, especially if you maintain the lifestyle you had when you were making your peak earnings. So, But cryptocurrency, I mean... Well, it's like it's... <sighs> Yeah, it, it is probably 
the most ludicrous activities since those Eastern Islanders were like, you know, carving Dobbs heads all over their island. I mean, it's just, it's basically factoring large number into primes. I mean, it's sort of the bottom line for all of this encryption type stuff. And it's just, it's, it's contributing to global warming literally because of the CPU cycles it takes up to quote mine Bitcoins out of the ether. I mean, it's just, it's, it's ludicrous waste of, of resources on, on almost every level. And this is, I think this is the end game. I mean, this is our tulip bulb craze, right? You, uh, the people are not familiar with tulip. You should look it up. Apparently, in around 1600, tulip bulbs became very, very fashionable, and people wanted to get tulip bulbs. And then suddenly, for some odd reason, tulip bulbs became worth more than their weight in gold, and people were like, you know, spending their family fortunes to acquire like boatloads, literally boatloads full of tulip bulbs. And of course, something like that it is very short-lived, and it was. But people, you know, that's a sickness. It's not new. Um, but I think it's certainly hyped up by the fact that finance, which had been a tool that had been an amazing invention, you know, to solve the space and time problem of getting money where you want it, when you want it. I mean, now instead of being utility, that's been enshrined as an actual thing in and of itself. Therefore, you get the credit default swaps, you get the mortgage-backed securities, you get these, what did Dick Cheney call it, you know, out-of-the-box type, you know, inventions of, of, uh, of one of his friends. Oh, yeah, Anderson, Arthur Anderson. Yeah, so was that the the company that went under, like, yes, early in the Enron. 2000s? And, well, Enron, but there was also Arthur Anderson, Anderson was their accountant. Anderson, yeah, right. So it was the accountant, the out of a box accounting, yes, you know, like techniques. Um, so yeah, I think we're this is this is this is end game type stuff. Um, I don't know how we reel ourselves out of that, but I think we need movements. And uh, yeah, I think it is a bit of a distraction that people. It is unfortunate that what you were talking about earlier that the that the right seems to be taking advantage of populist sediments and people seem to not be able to grasp the point i think earlier when i when i tuned in you mentioned something about forget about what these clowns are arguing over it's just the fact that a small number of people can massively disrupt disrupt powerful entities and you and know, we I should celebrate that. We should be all over that. Well, the thing is, is that you have hope, right? There is right. a path forward. Uh, the one politician I see consistently does things like that is a friend of the show, Kasama Salant. And she's already, I mean, and she's successful. I mean, she's really fearless. She's, she's going to get in everybody's faces. She's going to disrupt your businesses unless basic justice for the citizens she represents are you know is established so you know i think that uh i just i just feel that there's so much whining from the left so much impotence sitting on your butt on your youtube channel or your twitter feed you know like impotent rage when you could just go out and do it you know you can run for school board you could still do it around here get yourself uh (laughs) 
you know, I think it only takes 10 signatures. Get yourself a signature list from the Kane County Elections Board and go out to your neighbors and then get yourself on the ballot. How hard is that? It isn't hard. So, you know, I, I think that doing everything from that to at least getting a culture back established in these labor groups. And I, I don't know who it was earlier um, who was talking about the labor, the leadership of labor unions identifying much more with the managerial executive class than their own membership. And that's mm-hmm. a problem. I mean, you know, that that is the problem. Uh, I think we, I think the most powerful thing we could have done was car check. And that's what Obama promised. That was one of the, one of the first promises he broke. But car check, in other words, you just have one vote for a union. You decide to have a vote. It's not have a vote to have a vote for a union. So you give the company time to, you know, like propagandize, threaten, you know, persuade. No, you all take a vote and it is anonymous. I mean, it's private, like your own vote for political office. Um, that they had to squash. Um, you know, I, I think that, I don't know why we, uh, but we've all become beat down dogs. We, we, we don't consider, why don't you do the ma- maximal ask for things? And then you can settle on, you know, you can back off from that to the thing that everybody says now is impossible to get. But if you are conditioning people to ask for what is would really make a humane society and keep asking for the maximal thing, you know, healthcare is a right, water, water is a right. The, you know, the basic set of economic rights of FDR and, and our, our friend Harvey JK is absolutely right. Democrats are never going to win. The left is never going to win unless they get a hold of the working class because we're all working class. You know, most of us can be fired. We're not living off of our money. We're living off of our labor, be it, you know, carpentry or computer programming or, as you say, answering your email. Um, that was so. Catherine Liu who said that. Right. Catherine Liu. What is it? She had a great line. And virtue, it was funny because I was vir, virtue hoarding. Virtue hoarding. I was just reading um, a text from the eighth century AD, a Buddhist, uh, the way of the Bodhisattva. And one of the things they said when you leave this life, the three things are extremely are hard to give up. One is your material, your possessions, your house, your things. The second part, the uh, that's the that's the easiest to let go. The second easiest or the second hardest is your own body. Everything you know, everything is going to disappear. And this, the ceasing to be, that's a, that's, that, that is something that people have a hard time with. But the third, the most difficult, is your virtue. In other words, your good reputation, your good name. Oh, look, I'm doing good works. I'm being virtuous. I read the texts. You know, I give to the poor. I'm one of the good ones. Right. Uh, I'm the good one. But remember, I was one of the good ones. Right. And right, right. 100 years later, we're all dead. Doesn't matter. You know, it's a bunch of little puffs of dust for a while. Right. So sad. <laughs> right. So, right. anyway, I love her. I, I mean, it was just funny that she would say that because that is true. We have a big ego around what we perceive to be 
our good selfless nature. No wonder she, no wonder she gets a song from the great Professor Mike Steinell. We're trying My to get God. her back. We're trying to get her back. I hope you do. Yes. I, I really hope you do. Yes. Anyway, um, yeah, um, the only thing I have to leave with is uh, I think that we're finally going to have a same conversation about women's figure skating like we used to have with women's gymnastics. Um, and uh, they're, all, they're actually talking about raising the age to like 17, a 17-year-old birthday. You know, Tanya Harding was called lazy. Part before all the nonsense went on in her life, she was called lazy because she just didn't have that regime that the other girls had. And uh, Michelle Kwan had a hip replacement before age 30. All these people, you know, like being crippled. Yeah, because, you know, you, you train so hard, you, you know, you keep your um, body mass down, your, your, your fat down. And then later on, you know, you have all of these problems. Tanya Harding, last I heard, she was uh, being interviewed about a year or so ago. She's working. She says, yeah, I'm getting my triples back. You know, after the Dancing with the Stars thing, she got in shape. Gal's 50. Got a little bit of a gut. But, I mean, even the skating I saw her do, you know, at that time was pretty damn impressive. And Nancy Kerrigan, did anybody ever answer the question for her why? 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 I don't know. (laughs) Did anybody ever explain? That little prepossessant Michelle Kwan. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that was like, oh, that, that was crazy. But you notice, though, that they're, they are letting them skate, but they just may not give medals. They figured, oh, my God, it's too, it's too the TV ad revenue is too much. Right. We got to let her skate. So that sort of saga continues. And, anyway. And what is happening before you go? Do you subscribe to the National Choir? Because I'm actually thinking... I, I pass it in the grocery store, and I'm thinking we should do a segment each week where we read <gasps> the National Enquirer so you uh, don't have to. Yes. Oh, no. Well, you know, those guys get... If you read the National Enquirer and the Weekly World... Well, the Weekly World News, rest in peace, that left, that was the best of them. The Globe, the Examiner, you know, you have a good grasp of what's going on. And they get it right. The National Enquirer has to get it right. Well, they do get it right in their beat. We we knew what was going on with, with John Edwards. Hey, we knew what was going on with Jimmy Swaggart. Glory. Why? And Monica Lewinsky. Because I read, and uh, Monica. Yeah, look, you know, you read it first in those in those papers. Yes. I think Tommy Lee Jones had it right in that movie, Men in Black. Should I ask the professor? Professor Mike Steinell joins us. Should Professor Mary Ann and I compete? Oh, okay. All right. In the game? Yeah. Let me let what? in honor of <laughs> in honor right. of Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson doing a commercial <laughs> for Amazon. I'm gonna play okay. a song. They did? Oh. Yeah. They, oh that's Oh, that's what that was commercial was about. Yeah, for Alexa. Uh-huh. Yeah, I couldn't figure what they were trying to sell either. Yeah. Wasn't that for Alexa? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, It was reading their mind. That's Amazon. That's Amazon. Yeah. 
But isn't it Amazon dot? I, I can't remember which is which, and I won't have any of it, Miles. Well, in honor of their commercial, here is a song from Professor Mike Steinell. In this Bessemer shop Back and outdated Don't ever seem to stop A man went down Cause his heart gave out Get back to work We heard them shout They said the EMTs are coming That's what they're for And life slipped away On a cement floor The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go They gave us all pins that said vote no But maybe this year union can give us a little more And put some chairs on this Bessemer floor might make things right some days i just don't have the strength to fight this plant down here can take its toll it'll break your body it'll crush your soul feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop and there still ain't no chairs in this bessemer shop interesting uh, professor mike steinell joins us he is a brilliant brilliant jazz professor and author and we'll plug all his books in a little while that 
is an example of you rewriting, doing a different version of a song that was already perfect. Yeah, I had a I had a ballady version that I didn't like too that much. Is, it, I like the rock version. That rocks out. You know what? There's a spot in there. I think that you can't tell. It's kind of subtle, but I start using the shaker. Yeah, and that's when it like it kind of locks locks in. I want to play one more know. song. Okay, is it Swine Bomb Boogie? Is that the name of the song? Yeah, from last week. Yeah, let's just hear one more song, <laughs> then we'll get to work. Okay. <laughs> Hysteria in the greater Bay Area. We heard about it on CNN.com. I guess they're calling it a swine bomb. We've been infested by feral hogs. They messed up my lawn and they ate my dogs. They're taking over and they're out of control. Gonna organize a swine patrol. We got a swine bomb. You're doing the swine bomb boogie. These hogs are smelly and they make nasty sounds. Some of them weigh close to 800 pounds. Now you tell me if you think I'm mistaken. I think that sounds like an awful lot of bacon. These critters are mean, they can tear into you. Here's what they say you're supposed to do. Get on your car or climb up a tree. Cause pigs can't climb, at least that's what they tell me. We're in a swine bomb. Pigs can't climb. Doing the swine bomb boogie. Pigs can't climb. Folks are getting guns and shooting them on sight. I doubt if Peter thinks that's alright. All my life I've been for gun control. Now they done put me on swine patrol. Pigs can't climb and white men can't jump. All we can do is a bumpity bump. Can we chill these pigs out with some smooth and metal jazz? Round them all up and send them to Alcatraz. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. The pigs can't climb. We're doing a swine bomb. We got a swine bomb. The pigs can't climb. We're doing a swine bomb. The pigs can't climb. We got a swine hogs all over the place. We're doing a swine bomb. The pigs can't so great so great swine bomb boogie mike steinell is a jazz trumpeter composer and educator 
member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 until 2019, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz, uh, jazz, jazz Ensemble, <laughs> Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, Running the Changes, and he's got an album, Go Buy It, Song and Dance, the Mike Steinell Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert, Origin Records. The reason I said j Jaws Ensemble, I've been yes. reading about Sinatra, and he was taught that you don't pronounce, you don't say jazz, you say Jaws. Right? Who told him that? It, you don't do the long A's. You when you sing, yeah, you don't. Ah uh, is a very um, jaw. Yeah. It's um, you know, like um, one of the reasons why they teach. Am I too loud? It's no, pretty you're loud. Perfect. Huh? Okay. One of the reasons why they teach uh, Italian to singers is that it doesn't have any really nasty sounds. Americans, um, you know, there's a lot of uh uh in our in our language, and um, yeah. And, and so Italian is music. There's something musical about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, um, it's a very musical language. Easy to phonate on all the, the different vowels. Um, there's a lot of E's, you know, really uh, resonant vowels. Uh and J. Uh, hear the difference. Jazz. Mm -hmm. Jazz. Jazz. Hey, by the way, I had a band. We had a band uh, in college. Really good band. We call ourselves Rosewood. And I don't know why bands do this, but I've been in a number of bands, and someone in the band goes, we need a better name. So right. the bass player came up with the name. Let's call ourselves Jaws, J-A-W-S. One month before the movie came out. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then it caused a lot of, you know, people didn't get it. Are you Jaws? You know, it was a stupid name. You could have yeah. sang Mac the Knife. Oh, the yeah, shark. Yeah, that's right. Bites. Yeah, the shark bites. And then we had another band in high school called uh, the Scoundrels. Wasn't that a great name for a band? And yeah. we had yeah. shark skin beetle coats without the collar. Right. You know, they had the they had just like a Nehru collar, and they were iridescent. And we decided someone in the band decided we need a better name, and uh, let's call ourselves. The basically sound. <laughs> and now, no would one the got Beatles that. <laughs> have made it if they were the Quarrymen? Probably not. Probably not. You know, something that's quarry, hard to say. Doesn't roll off the tongue. Ladies and gentlemen, the Quarrymen. <laughs> <laughs> Beatles. You know, um, and then everybody said the basically sound. Are you the basic sounds? Or basic? What are you? You know, it, it just didn't work. And that's happened three or four times where I've decided to, where somebody in my band, in the band that I've been, cooperative bands, has uh, decided to change the names. Well, hey, I went down a, uh, I went I down a rabbit hole. Am I going to humiliate Professor Marianne Cummings now? Is, this, is it time for me to take her on and compete? Yes. Okay. Know now, your bonesman. Know your bonesman. Hang on. <laughs> Professor Marianne, are you used to the sound? <laughs> Let me put some money in the jackpot. Okay. All right. We're paying. Good. We're, 
What, so what's, what's the competition? I, I, I started reading this book, ah. Family of Secrets. It's about the Bushes. Great book. And it's fascinating. Well, let's plug the book. Let's plug it because it's a great Yeah, by movie. Russ Baker, Family of oh, Secrets. Oh, not Kitty Carlisle. Okay. Russ. Oh, Russ. Was that the... Who's the New York Times uh, reporter? Oh, uh, that's the other Baker. Yeah. No, this is... This, this is, is a uh, good Baker. He's kind of become persona non grata because of the subject mm. of this book. Yeah. But he goes into the whole thing. And, and then, of course, I was going to do Know Your Assassinations. Who, as and he also is the play. editor of Who, What, Why, uh, and people should go there. We've had him on the show. Yeah, and just recently. Yeah, he's I the think, best. Um, Who, What, Why is a great investigator. I think Peter B. Collins brought him on, didn't he? Uh, no, had, that actually, was he's brought on some people, but we had him on. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, and we should have him back. So anyway. Um, so what am I competing I, with the professor on well, well i have a series of questions about skull and bones because throughout well, it, this that's whole unfair book, because i belonged to skull and bones no skull cap and bones it was the jewish <laughs> fraternity i done that, that joke a million jewish i i did that a million, million did times. uh columbia have secret societies uh for me they were the classrooms <laughs> i didn't really I didn't go anyway so um this book, they keep tracing things back to Skull and Bones. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the whole thing of these families, they're all intertwined and it's so amazing. And, and then he builds a pretty interesting case about all this stuff that was going on in Dallas. You know, Dallas, there was a lot of reasons why people wanted to kill Kennedy, you know, the, and a lot of them were about Texas. The oil, he was trying to do away with the oil depletion, depletion allowance, which paid or somehow gave you benefit. The, le the less inventory you had, the more money you could make. I don't know if that's probably too simple for you. But, you know, like it's, it, was a, it was a handout to the oil industry. And then there were all these um, <clears throat> anti-communists who were mad, you know, pretty, pretty much uh, upset uh, about uh, the Bay of Pigs and and Kennedy not just going in there, you know, not providing and they blamed air support. Him. Say it again. Not providing air support. Right. So there was that, and then, and then th the book gets into a whole bunch of stuff about cultivating Oswald. Maybe down the road we'll do a little know your assassination. But anyway, this is know your bonesman. Okay, so I now let me. I like to build. I'm going to be the heel, Professor Marianne. Okay, Professor Marianne, are you mm -hmm. there? I'm going to play yes. the heel here so people root for you. Okay. Oh, okay. It's kind of okay. unfair for me to go up against Professor Mary. I am an expert on skull and bones. So this okay, is Okay, well. Okay. Which, should we give her points? You know, like, you yeah, know, what, like, like in golf, you know, yeah. like you have a handicap. Oh, that's the question. I'm, I mean, I'm curious now. What are you going to ask? Okay. First of all, there are 41 secret societies at Yale. There have oh. been. I, they've maybe gotten rid of some of them skull and bones how can is they the be oldest. secret well, hang on if they're secret societies how do you know that they're 41. well they they, they publish their membership i get one point <laughs> i get one point i'm winning I'm okay i'm gonna give score. you four more hang on what was the question i'm gonna give you four more besides skull and bones one isn't real 
For 10 points, tell me which one is bogus. Okay, here we go. Book and snake. Listen to all four first. Okay. Book and snake, wolf's head, scroll and key, or sheath and sword. 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 <laughs> what a weird word. Sword. Well, what are those again? So, so but Professor Marianne and I will both answer. Book and, then... and snake, wolf's head, scroll and key, sheath and sword. Professor Marianne? I think the book and snake is probably the fake one because the rest sound like pubs. Okay. I agree with you 100%. Wrong. Hang on. Ah. Hang on. <laughs> do, let's do. Let's eliminate it. Now, what are the three choices? Wolf's head, scroll and key, sheath and sword. Professor, we got plenty of questions. We can go on. Professor, what do you think? Well, I'd say okay. Now, now that you read those, sheath and sword would just be too obvious. You so. are correct. As in, yes, that's the fake one. That's the I was going to agree with her, but she gets 10 points. Okay, she's winning. Okay, all right. Now, these are true or false, okay? Stunning book. Hang on. All right. Skull and Bones is a secret, but gradually over the years, some of the traditions and rituals have been leaked. Oh, now I get to pick, and you have to choose. Now it's my turn, and you have to agree or disagree with me, Professor Marianne. Well, you can, it's true or false, so you could be true and choose false and we decide who wins. Oh, okay. Okay. Answer true or false for each of these items, okay? Some are pretty easy. The building housing the society is referred to as a tomb. True. I would say it was a crypt. No, it's a tomb. It's a tomb. <laughs> so it's it's now. Look at it. It looks like a tomb. Look, look at, I'm showing different different uh, um, societies. Their buildings. They're all sp- spooky. You know what got me oh, thinking about this? We, we had that one just down my block. A fire broke. <laughs> no, seriously, dude. I had one that we, looked we like had that. Temple, like just a block from me. It was oh, okay. like the Masons, the Masons built it. Yeah, they, it, it was very much like that. Yeah. My daughter was a research assistant at Yale, Dr. Natalie Steinell, who's an immunologist. Ooh. And she says everybody should get boosted. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, but uh, she was a let me see. She did a research assistant at Yale. Then she got her Ph.D. at Penn. And now she runs a lab at University of uh, Massachusetts at Lowell. But anyway, OK, here's the second one. There is a sarcophagus in the basement, and inductees must lay naked in the coffin and tell secrets about their adolescent sex life. Oh, I would say that's true. That sounds just like a crime ring. Yeah, true. You're absolutely right. True. It's like Bohemian Grove. All right. Here we go. By the way, it's it's tied. It's 2020. Okay. Members dress in skeleton suits and howl at the initiates. False. In skeleton suits? Yeah. I'm going to say that's true. It is true. Mm. And skull and bones. 
You're winning. Each, it's 30 each to new 20. You're winning. Okay. Each new member gets a $15,000 no strings gift. False. Oh, it wouldn't be a no strings gift. I think they get a, like a $150,000 gift, and it's definitely with strings. But I'm going to say false. False. True. What? Mm. What's the gift? $15,000. I mean, it's just $15,000. Oh. Yeah. Uh, members are guaranteed financial security for life. Well, no. What do you mean? Is it like, is it pro forma or du jour? Uh, don't don't get so damn fancy with me. I just I, I would say <laughs> it's pro forma, but not. I, I would say they're officially. I'm going to say. What's the question? <laughs> e members are guaranteed financial security for life. I'm going to say false. What did Professor Marianne I'm, say? I, I'm going to say false because I don't think, I think it would, I, if you said they are sworn for life, I mean, the members like have to swear fealty for life. It's true. It's true. Yeah. And that's oh, one wrong. of the reasons. Oh, hang on. Yeah. We, we both were wrong. I'm Yes, both wrong. Yes. And that's one of the reasons, if you think about it, like well, how they can get people to be so loyal to each other okay. and do whatever that, you know, a bunch of these people are in the CIA. Right. You know, I, and, I um, actually, I actually know somebody who was skull and bones. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and he's somewhat wealthy, but I don't believe he was ever guaranteed. Well, he's guaranteed. Yeah, of course it would. I mean, they would just come to your aid. Well, there were, somebody was, was, was uh, a member was, ask this and he basically said yeah there would be uh no interest loans if anybody was in trouble to for whatever you know but i mean well, that's uh, different than an income but okay what's they, that okay that's different than an income these are some of these people don't necessarily well I'm not, that's another question okay here we go only those destined for politics finance or law are admitted I would politics. No, I would say politics, false. finance, or law are admitted. I would say false. Politics? There's got to be some spooks. Well, there. yeah, it's CIA, but that's politics. I'm going to say true. That's yes, politics. I'm going to say true. Mm. It is false. <laughs> uh, there was a quote. There was a quote from a member who said the per they, they induct 15 people a year. And he said the ideal class would have like a football star, uh, somebody in acting, you know, somebody in politics, somebody in finance, uh, you know, some maybe, maybe um, uh, oh, that's a right. scientist. So they, they would think, they would actually mix it up and they'd have a I lot think of that a writer. I think one of them became a writer for The Simpsons. In another Absolutely. Episode. Loyal well, orders, of those stone guys are cutters. You, you had, well, you had in the inner sanctum, you had, well, Happy Bush, Orville Redenbacher, and Mr. T. So, yeah. Orville right Redenbacher went to Yale? It was in Scotland. I don't think that's, I don't that think was that's the, quite that right. That was the royal order of stone cutters in the Simpsons. That's okay, Simpsons all right. Okay. Hey, we got a lot of questions, so just, just hang on. Okay, right. once a member, they are given a visit to Deer Island 
maintained by Russell Trust Association. I'm going to say that's island. true. I saw that in the Good Shepherd. So I'm going to say. Yes, they own an island. I'm going to say 20. Uh, hang on. I'm going to say that's true. It is true. Well, we, we didn't get okay. to, she didn't, the professor you know, did I, I would have said it was true because that sounds, yeah, like something they would do. Okay, okay here hang we on. go. So the score is, hang on now. So it's, <laughs> we both get points there. So the score is now 50 to 30. The professor is in the lead. You're actually, you're keeping track. Okay. Women, Jews, and African-Americans are excluded from membership. No, I, well, I think they made an exception for Hillary Clinton, but. Women, Jews, Jews and African-Americans. Yeah, yeah, so I'll ask the right question now or X years ago. Yeah, that's I'm, what I'm I was sure going to ask. True, like, you know, 30 years ago. Right. I don't think it's true now. Right. I don't, you're, you're correct. They've they've gradually, um, I think it was Hang on for one second. What? Hang on. I am losing 50 to 30. <laughs> okay. You're not letting, you're not, you're, you're giving out the answers before I can get them wrong. Okay. I thought you guessed. I didn't get to guess. I'm sorry. Your timing is off, Professor. We're going to put a time, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to answer. Okay. All we'll right. get this thing moving along here a little bit. Okay, here we go. The next category is which bushes are bonesmen? Oh, he's got a timer. Oh, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to say. No, I'm going to give you the names and you tell me okay. bonesmen, not bonesmen. Okay. Prescott Bush. Bonesman. Bonesman. Yes. Hang on. Ding, ding. Oh, hang on. <laughs> the applause is way too long. Okay. Uh, Jeb Bush. No. no. Correct. <laughs> Prescott Bush Jr. No. The one from Texas? Prescott Bush Jr. I'm going to say he didn't even go to Yale. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know. No. He is. Yes. So both of us got there. Okay. Ooh. This is an easy one. George Herbert Walker Bush. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no? Yes. No, yes. No, I'm looking at the, uh, yeah, that's a yes, but I'm looking at the... I said it was an easy one. Okay. <laughs> Can you do the bell without the applause? Uh, I need the applause. That's what <laughs> okay, I you need to do the applause after right. Jeb Bush. All right. please, now I'm going to tell you one. Not... It's a freebie. George W. Bush was obviously uh, skull and bones. But what about his uncle, William H.T. Bucky Bush? Bucky Bush. The uh, is that oh. Bucky Bush? Bucky is that the uh, the the Broadway who did Broadway musicals? He just died, or is that Jonathan Bush? I don't know. I just I know the answer that, to this question. I'm just going by that nickname, I would say that he was a member. Bucky Bush. I'm going to 
to make it interesting, I'm going to say no. You are correct, David. Oh, oh we don't like the applause. How, how about this? That's good. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. Now here they get the 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 bonesmen gave each other uh, nicknames. Okay. okay. I'm going to give you four bonesmen and four nicknames. See if you can match them up. Okay. George H.W. Bush, George, McGeorge Bundy, all over the Bay of Pigs, that guy, Henry Luce, involved in uh, uh, anti-Kennedy stuff, and Averill Harriman. Okay. One was called Thor. One was called Bale. That's nice. Canaanite. One was called Odin, Norse god. And one was called Magog. That's the, one of the seven tribes listed in Genesis. Okay, which, who was Thor? I'm going to go with McGeorge Bundy. Wrong, sir. Well, I, I, I think Bundy was, I, I think he, he I would be wait. Magog. I think he would be Magog if there ever was a Magog. Okay, no, uh, Averill Harriman was Thor. Okay. Who was Magog as long as we're there? Oh, Henry Luce. Henry Luce. George McBundy. You're both wrong. Oh, you're Poppy Bush. Poppy Bush. Poppy George H.W. Bush was okay. All right, we're getting. So, um, who was Bale? Bale. B A A L? Yes. Doesn't that ball? Chachi. Yeah. Ball. Who? Chachi. But Scott Bale. Um, it's either Luce or Bundy. Bundy. No, I'm going to go with Luce. You're correct. Who is correct? Uh, uh, the professor. Okay. <laughs> and uh, McGeorge Bundy. McGeorge Bundy was, was Odin. Okay. All right. Here we go. This one's called Stolen Skulls. In their history, they're kind of famous for stealing uh, important people's skulls and putting them in, in, in their little, they have a little, um, like a museum, okay? I'm going to give you four skulls. You tell me which one is not in Skull and Bones, okay? Martin Van Buren, Geronimo, Pancho Villa, or John Wilkes Booth? Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to, I think I have... Uh... One is not in there. Yeah, just one. I'm going to say John Wilkes Booth. I was going to say Marianne. that same thing. Yeah. Okay, those that you are both correct. Yeah. All right. Okay, here we go with the lightning round. Well, there was skull and bones, and the the other one was um, scrawl and key. Uh, that was the f most. Fa those were the two most famous secret societies. So I'm going to list the name. You tell me if they were bonesmen or scrolls or neither. Some of these people were were in neither. Okay. Are you ready? So we're going to ask. We're going. It's a lightning round. So go quick. Let's just just okay. do total. Just total the score, and at the end we'll do the applause. Okay. Here we go. Janet Yellen. 
Neither. Neither. Correct. Henry Luce. Henry Luce. Squirrels. Bones. No, he's bones. <laughs> we already had it. He, he was in the nickname he's category. Okay, he was skull and bones. Uh, Austin Goldsby. Obama's. Squirrel. Yeah, I'm going to say Obama's squirrel. guy. Yeah, I'll go with squirrels. No, squirrel. he was a bonesman. He was a bonesman. Rabbi Angela Buckdahl. What doll? Buckdahl. Buchdahl. Buchdahl. I, 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 I think neither. Rabbi Angela Buchdahl was a bonesman. Recent. She was in Skull and Bones recent, recently. Okay. Wow. Okay, Hillary Clinton. No. Neither. Nope. Neither. Correct. Stephen Schwartzman, you know that name? Yes, Blackstone. Blackstone. Oh. The oh. enemy. Maybe I go with Scroll with him. Scroll. Sounds a little more cryptic. He's a bonesman. He's a bonesman? Yep. Wrong bonesman. Archibald McLeish. Never heard of him. Famous writer. He almost oh. uh, collaborated with uh, Bob Dylan on an opera that was going to be The Devil and Daniel Webster, but they didn't get along. Scroll. Dylan spent some time with him. Scroll. What's that? No, I'll say, scroll. I'm going to say scroll. He's a bonesman. We'll get to some some scrolls here. George Herbert Walker Jr. George Herbert Walker Jr. Who's yeah. that? Well, the Walkers were Prescott. That's the family that um, the daughter of of George Herbert Walker married Prescott Bush. That's why they're all Walkers. That's why they're George H. W. Bush. That's where that name gets in there. Well, the families tend to stick together, so I'll say bones. Bones. Correct, correct. All right, here, here's one. Dean Acheson. Well, he has, well, he was a Democrat. Doesn't matter. You're gonna, nah, I'm going to say, I'm going to say he didn't, he wasn't Skull and Bones. Neither. What was he in? Scrolls? He was, he was in Scroll, Scroll and Key. Was in Scrolls. Okay, I got that wrong. Okay, Dean Acheson Jr. There was a junior? Well, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, David Acheson. David Acheson. Oh, that, now that's different. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> that's his son. Uh, well, they tend to say, I'd say squirrels. No, he's a bonesman. He's a bonesman. They don't do this. Is not family lineage in these. No, not they didn't. They, he he went the other way. Bill Clinton. No. Neither. Yeah, neither. He came there at, at law school, and this right. is a thing you do in your senior year. Yeah. Surprise me. Okay, Fareed Sakaria. No. Oh, scroll. Bones. Marianne. No, he's Bones. a scroll. He's a scroller. He's a scroller. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Steve Mnuchin. Ugh. A disgusting, is there a secret society called Disgusting <laughs> Human Being with Ticks? I don't think so. I don't think so, David. Oh, okay. Oh, God. I, he's just he, he's just overall kind of, you know. Do you know, in, in high school, he was voted most likely to have to pay for sex. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> oh, he's, well, he's scroll. scroll. He, Let's, I'll say scroll. 
No, he's a bonesman. Really? <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Sergeant Shriver. Not a sergeant, by the way. Mm-hmm. No, well, Salvation. No, wait a minute. He... Sergeant Shriver. Isn't he, a, he must have been Harvard, Sergeant Shriver. No. No, he, he would not he be. He married. He's Kennedy in law, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, that's yeah. right. He would not be Skull. He would be Skull. He was Mr. Peace Corps. Yeah. I don't think neither. I'm going to say neither. He was scrolling the key. Okay. Um, John Kerry. Oh, Bones. Oh, yeah, I think he was Bones. We, yeah. We know that. Samuel Alito. No. A, neither. Correct. Mm-hmm. He probably went there in law school, too. Um, yeah. Cole Porter. Oh. What? Cole Porter. Cole Porter. Neither. He's Jewish, isn't he? No. No, 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 no. No, 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 no he no. wasn't a Jewish. No, he's no. a wasp. Yeah. Cole Porter, Eli, he was, uh, he wrote Bull, the Bulldog. He wrote their theme song for Yale. I'm going to say Skull and Bones. No, he was a scroll and key man. Okay. Okay. Eugene O'Neill. Eugene O'Neither. Correct. Eugene O'Neill Jr. Neither. I think he was Bonesman. I didn't write these in here. I was trying to remember. I think he is a Bonesman. Gary Trudeau. Gary Trudeau. Definitely not Skull and Bones. Wait, not Bones. He's Scroll. Maybe. He was a scroll. He made fun of he 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 lampooned him right in his cartoons. <laughs> yeah, of course he did. Paul Giamatti, the sideways actor. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I can't imagine him being skull and bones, but I'd like to yeah. think he was. He was. Was he really? Yes. Was. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay, Clarence Thomas. I don't know. I think he, he he went to the law school, right? So no. Yeah. So he know. Okay. Yeah. So he's neither. Here's one. Yeah. Here's an interesting one. Peter H. Dominic. Oh, from the Pete Dominic. Peter H. Dominic, maybe relative. Pete Dominic. Yeah, Pete Dominic. Uh, who's Peter H. Dominic? He he was a uh, I think a senator from some state or Domenici. No, Dominic. No. Domenici was New Mexico one long time ago. Peter H. Dominic, bonesman or scroll or neither? Neither. The H stood for Harvard. <laughs> He's a no, he was. <laughs> he was scrolling key. Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper. Oh, Anderson Cooper. I think he'd be scroll. I think he was neither. I think he was neither. Yeah. I couldn't find him in the. You know they 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 publish their membership lists pretty much. Uh, a lot of it, but not if there's 15 every year, it, they don't they don't do all the names. And when you get into like the most recent there, there's no listings. So they may become more secretive about uh, what they do. But it's kind of scary stuff. You know, how much they all know each other. Oh, and and they all these secret societies have huge bank accounts. Um <laughs> The, the biggest one is um, Scroll and Key has 10 million in the bank. Um, uh, the Bones have 4 million, so they can keep up that island and they can give everybody, you know, uh, I did the math on this. If you got 4 million, you're kicking off 4%. 
you're uh, you got like four hundred thousand dollars to play with every year, and you got upkeep. And if you give everybody uh, fifteen thousand, that's two twenty-five, and then you got another two hundred k to you know to to spruce up the joint and keep your island going and stuff. They might have invested in crypto. Hey, you know, did you see all the people? One, you you, you went off about um, Scarlett, you know, and I was going to write a song like Scarlett Johansson, what happened to you? You know, why'd you marry that schlub? But anyway, it's <laughs> a real question. Not why you're, <laughs> are they married? Are they yes, they're married. Yeah. Jeez. Anyway, he must make her laugh. Anyway, um, Martin Lawrence was shilling for DraftKings. All these guys went in whole hog on uh, gambling. There was a really interesting douthit about the, uh, gambling. You, you know, douthit. He's, he's getting pretty better. Conservative. He's ever got ever since he got sick. He's gotten better. He's he's always thoughtful, and it's not that he does both sides, but he always comes up with, oh, that's a different take on that. Yeah. And he isn't whole hog. He's, he's anti-Trump. A week ago, he had a very interesting thing to say how Trump has spawned this whole genre of uh, former Republican um, strategists who now are making a lot of money, you know, like Michael Steele, you know, and and uh, half of M MSNBC is is defectors, oh. you know. The yeah. neocon fleas have gone yeah. to a different dog. So yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Ben Affleck uh, uh, was shilling for WinBet. Jamie Foxx mm -hmm. did this big thing for Bet MGM. Jordan Spieth for FanDuel. Um, and then uh, JB Smooth with all of the Mannings, Archie, Peyton, Eli, and, and mm -hmm. the brother, um, the other brother who's, and Haley Berry's <laughs> in that too. I mean, it must and then be, all the people doing, doing it, crypto, it Matt Damon, safe. Tom Brady. Yeah. Must be safe. What's happened? What's happened to those? You know, Bat Damon and and Ben Affleck. Uh, Bat Damon's what doing cryptocurrency. Yeah. yeah, CryptoCon. And and Ben they Affleck's doing deep pockets. You know, I read a thing in the Guardian where there's uh, maybe a law in Britain where they want to have celebrity make it illegal for celebrities and what they call key influencers to um, uh, do advertisements for, for gambling. It's a serious problem, gambling. Yeah, but you know, yeah. what happened to those Goodwill hunting boys? I mean, <laughs> Matt Damon seems so cool. How they, could you do all that, that that and not be at least a little cool? They Clooney, got, they got I'll tell rich. you what happened. I'll tell you what happened. Clooney Please. went into business with Randy Gerber, uh, Cindy Crawford's husband, and he Clooney made like a billion dollars from tequila. So Affleck and Damon feel poor. So they're trying to catch up to George Clooney. Yeah. You know, yeah. it might actually be something. I mean, I, I'm so old. I remember when Bill Clinton said he was going to do half pro bono, half speak, you know, half paid speaking gigs until he got about 20 to 25 million. And then he said, I'd feel comfortable. I'd have enough money to like, you know, go wherever I wanted, provide for Chelsea. And now it's like, 
they're like 300 million and counting. I mean, I think you just, you start feeling poor if you're only 50 millionaire and you hang around with billionaires. You know who's also quietly making a fortune is George W. Bush. Nobody talks about his speaking fees. He did yeah. it very quietly. He's getting $125,000 a pop. He did a, he got $125,000 to speak before a Christian homeless foundation. George oh, w. that's Bush. gross. That is gross. Yeah. Why would you take that money? Why would you invade Iraq and Afghanistan if they had nothing to do with 9-11? That's George You're W. Bush. They are psychopaths. These are very sick people. Yeah. We got hey, David, I sent you I sent you two songs. I don't know if you can play both, but sure. um yeah. I oh, promised yes. I uh, t I um texted or did a Marco Polo to Rosanna said we might do uh since we're talking about crypto, why don't you play the crypto asset song? She I want to tell if the audience hasn't heard this before. This is an amazing singer and Rosanna she, Eckert. She did this in one take. I'm going to and if you want to hear more from her, I'm going to put her, uh, let me find her album. Oh, by the way, oh. yes, Professor sir. Marianne won, but it was close, 180 to You actually 80. kept track? <laughs> Congratulations, Professor. Excellent work. This was work. actually educational, I guess. Wow. Yeah, I, I found it demeaning, losing demeaning, demeaning, losing by a hundred points. But that—that's the story of my education <laughs> being demeaned. Anyway, uh, hey, did you see the uh, America? I mean, the New York Times uh, magazine um, um, thing on uh, Better Call Saul, Odenkirk? No. No. I can't wait. I can't wait for that last season. Anyway, he uh, it was a pretty nice article. They, they, they talked about him before he got his big break on Breaking Bad, that he was lend, legendary but up, obscure. And I think, David, that describes you. You're legendary but up, obscure. Mm, <laughs> you're half right. Just <laughs> no, you are legendary. We all knew him before his You're legendary. Break. You all knew you're me. Legendary. I got news for you. You know me after. <laughs> that's how okay. i when people don't return my calls i go if this were the 90s you'd be so over. anyway uh that's how i introduce myself hi i'm david feldman from the 90s let's play the crypto asset song yeah do that do All that right. and then i got then i gotta run i think okay i'm gonna mute myself Crypto assets are taking the world by storm Busting every metric, crushing every norm They ain't nothing you can hold in your hand They ain't like cash People say if the market falls It'll be nothing but digital trash But here's the craziest thing The craziest thing of all When all them people come up at those things They really must have a ball yeah, it must be fun to think of all them names Like Bitcoin Bitcoin Ethereum Ethereum Tether Tether, 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 tether 
Cardano. Cardano, Cardano, Cardano. Polka dot. Polka dot, polka dot. Chain link. Chain link, yeah. Theta. Theta, theta, theta. Still. Still. Tron. Doja Cooley. Doja Cooley. Doja Cooley. That was not what I wanted to play. Uh, I've heard that before. Hang on for one second. (laughs) That's a nicer applause, isn't it? Yeah. She's great. Rosanna Eckert. She's fantastic. Isn't she wonderful? She's the best. The best. Let's listen to Drifting and Drifting. Okay. Why did you You write this? this? Why did you write this? Because I felt like I just was drifting and drifting. We were in... Omicron. It was last month, and now things are better. Things are better. Yeah. We had, by the way, we had a big visit from my grandson, and that cheered everybody up around here. And he's is doing this great. The, and you like him? This is the one you like. <laughs> yeah. You know what he calls me? Uh, pop, bop, pop, 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 pop. And he, they gave me this for Christmas. I'm the number one bop, pop. <laughs> you know, if I knew how much fun having grandkids were going to be I would have married an older woman 
had grandkids a, with her. There's a joke in there somewhere. Right? Is that, they say grandkids are more <laughs> no, fun. No, if, if we would have just skipped the first step. Right. Just go right to the grandkids. How about this? If I had known how much fun grandchildren would have been, I would have married my grandmother. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I don't know if it, the logic, you, if you there's think no about logic. it too long, there's it's something wrong with it. Drifting and drifting. Here we go. Oh, here we go. Better? 
Yeah, yeah. Drifting and drifting. Mike Steinell is a jazz hey, I got a joke. Tri- what? I got. A, I have. I, I was going to tell you about something before we go. Go. Yeah. I'm feeling a little heavy, and finally I've started a regime. You know, in Europe they you, they don't go on a diet; they go on a regime. Everybody has a diet. You know, right. you can have a bad diet. So I'm on a regime because two days ago. I have this scale that talks to you, you know, mm-hmm. it tells you, it reads out the, your weight. So I stepped on it and, and it said, one at a time, please. Hang on. You didn't tell me you were, hang on for one second. It said, what? It said, one at a time, please. Oh, hang on. That's not. Where's the rim shot? I'm looking. I'm, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, what did it say? One at a time, please. <laughs> you didn't tell me. All right, okay, I'm sorry. I, I thought of that today, and I thought, that'd be kind of funny, but it wasn't. I, I uh, have a, a, a scale that talks. I stepped on it and said, clean your feet. They stink. <laughs> your feet stink. Your feet stink. Hang on. Professor oh, that was Mike, good. Sound like me. <laughs> Professor Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator, member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 until 2019, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and Running the Changes. And go buy his album, Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert on Origin Records. For more information, go to MikeSteinel.com. I love you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and go to RosannaEckert.com and buy her CD. Yes. Absolutely. Thank hey, you. David. Thank you. See you, see you later. Thank bye. you. How blessed are we? That is the show. What a great show. We... Uh, Invite you to come visit us over here in the Zoom room. We have a virtual studio audience. Go to my website to participate and ask questions. Please, uh, while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. Subscribe to this show wherever you get podcasts. We have a YouTube channel, and Invisible Ninja is doing a great job with Andy and Sarah and Dan and Joe in Norway, and I'm leaving somebody out, keeping our YouTube channel going. So thank you to everybody who's keeping the YouTube channel going. We, we have clips now, highlights from the show. Please subscribe to the channel. And I'd like to thank all our guests. Donald Cohn, author of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. Howie Klein, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein, Peter B. Collins, Professor Marianne Cummings, and Professor Mike Steinel. And please go pick up Donald Cohn's book, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. It is a masterpiece and it gets the Feldman guarantee. If you buy this book and you don't like it, let me know and I will pay you back. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. 
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an animal right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show So get your heaters on right, buckled in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. 